Chapter 27, Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack, November 15, 1945, to May 31, 1946, Part 1. After almost four years of fighting on land, sea, and in the air, after the detonation of two atomic bombs on Japan, one on Hiroshima, August 6, and the other on Nagasaki, August 8, the Japanese finally admitted defeat. On August 25, Emperor Hirohito broadcast to the Japanese people that the country's forces were surrendering. August 25, 1945 was declared VJ Day. World War II had ended. A couple of weeks later, on August 29, the new president, Harry S. Truman, who had taken office after the death of President Roosevelt on April 12, 1945, released the reports of the Army Pearl Harbor Board and Navy Court of Inquiry. A veritable firestorm erupted. The earlier Roberts Commission had found the two Hawaiian commanders, Admiral Kimmel and General Short, guilty of derelictions of duty and errors of judgment, and they had been retired from service and demoted in rank. The Army and Navy reports released by Truman effectively absolved Kimmel and Short of blame and placed much of the responsibility on four top-level Washington officials, Secretary of State Cordell Hull, Army Chief of Staff General George C. Marshall, Chief of the Army's War Plans Division General Leonard T. Garrow, and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Harold R. Stark. As the New York Times reported, it was not a pretty story that President Truman released in making public war and Navy reports on the reasons why Army and Navy officials at Oahu were taken by surprise in the Japanese attack on December 7, 1941. In spite of the volume of material released by Truman, the public still was not satisfied. There were obvious omissions. Under orders of the Secretary of War and the Secretary of the Navy, sections of both reports had been deleted, and top-secret portions were still being withheld. In the words of Senate Majority Leader Albin Barkley, the reports were confusing and conflicting when compared with one another, and to some extent contained contradictions and inconsistencies. Moreover, both Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson and Navy Secretary James Forrestal had, according to Senator Homer Ferguson, issued critical opinions of the findings of their own boards. Joint Congressional Committee, JCC, established. The Republicans in Congress, anxious to learn the truth, demanded a further investigation. Senator Ferguson urged the establishment of a committee to investigate the attack, and on September 6, Barclay introduced a concurrent resolution similar to Ferguson's proposal. The Senate debate was subdued and polite. It was agreed that the record so far was incomplete, confusing, and conflicting. Barclay proposed an inquiry, of such dignity and authenticity, as to convince the Congress and the country and the world that no effort has been made to shield any person who may have been directly or indirectly responsible for this disaster or to condemn unfairly or unjustly any person who was in authority, military, naval, or civilian at the time or prior thereto. Barclay's concurrent Resolution 27 set up a Joint Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack, Joint Congressional Committee, or JCC, with broad authority to make a full and complete investigation of the facts relating to the events and circumstances leading up to or following the attack made by Japanese armed forces upon Pearl Harbor, in the territory of Hawaii on December 7, 1941. The committee was to complete its testimony in four months and report to the Senate and House not later than January 3, 1946. The resolution was passed unanimously by the Senate on September 6, 1945, and by the House on September 11. Ten members of Congress, all lawyers, were appointed to the committee. On the Senate side, three Democrats, Barclay of Kentucky, Chairman, Walter F. George of Georgia, and Scott W. Lucas of Illinois, and two Republicans, Owen Brewster of Maine and Ferguson of Michigan. 
On the House side, three Democrats, Jerry Cooper of Tennessee, Vice Chairman, J. Bayard Clark of North Carolina, and John W. Murphy of Pennsylvania, and two Republicans, Bertrand W. Gerhardt of California and Frank B. Keefe of Wisconsin. William D. Mitchell, who had served as Solicitor General for four years under Calvin Coolidge and Attorney General for four years under Herbert Hoover, was selected to serve as General Counsel. Gerhard A. Gessel was named Mitchell's Chief Assistant Counsel, with Jewel M. Hannaford and John E. Mastin as Assistant Counsels. Barclay stated that the JCC should conduct its investigation without partisanship or favoritism. Such an investigation should look solely to the ascertainment of the cold, unvarnished, indisputable facts, so far as they are attainable. Senator David I. Walsh of Massachusetts had praised Barclay for having lifted this question above partisanship and made an appeal for what the country wants, a high-minded, clean, judicial investigation of all the facts connected with the Pearl Harbor disaster. Yet the Congressional Committee was soon embroiled in politics. The makeup of the committee, with six Democrats and four Republicans, was stacked in favor of the administration. The Republicans maintained that their access to government records was being restricted and that the Democratic majority was trying to curb, by strict party-line vote, the scope of the inquiry. No provision was made for a staff to assist the Republican members. The Democrats claimed the Republicans were anxious to use the inquiry to smear Roosevelt, while the Republicans implied the Democrats were trying to shield the Roosevelt administration. House Majority Leader John W. McCormick accused the committee minority of witch-hunting. This account of the congressional hearings is pretty much factual and nonpartisan. The events are presented more or less in the order in which the witnesses to them appeared before the committee. Some witnesses contradicted other witnesses, some even contradicted their own earlier testimony, and the recollections of others were often confused or hazy. Pressure may have been used to persuade some witnesses to change their stories. JCC committee members often encounter difficulty in obtaining access to information. Also, friends of the administration sometimes tried to sidetrack the probing into sensitive issues by disrupting the proceedings. Thus, a study of the hearings alone yields a rather disjointed picture. Only after trying to reconcile the various contradictions and confusions and arranging the events revealed chronologically, as has been done in the final chapter of this book, it is possible to recognize the roles played by the several principals involved in the Pearl Harbor disaster, their actions, inactions, their negligence, and dilatoriness. Questions that must be asked. As the hearings progressed, much time and energy was devoted to trying to find answers to four major questions. Number one, had top Washington officials, including the president, committed this country to war in support of the British and Dutch without first obtaining congressional approval as required by the Constitution? Number two, how much was known before the December 7, 1941 Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor about Japan's plans to go to war against the United States? Had Washington officials kept the field commanders adequately informed? Number three, was there pre-attack evidence to indicate a U.S. territory, possibly even Pearl Harbor, was a likely target of the Japanese? If so, were the Hawaiian commanders so advised? If not, why not? Number four, had the Pearl Harbor commanders made reasonably intelligent decisions given the information and resources available to them? Joint Congressional Committee Commences The committee opened its hearings on November 15. It was generally admitted that more intelligence was available in Washington than in Hawaii. Thus, any serious attempt to account for the tremendous losses at Pearl Harbor would have to start by exploring the information available in Washington before the attack and by determining how much of it had been sent to Hawaii. The JCC obtained at the start of its hearing the secret Japanese dispatches 
which U.S. cryptographers had intercepted, decoded, and translated before the attack. These messages, most of them transmitted on the Purple Code Machine, which U.S. cryptographers had replicated in August 1940, yielded valuable intelligence known as magic. Exhibit 1 consisted of diplomatic messages sent and received by the Japanese government and its foreign establishments, which had been intercepted, deciphered, and translated by U.S. cryptographers between July 1 and December 8, 1941. Exhibit 2 contained intercepted messages concerning military matters such as military installations, ship movements, espionage reports, etc., sent and received by the Japanese government and its foreign establishments in purple and other codes between December 2, 1940 and December 8, 1941. The magic information derived from these intercepts had been the basis of much pre-attack U.S. intelligence concerning the movements and intentions of the Japanese government. U.S. Ambassador Joseph C. Grew reports pre-attack situation in Tokyo. One of the first witnesses was Joseph C. Grew, U.S. Ambassador to Japan since 1932. After the attack, he had been held under house arrest until June 25, 1942, when he was repatriated by the Japanese government. Grew testified it was obvious that by November 3, the U.S. trade embargoes had not served to restrain the Japanese army from its expansion. They were going right ahead. In his view, the risk and danger of war was very great and increasing. Japan's totalitarian regime's propaganda was fostering anti-Americanism. And in Washington, the U.S.-Japanese negotiations were clearly deteriorating. Although Gru never gave up on hope, by early December it was apparent that war between Japan and the United States was expected. ONI and WPD Jurisdictional Dispute Disrupts Customary Intelligence Dissemination one goal of the committee in investigating the events and circumstances leading up to and following the attack was to determine what had been known by the top officials before the attack in Washington, where secret Japanese messages were regularly being intercepted, deciphered, and translated, and how much intelligence derived from these intercepts had been relayed before December 7 to the Pearl Harbor commanders. The situation was compounded by confusion over a jurisdictional dispute between the Office of Naval Intelligence, ONI, and the Navy's War Plans Division, WPD. When Kimmel took over the command of the Pacific Fleet in February 1941, he had asked CNO Stark to make sure that the responsibility for keeping him fully informed with pertinent reports on subjects that should be of interest to the fleet be clearly determined so that there will be no misunderstanding. Stark replied on March 22 that the Chief of the Office of Naval Intelligence, Captain Alan G. Kirk, was fully aware of ONI's responsibility in keeping you adequately informed. But the policy was changed. Admiral Richard K. Turner, Chief of the Navy's War Plans Division, had fought and won a battle with ONI for the exclusive right to prepare and disseminate to the fleet commanders information about potential enemy plans and operations, including intelligence obtained by intercepting and decoding Japan's most secret diplomatic messages. As Vice Admiral Theodore S. Wilkinson, who became ONI's director on October 15, 1941, explained to the JCC, ONI had been reduced by then for all practical purposes to a fact-gathering agency. It was no longer an analytical organization. The responsibility for analysis had been taken over theoretically by the Navy's War Plans Division. Stark told the JCC, ONI had to give the material all it had to war plans, but the final estimate which went into the war plan rested with war plans. Wilkinson testified that the official regulation specified that ONI evaluate the information collected and disseminate as advisable. Thus, ONI's responsibility for dissemination was qualified by the words as advisable. 
He and Turner clashed very definitely on that issue. This jurisdictional dispute left a crack in the traditional channel for disseminating information to the Navy commanders in the field. Maintaining the Secrecy of the Japanese Intercepts Wilkinson testified on his understanding concerning the importance of maintaining the secrecy of magic, the intelligence derived from the Japanese intercepts. He told the JCC that, Under orders from Admiral Stark, I was not authorized to send, to the field, information concerning secret diplomatic conversations, because of the general security attached to the code-breaking activities. I was not to put anything in my fortnightly summaries, anything derived from what was known as ultra or magic. The situation was further complicated by the fact that several top military officials in Washington believed, or at least they so testified, that Hawaii was intercepting and decoding the Japanese messages themselves, and thus had access to the information Washington officials were deriving from magic. General Miles, Military Intelligence, G2, told Clawson that he believed the Navy in Hawaii was decoding and translating Japanese diplomatic and consular messages, although he later told the JCC that General Short did not have decoding facilities. And Admiral Turner told the JCC that it was his belief at the time, and it was Admiral Stark's belief, that all of these major diplomatic messages, at least in the Pacific, were being decrypted by both Admiral Hart, Manila, and by Admiral Kimmel, Pearl Harbor. Turner said he did not know that Admiral Kimmel did not hold the code for those dispatches until I was so informed at the time of the Navy Court of Inquiry on Pearl Harbor. Although these top Washington officials testified that they believed Hawaii had access to the same information they had in Washington, their actions belied their words. They acted as if it was their responsibility to keep Hawaii advised. On November 27, both Army and Navy sent the Hawaiian commanders special dispatches based on magic intelligence then available in Washington. The radiogram to short read, Negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated. The dispatch to the Navy started out, this dispatch is to be considered a war warning. Army Chief of Staff Marshall said in his affidavit for Clawson that he understood Short was receiving some magic information through Army facilities on Oahu. But in the very next paragraph, he contradicted that understanding when he acknowledged that Short's Assistant Intelligence Officer, G2, Colonel George W. Bicknell, relied on Washington for information. And Marshall's urgent last-minute message on December 7 certainly indicated that he didn't believe his field commanders would have seen the 14-part magic Japanese reply to our November 26 ultimatum, or Tokyo's message instructing the Japanese ambassadors in Washington to make delivery of that reply at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time. At the time of the attack, General Miles, head of G2, the Army's Military Intelligence Division, acknowledged under questioning by the JCC that, there were no steps taken to distribute these intercepted and translated messages to General Short in Hawaii. That followed from the general policy laid down by the Chief of Staff that these messages and the fact of the existence of these messages or our ability to decode them should be confined to the least possible number of persons. No distribution should be made outside of Washington. Miles was generally supportive of the policy not to disseminate the magic intercepts to Hawaii and other U.S. outposts. However, he admitted that, the success of that Japanese attack had depended in very large measure on their catching the forces unalerted and therefore unprepared to meet that attack. Miles said he had not mentioned magic before the APHB in April 1944, when the war was still in progress, because under no condition would I have intimated in any way the existence of that secret without specific authority of the Secretary of War or the Chief of Staff. He did not want to give the impression that he had been gagged by the chief of staff into trying to cover anything up, 
He was only acting to protect this vital military secret that we were all guarding with the greatest of care. But by the time he gave his affidavit to Clausen, August 16, 1945, and before he testified at the JCC hearings, the situation had changed radically. The war with Japan was over, and the strictures against mentioning magic did not apply. Miles pointed out that much of the information available in Washington did not directly apply to the overseas departments unless and until it became more than information and entered the realms of an estimate of the situation, which called for military action on the part of those high commanders. And that was a function of the command, in other words, of the chief of staff himself. Miles realized, however, that the availability of intelligence in Washington, which was not accessible in the field, placed a higher degree of responsibility on Washington to see that the field commanders were adequately prepared, alerted, and instructed. Miles said the November 27 message sent over Marshall's signature had been designed to alert the Hawaiian Department. That was a command action. Miles thought Short had not recognized the significance of Marshall's signature. The mere fact that that message was signed by the chief of staff himself had a certain significance. The messages commonly go out on the signature of the adjutant general. By putting his name to that message, it carried to any military mind a much greater significance than had it been signed by anyone else. In Miles' opinion, Short's response to Marshall's warning that he had alerted for sabotage was a totally inadequate reply to the message it purported to reply to. However, Miles thought further warnings to Short, though desirable, would have been redundant. You do not have to tell a commanding general but once that a danger faces him. You may, however, see fit to give him further information as to the situation he faces. Pearl Harbor not mentioned in Washington's pre-attack documents. Washington officialdom had known for some time that a break in U.S.-Japanese relations was inevitable. We were thoroughly prepared, Miles testified, and had been for some days to receive an unfavorable reply to the message of November 26. He said he had a very strong impression that he first knew that the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply to the U.S. so-called ultimatum were in and were translated on the evening of December 6, certainly before he left for home that Saturday. He had called the Army courier, Colonel Bratton, who had satisfied me that the messages were being delivered or would be delivered early the next morning when the complete message was in. But Miles saw no reason that evening for alerting or waking up Marshall or Hull. JCC members Clark, Murphy, and Gerhardt called Miles' attention to the fact that the pre-attack evaluations issued by his own division had given no hint that an attack might be expected on Pearl Harbor. Miles responded, We had known for many years that all three of those outposts, Philippines, Panama, and Hawaii, would probably be subject to an attack in a Japanese war. That is why we had our forces on them and why the chief of staff warned them when he considered the time had arrived that hostile Japanese action was possible at any moment. Murphy was disturbed by the inference in Miles' testimony that he was probably the only person in Washington who expected the attack on Pearl Harbor. Time after time, Miles had said how obvious it was and how inherent it was in the situation. Yet Murphy said he had read Miles' report from cover to cover and had not seen it, Pearl Harbor mentioned once. Apparently, people at Hawaii did not think it was so obvious because they were taken by surprise and apparently the others in Washington did not think it was so obvious because they were taken by surprise. Gerhardt pointed out to Miles, there is plenty in all of this literature, and abundance, which points out the possibility of attack in the Philippines, in the Krau Peninsula, in Thailand and Indochina, everywhere except on these two very great fortresses at Singapore and Hawaii. If you have anything to the contrary, I would like to have you point it out. 
Why, even on the 27th, after Mr. Hull had handed his final statement to the Japanese, a letter was written by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in which they point out all of these other places as possible objectives of Jap attack, and Hawaii is not mentioned even then. Miles admitted that it was not until December 6 or December 7 that events finally centered his attention on the probable Japanese attack somewhere coincident with the delivery of the Japanese reply at 1 o'clock that day. The first 13 parts had told them only that the Japanese reply was unfavorable. The 14th part and the message instructing the Japanese ambassadors to deliver the reply at 1 p.m. were intercepted Sunday morning. When we got the 14th part and when we got the 1 p.m. message, we saw quite a different picture. The 1 p.m. message, he said, meant trouble somewhere against someone, but still not necessarily against the United States. However, we knew something at last, not where or against whom, but when. However, 1 o'clock, as we now know, meant about 7 o'clock, I think, in Hawaii. A likely time of attack on the islands. A likely time, not the only time for an attack. General Garrow, Army War Plans, offers to relieve Marshall of culpability for any failure to act. The JCC had planned to interrogate persons with background information about the intercepts before questioning top-level witnesses, including Marshall. However, President Truman had just appointed Marshall Ambassador to China and was anxious for him to leave promptly for his new post. But Lieutenant General Leonard T. Garrow was called the head of Marshall as, according to Committee Counsel Mitchell, he knew certain things that would be well to lay into the record. Garrow was a much-decorated war hero and he looked the part. Pre-Pearl Harbor, he had been the Army's Chief of War Plans. During the war, he had become commander of the Army 5th Corps, which had taken part in the D-Day landings going ashore in France on Omaha Beach. He had fought well for this country. Although not previously implicated in the Pearl Harbor disaster, Garrow was one of the top four Washington officials who had been criticized by the APHB. He was charged with having failed to keep short adequately informed, send a clear, concise directive on November 27, 1941, recognize short's sabotage alert as inadequate, and implement the existing joint Army-Navy plans. Garrow was asked about short's response to the Army dispatch of November 27, Number 472. That dispatch had been prepared by Stimson, Stark, and Garrow when Marshall was out of town, but had been sent out over Marshall's name, giving it the status of a command action. In view of the impending crisis, Garrow testified, it had been drafted primarily with the Philippines in mind, but essentially the same message was also sent to the other Pacific field commanders. It read in part, Negotiations with Japan appear to be terminated. Japanese future action unpredictable but hostile action possible at any moment. If hostilities cannot be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. This policy should not be construed as restricting you to a course of action that might jeopardize your defense. The radiogram went on to say that the commander should undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as he deemed necessary. All field commander addressees were asked to report measures taken. The version sent to Short had an added phrase cautioning him not to alarm civil population or disclose intent. In response, Short wired that he had ordered a sabotage alert. The details of his three possible alerts were a matter of record in Washington, so Short's sabotage alert gave notice to the War Department that he had bunched his planes and placed his ammunition where it was relatively inaccessible. He received no response from Washington to indicate whether his sabotage alert was or was not satisfactory. Stimson, who was responsible for sending the November 27 message over Marshall's signature, saw Short's answer, initialed it, and did nothing. Garrow also saw Short's reply, initialed it, and did nothing. As for Marshall, there was no clear evidence that he actually saw Short's reply. 
The file copy did not bear Marshall's initials. Short's reply had been stapled and circulated underneath a message from MacArthur, which Marshall did initial. Garrow admitted that a follow-up inquiry to clarify Short's response might have been desirable. It would probably have developed the fact that the commanding general in Hawaii was not at that time carrying out the directive in the message signed Marshall. Garrow volunteered to relieve Marshall of culpability. If there was any responsibility to be attached to the War Department for any failure to send an inquiry to General Short, the responsibility must rest on War Plans Division, and I accept that responsibility as Chief of War Plans Division. It was my responsibility to see that those messages were checked, and if an inquiry was necessary, the War Plans Division should have drafted such an inquiry and presented it to the Chief of Staff for approval. He was then asked about the Japanese pilot message, which had been available in Washington on the afternoon of December 6. The pilot message had announced that Japan's reply to the U.S. note of November 26 was en route. Garrow was also asked about the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply, which Bratton said he delivered to Garrow on December 6. Garrow said he had no clear recollection of where I was on the afternoon of the 6th. He thought he was at his office until 6 or 7 or 8 o'clock, and that he was at home in the evening after the dinner hour. In any event, if the War Plans office was closed, it should have been possible to reach him by telephone. Garrow's number was on record in the War Department, or he could have been reached through the duty officer who remained at his telephone and could inform him of any important messages that might be intended for me. If they had an important message to deliver to me, such as the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply, Garrow believed Colonel Bratton, who usually delivered those messages, would have telephoned me at home rather than going through the duty officer. Mitchell pursued the matter. Garrow told the committee that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, he had not received or learned of the 13-part message on the night of December 6. He did not recall having received the earlier pilot message either, and he was positive he had never seen that 14-part message or any part of it, or the 1 p.m. message, until he reached Marshall's office around 11.30 on the morning of the 7th. General George C. Marshall does not recall important December 6-7 through 7 events. Marshall was undoubtedly the most important witness the committee could summon. He had been deeply involved in all the pre-attack developments with the possible exception of the diplomatic face. He was the only surviving principal in the pre-Pearl Harbor drama still in good health and able to testify. Roosevelt and Knox were dead. All had retired right after FDR's election for a third term, and by the fall of 1944 was in poor health and too weak to face cross-examination by the Republican members of the committee. As for Stimson, the accumulated strain of five years in Washington had begun to affect his heart. He had resigned on his 78th birthday, September 21, 1945. But Marshall could not plead infirmities. There was no way he could avoid testifying. The members of the committee had many questions. They were anxious to learn what he could tell them, and they were anxious to learn what he would tell them. In questioning Marshall, the committee followed its usual procedure. Its counsel led off the Democratic members following one by one, then the Republican members. Marshall came before the JCC on December 6. All that first day, he was examined in a friendly manner by Mitchell. Many of the general's answers were evasive. There were things he could not recall, could not remember, could not recollect. When he had appeared before the NCI in September 1944, he had not been able to recall the intercept fixing November 25, 1941, as the deadline for the Japanese ambassadors to reach a favorable conclusion in their negotiations. However, when Mitchell asked Marshall if he remembered seeing any of those messages in which the Japs instructed their ambassadors here to get an affirmative agreement, first by the 25th of November, and later at least by the 29th, 
Marshall replied, his memory refreshed perhaps by Clark's inquiry, which had been instigated by Marshall. I remember that very well, sir. The next day, Mitchell asked Marshall if he remembered his movements on the evening of December 6. Marshall said he could only account for them by sort of circumstantial evidence. He enumerated a number of places where he was not. After referring to Mrs. Marshall's engagement book, he concluded, the probability is we were home. Mitchell asked, you are sure you were not at the White House that evening? Marshall replied, no, sir, not at all. What did that mean? That he wasn't at the White House or that he wasn't sure he was not at the White House? The general was supposed to have had a duty officer at his office and an orderly at his home who knew where he was at all times. None of his duty officers or orderlies were called to testify. Mitchell asked Marshall when he first knew about the 14-part Japanese message and the 1 p.m. message and under what circumstances. He did not answer directly. I first was aware of this message when I reached the office on the morning of Sunday, December the 7th. On that particular morning, I presumably had my breakfast at about 8, and following the routine that I had carried out on previous Sundays, I went riding at some time thereafter. However, he said that on further consideration and discussion with others, he had come to the conclusion, purely by induction and not by definite memory, that that morning he must have gone out riding later than 8 o'clock, just what time I do not know, but between 8 o'clock and the time I went to the War Department, I ate my breakfast. I probably looked at the Sunday papers and I went for a ride. Marshall then discussed the average length of his rides, about 50 minutes, because I rode at a pretty lively gait, at a trot and a canter, and at a full run down the experimental farm where the Pentagon now is and returned to the house, so I would say that the high probability is that the ride was an hour or less, generally or certainly not longer. This entire testimony related to what Marshall presumably, probably, generally did on a Sunday morning, not what he actually did on that specific Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. Marshall continued in the same vein, saying nothing about the Japanese intercepts he had been asked about. On this particular Sunday morning, Bratton had been trying to locate Marshall since 9 or 9.15 a.m. with the 14th part of Japan's reply and the 1 p.m. message. When he called Marshall's home, an orderly told him Marshall was out riding. Bratton asked the orderly to locate Marshall and have him contact Bratton as promptly as possible. According to Bratton, Marshall called back sometime after 10 o'clock. Marshall's recollection was that he was either in the shower or getting in the shower when he had heard that Bratton was trying to reach him with something important. Marshall said Bratton wanted to come out to Fort Myer, but Marshall sent word that he was going into his office and Bratton should meet him there. Marshall then finished his shower, dressed, and left for the War Department. He said his average time of taking a shower and dressing would be about 10 minutes, possibly less. He had no recollection as to what time I arrived at the War Department. That would be a matter of conjecture. Anyway, Marshall continued, shortly thereafter, if not immediately then, I was at the War Department because it was a very quick drive and on Sunday there was no traffic. It was a matter of about seven minutes from my house to the munitions building. Using his own estimate, allowing ten minutes for his shower and dressing and seven minutes for the drive, he should have been able to reach his office twenty or thirty minutes after he spoke with Bratton at 10 a.m. But according to Bratton, who had been waiting for Marshall in the secretary's anteroom, Marshall didn't arrive until 11.25 a.m. When Marshall arrived, Bratton immediately walked in with his papers. Marshall started reading the 14-part Japanese reply, portions of which Marshall read through twice. He told the committee, when I reached the end of the document, the next sheet was the one o'clock message of December 7. This was indicative to Marshall and to all the others who came into the room of some very definite action at one o'clock, because that one o'clock was Sunday and was in Washington, 
and involved the Secretary of State. Taken together, all these factors were rather unusual. Marshall's account of his response to the messages was similar to those of Bratton and Garrow, both of whom had testified on the basis of memoranda prepared shortly after the attack. Marshall told of contacting Stark and of dispatching the last-minute warning to the field commanders in the Pacific, giving first priority to the Philippines and Panama. After Bratton had taken Marshall's dispatch to the message center and returned, Marshall sent him back with Colonel Bundy, the officer in charge of the immediate details of all Pacific affairs, to ask when the messages would be delivered. They came back with estimates of the delivery times in various parts of the world. The next information Marshall received was the notification of the actual attack on Pearl Harbor. He said he could not recall whether I was at the War Department or at the House. He said General Dean, acting secretary of the general staff at that time, had told him that he had returned to his home, but his orderly said he was at the War Department. Most astonishing, the Army's chief of staff, who was directly concerned with the defense of the country and the protection of the fleet when in harbor, who had just fired off an urgent message to the field commanders, who had been concerned about the likely time when messages would be delivered, didn't know where he was when he heard the news of the attack. And yet, that Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor so shocked the rest of the country that almost everybody remembers vividly precisely where they were when they heard the news. Marshall said information about the attack then came in in fuller detail, and telephone communication was established. He talked on the phone with Short's Chief of Staff, Colonel Phillips. General Short had gone to his command post and therefore was not able to talk to me directly. Marshall volunteered. You could hear the explosions at the time. JCC Council asks Marshall about his command structure. Did you have your staff organized at that time so that if an especially significant or important intercept was made of a Jap message, was there anyone on duty who had authority, if they were unable to reach you, to send a warning message out? Marshall said he didn't think there was a setup for that special purpose. The War Department had an arrangement there whereby the officer on the receiving end knew where the principal people were, where to reach them. In his own case, Marshall said that during that period and for about a year thereafter, he always maintained an orderly at the house at the telephone. If I left the house to go to a moving picture, which was about the only place I went, the orderly was there and knew where to reach me. Mitchell then asked him, if they had not been able to reach you on the morning of the 7th or at any time when an important message came in, was there anybody but yourself that had authority to send a warning message to the outlying posts? Yes, Marshall said. The authority was vested, for instance, in the Deputy Chief of Staff, Major General William Bryden, or even the head of War Plans Division, Garrow. According to Army Regulations Number 10-15, updated to December 7, 1941, however, this was not the precise situation. The deputy chief of staff was the only officer who had the authority to act for the chief of staff in his absence. Orders could be sent to Short in Pearl Harbor by Roosevelt, Marshall, or Marshall's deputy. Neither Stimson nor Garrow was in the line of command. That was why they had chosen to send the November 27 war warning over Marshall's name. Later, in answer to a question from Senator Ferguson, Marshall said that Garrow did not normally have any right to issue orders to Short on a command basis. In peacetime, it would have required quite an assumption of authority on his part to do that without some confirmation from a senior officer. However, Marshall said, the President, the Secretary of War, and myself, and in my absence the Deputy, had authority to order into effect a war plan, rainbow, or any other orders. In any event, apparently no arrangement was in place for anyone to act in Marshall's stead on that fateful morning of December 7, 1941, when he was unavailable. 
and the orderly supposedly on duty at his home failed to reach him promptly. Marshall interrogated about December 7 events. Mitchell asked Marshall, did you have any talk on the morning of the 7th with Secretary Stimson before the news of the attack came in? Marshall didn't recall talking with Stimson that morning, but not recall seeing him before lunch, although he knew Stimson was at the State Department that morning. A little later, Mitchell asked, do you remember whether you had been told or telephoned or informed in any way on the evening of the 6th, late in the evening, that any arrangement had been made for a meeting between Secretary Stimson and Mr. Hull on the next morning? Marshall had no such recollection. Then how did Marshall know Stimson was at the State Department on the morning of December 7? The meeting of Stimson and Knox with Hull at the State Department had been arranged Saturday night after the three secretaries were informed of the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply. Yet Marshall denied that he had been informed in any way on the evening of the 6th of the plan for that meeting. And if he knew of that meeting, why did he not also know about the 13-part Japanese reply that had sparked it? Marshall testified consistently that he first saw those 13 parts together with the 14th part only after he arrived at his office in the War Department at about 11.30 on the morning of December 7. JCC member Cooper asked Marshall if, in the weeks before the attack, he had been kept fully advised as to diplomatic developments. Marshall said, so far as Mr. Hull personally was concerned, he had been. Marshall had a very distinct recollection of Hull saying, with considerable emphasis in those last days apropos of his discussions with the Japanese envoys, these fellows mean to fight and you will have to watch out. Marshall said he had expected that the first Japanese attack on the United States would occur in the Philippines. He thought they would go directly south towards Singapore, that that would be the main campaign, and the Philippines, of course, would become involved in it. And he assumed that Guam and Wake would fall almost immediately. He felt that if the Japanese became engaged in hostilities directed toward the Malay Peninsula, that our situation demanded that we take action to defend our position. That, however, was my opinion, and that would have to be determined by governmental action. As the usual time for a German on Friday afternoon approached, the fifth of the sixth Democratic Committee members was just starting his questioning. Murphy states, Had you any warning, General, or any reason to expect on the night of December 6, or on the early morning of December 7, that there was any special urgency requiring you to be at the War Department earlier than the hour you did arrive there on the morning of December 7? Marshall replies, I had no such conception or information. By this time, Marshall had been on the witness stand for two full days, and the Republicans had not begun to question him. The committee regularly held Saturday meetings, so it recessed until 10 the next morning. Marshall's interrogation continued. When the hearing resumed on Saturday morning, the Republicans began questioning Marshall. Determined to find out if he could explain some of the mysteries surrounding the Japanese attack, they refused to yield to democratic pressure to curtail their interrogation. Gerhardt began. He told Marshall that Garrow had accepted full responsibility for not having acted on the inadequacy, as he called it, of Short's November 27 report that he had alerted for sabotage. Marshall had not been in the room when Garrow testified, but, he said, he admires very much his attitude. When Gerhardt asked Marshall why he had not taken exception to Short's reply, the general could only say, that was my opportunity to intervene and have a further checkmate, and I did not take it. Just why, I do not know. Short had been issued a command, Marshall said, and directed to do something. Once you issue an order, amendments, or you might say, codicils, are a very dangerous business when it is an operational order.
If possible, you must avoid confusing the commander with a mass of data. Gerhardt writes to Marshall the several so-called bomb plot messages concerning the location of ships in Pearl Harbor, which had been received, decoded, and translated in Washington prior to the attack. Wasn't it quite apparent from the reading of those messages that were received, decoded and placed on your desk, read or not read, that many messages directing the attention of our military and naval authorities to Hawaii had been received? Marshall had no recollection of having read any of those messages until preparing for the JCC hearings. Marshall also defended himself against the APHB's several charges. Number one, in response to the charge that he had failed to keep the commanding general of the Hawaiian Department fully advised, Marshall insisted he had given Short the information he needed, as a responsible commander, to be prepared for the possibility or probability of war. The mass of data that poured into Washington, he said, would merely impose an additional burden. It was a matter of judgment how much additional information should have gone to him. Marshall thought only the December 7 message of 1 p.m. applied, although he admitted offhand that the messages you just read, the ships and harbor bomb plot messages, would have been helpful to General Short, but particularly more so to Admiral Kimmel. Number two, in response to the charge that he should have gotten in touch with Short on the evening of December 6, when the critical information indicating an almost immediate break with Japan had come in, Marshall testified that he did not believe it had any specific bearing one way or the other on General Short's situation and responsibility. Moreover, he reiterated that he knew nothing of the 13th part message whatsoever until his arrival in the War Department on the morning of December 7. He presumed it was not thought necessary to bring that to my immediate attention because the first to the 13th part did not include the critical statements. Number three, in response to the charge that he had failed to investigate and determine Short's state of readiness between November 27 and December 7, he denied that they had in Washington any intimation that that Hawaiian command was not ready. As a matter of fact, he had no reason to believe that that command was anything other than highly efficient and alert. At mid-morning Saturday, when Gearhart finished his questioning, Ferguson took over. As chief of the privately paid minority staff, I was at his elbow as usual with a collection of documents and a host of important questions to be asked. Ferguson persisted in his questioning until Marshall had to admit it was his responsibility, not Garrow's, to see that Short was adequately alerted. Ferguson's pointed questioning lasted the rest of the day. Marshall finally had to admit that he was the only Army officer with authority over Short, that Garrow had no authority under Army regulations for sending an alert to Short, that no responsible Army officer was on duty Saturday evening, December 6, or Sunday morning, December 7, who could take action before Marshall's belated arrival at his office that morning, that the shortage of manpower in deciphering Japanese codes was not due to lack of congressional appropriations, that we had been trying to keep secret the fact that Great Britain was informed of what we were reading in the Japanese codes before the attack, that he, Marshall, was not aware that the sending of diplomatic intelligence to Kimmel was discontinued sometime in August 1941, that Marshall denied knowing that the Japanese had learned we were reading their codes, that portions of the Roberts Report were withdrawn before it was made public, that the United States initiated the Anglo-Dutch-American Agreement, that he, Stimson, and Knox had approved the agreement, that it went into general effect before the attack, because it involved the policy of the main fight in the Atlantic and the defensive principle in the Pacific, and that prior to December 1941, officers of the United States were furnished to China for combat duty against Japan. Marshall also admitted that he thought, 
the Japanese were engaged in a campaign southward from the China Sea. We had in mind the possibility of an effort on the Panama Canal. We had in mind the possibility of an effort to strike a blow at our air plants in Seattle, at our air plants in San Diego, and we had in mind the possibility of a blow in the Central Pacific in the Hawaiian District. We thought the latter was the most improbable. We thought it, Hawaii, was impregnable against a Japanese landing expedition. Although he had known from Admiral Richardson that the fleet would have to be built up and properly supplied before going out to sea, he didn't think anyone had ever told him prior to December 7 that the United States fleet in the Pacific Ocean was not able to take care of itself in the event of an attack. Ferguson continued to question Marshall when the committee reassembled on Monday. He questioned him all that day and Tuesday morning also. He asked Marshall about the pilot message which had been received in Washington on December 6 and how he accounted for its not being delivered to him that day. Marshall didn't answer directly. He digressed about the first 13 parts and admitted he had been in Washington that entire day. He said there was someone on duty in the office of the chief of staff. There was someone on duty in the office of the war plans division. There was someone on duty in the office of G2, who presumably could have received this particular message and acted. Finally, however, as Ferguson pressed him, he stated, the point is I did not receive the pilot message that day. When the afternoon session opened, the chairman announced that Marshall had been called to the White House for a conference with President Truman about his mission to China. Marshall left the hearing room at 3 o'clock. Hearings interrupted. A stranger at the committee table? General Miles returned briefly to the witness stand, and Senator Ferguson, a Republican, continued the questioning. Senator Lucas, a Democrat, interrupted. A moment ago, when I merely suggested to Senator Ferguson that he let General Miles answer the question, the gentleman on Senator Ferguson's right got a hearty chuckle out of it. I would like to know just who the gentleman is and what right he has to sit alongside of the committee table and chuckle at a member of the United States Senate. I do not propose to sit around this table and permit some individual that I do not know anything about, who is constantly in this case and constantly reminding senators of the type and kind of questions they should ask, to give a hearty chuckle to something I might suggest in connection with this hearing. Ferguson spoke up. His name is Percy Greaves. He is with Senator Brewster and has charge of Senator Brewster's files in this case. Senator Brewster was out of town on this particular day attending his father's funeral. Ferguson had shifted into Brewster's seat, and I have moved with my papers and documents from my usual place behind the committee table to a seat next to Ferguson at the committee table. Senator Lucas had known Marshall well when he had been judge advocate of the Illinois National Guard in the 1930s, and Marshall had been special instructor of the National Guard. The Democrat committee members had been disturbed for some time by the sharp and persistent interrogation of administration witnesses, and Lucas was especially upset by the pointed questioning of Marshall. Senator Lucas states, Wasn't he, Greaves, the Republican National Committee research man in the campaign of 1944? Mr. Greaves replies, I was with the Republican National Committee up until the end of last year, 1944. Senator Lucas, This is a nonpartisan hearing. Chairman Barclay replies, in view of that information, would it be out of place to inquire who has compensated Mr. Greaves for the services he has rendered to Senator Brewster or Senator Ferguson? Ferguson replies, he is not rendering any services for me. Lucas replies, not much. Barclay states, he had been sitting by the senator from Michigan, Ferguson, during these whole hearings and apparently prompting the senator in the interrogatories he had addressed to the witnesses. Maybe that is not a service to the senator from Michigan and the senator will have to be the judge of that but it has been a matter of common observation that that has transpired ever since we began the hearing. 
Barclay said he did not object personally. He didn't care how many assistants any member of this committee may have or desire or need. But he thought it was not out of place that the committee know who it is who is compensating anybody who is assisting any senator and that the public would be interested in knowing whether there is any partisan compensation being paid to anybody who is employed by a member of this committee. Ferguson said that Barclay would have to talk with Brewster about that. At the close of the session, reporters crowded around. The Washington Times-Herald story headlined, Spy Identified at Pearl Harbor Probe, had a four-column photo of me seated at the committee table next to Ferguson with Senators Lucas and George in the background. New York's PM referred to me as the mysterious sixth senator, whose incognito is punctured when he chuckles out of turn. There were some lifted eyebrows at his presence at the committee table, but his general busyness and the impressive aspect of the documents he lugged to and from the sessions gave him status as some sort of functionary. The next day, PM described a dispute between Ferguson and Barkley. It seems idea was to get GOP's greaves out of the headlines. When Brewster returned to Capitol Hill a few days later, he told the committee that my position was not a matter about which there need be any mystery. He had announced my appointment at a press conference in his office some weeks ago. My duties consisted of reading and analyzing the voluminous documents, files, and exhibits presented to the committee and searching the record for leads to persons who might be called as witnesses. Each evening, I studied the background of scheduled witnesses and the materials pertinent to the next day's hearings. Then, each morning before the hearing started, I briefed the minority members, suggesting possible lines of inquiry. Brewster said he was sorry that the committee hadn't found it practicable to allow the minority some assistance, so he had secured Mr. Greaves. I was Brewster's assistant and was being paid by him. Brewster wanted to make it clear that I had not had for many months any connection whatsoever with the Republican National Committee. He considered me a very competent man. He is my assistant. I hope he may continue. Neither he nor I wanted to do anything which would in any way impair the proper conduct of this very important investigation. In a memorandum to Brewster, I apologized to the committee members. I stated that I had great respect for members of both houses of Congress and had not intended to insult or reflect on any members of the United States Senate by thought, word, or action. I thought Lucas had misconstrued an unconscious and silent smile that went unnoticed by anyone else. I also said I was a registered Republican but received no compensation from Republican Party sources and had not for many months before entering Brewster's service. I assured Brewster that my activities for him had not been of a partisan or a political nature. The incident, a one-day media sensation, disrupted the hearings only slightly. It was soon forgotten, and I resumed my seat behind, not at, the committee table. The investigation continued. Barclay releases top-secret APHB report. On the morning of December 12, Washington was greeted by a story in the Washington Times-Herald based on the top-secret Army Pearl Harbor Board report. Barclay had released it to reporters the evening before, and they had pounced on its revelations. The Times-Herald story read, Heretofore, top-secret Army documents on the Pearl Harbor disaster revealed that Army and Navy witnesses testified that Japanese war plans were known four days before the Hawaiian attack, but that witnesses later changed their testimony. A cartoon by C.D. Batchelor published in the same issue portrayed Japanese Minister Tojo in the garb of a town crier marching through the streets of Washington with a sandwich board reading, We are going to attack early in December. Please don't tell Kimmel in short. Signed, Tojo. Below the cartoon, the words, they didn't. The top-secret documents that Barclay gave the press introduced to the public still more evidence of warnings received in Washington in advance of the Japanese attack. 
the deadlines the Japanese had fixed for serious negotiations with the United States to end. A December 3 intercept reporting that the Japanese were destroying their codes and code machines, and the U.S. Navy's interception on December 4 of the Japanese wins execute, indicating war with England, war with America, peace with Russia. Marshall is asked about Wynn's code mentioned in APHB report. Marshall returned to the hearings after meeting with Truman. His questioning continued with Representative Keefe, a tall man with broad shoulders, a lawyer with a deep voice when he wanted to use it. He interrogated Marshall vigorously, introducing into the record a great deal of information previously missed. He did not let the general evade responsibility for the failure to respond to Short's inadequate sabotage alert or for his unexplained unavailability during the evening of December 6 and the early morning hours of December 7. When Marshall took the witness seat on Thursday, December 13, Senator Lucas asked about the WINS code, which had been mentioned in the APHB documents just released. Had Marshall ever seen any message implementing this WINS code message? Marshall replied, not to my knowledge. Finally at noon, after each member had another chance to question him, the committee finished its interrogation of Marshall, released him, and he was free to fly to Chongqing. General Miles recalls the pilot message. General Marshall does not. After Marshall had completed his testimony, Miles took the stand once more. Ferguson again asked him about the pilot message, Japan's announcement that her response to the U.S. ultimatum was en route. This time, Miles replied that, to the best of my knowledge and belief, it was in the Sunday afternoon locked pouch among several other messages, which you will find here translated on that day, and that it did go to General Marshall. He does not remember seeing it. That was as far as Miles would go toward contradicting Marshall. Pearl Harbor hearings, scheduled to last four weeks, to be extended with new counsel and staff. The Congressional Committee had begun its hearings November 15th. General Counsel Mitchell and his chief assistant, Gessel, had expected to do most of the selection and questioning of witnesses, with the committee members observing and asking only occasional questions. However, public interest in the investigation was intense, and the members discovered many points to probe. The Republican members especially, Mitchell said, had engaged in extensive examination far beyond what the legal staff anticipated. Mitchell reminded the committee on December 14 that it has been sitting regularly for a month, including all Saturdays but one. During that period, only eight witnesses have been completely examined. There remain at least 60 witnesses to be examined. Many of these witnesses are quite as crucial as those who have testified. At the rate of progress during the past month, it seems certain that several more months of hearings will be required. The joint resolution of the Congress under which the committee is acting requires a final report of the committee to be made, not later than January 3, 1946. Since the start of the hearing, it has become increasingly apparent that some members of the committee have a different view than that entertained by counsel, either as to the scope of the inquiry or as to what is pertinent evidence. As a result, the hearings had been prolonged. Therefore, it was necessary for Mitchell to ask the committee to arrange for other counsel to carry on. Congress granted the committee an extension. While the committee searched for replacements for Mitchell and his staff, the hearings continued with testimony from several more top military officials. General Garrow, Army War Plans, discusses Short's sabotage alert and December 6-7 through 7 events. General Garrow maintained his November 27 dispatch had given Short sufficient warning and that Short's reply, Report Department Alerted to Prevent Sabotage, Liaison with Navy, could have been taken to mean that he was alerted to prevent sabotage and also prepared to conduct reconnaissance and other defensive missions. It could even have been interpreted as meaning that the commanding general, Hawaiian Department, 
had prepared for an attack of the kind that was actually made. Hence, no follow-up had been considered. Senator Ferguson, a relentless examiner, quoted from the Staff Officer's Field Manual. The responsibilities of the commander and his staff do not end with the issue of the necessary orders. They must ensure receipt of the orders by the proper commanders, make certain they are understood, and enforce their effective execution. He asked Garrow if Short, after having reported the measures taken and not having heard anything for the number of days between the 28th and the 7th, wouldn't have had a right to rely upon the fact that he had understood his order and that he had properly interpreted the order of the 27th. Garrow replied, I think that is correct. Garrow volunteered a description of his responsibility as Chief of War Plans. It had been to prepare action, not information, messages and submit them to the Chief of Staff and the Secretary of War for their approval. In any emergency, if the Chief of Staff was not there, I would assume the responsibility for sending them and accept the consequences if I made a mistake. Ferguson also questioned Garrow about crucial December 1941 messages. Garrow reaffirmed his statements to Lieutenant Colonel Clausen. He recalled neither Bratton's recommendation that additional warnings be sent the overseas commanders because Japanese diplomats had been told to destroy their codes and code machines, nor Sadler's telling him on December 5 that a WINS code execute had been received, and he denied receiving the pilot message and the first 13 parts of Japan's reply on December 6. He didn't see them until December 7 at 11.30 in the Chief of Staff's office. Admiral Turner, Navy War Plans, U.S. Defense Encompasses Defense of U.K. Against Japan and Germany Admiral Turner, the 1941 Chief of the Navy's War Plans Section, first came before the JCC on December 19. He was flamboyant, something of a braggadocio, with a reputation for liking more liquor than was good for him. He had boasted before the Navy Court of Inquiry that he had expressed the opinion previously that the July 1941 freezing of Japanese assets in the United States would very definitely bring on war with Japan. He had expected they, the Japanese, would make some sort of an attack on Hawaii. He told the JCC he had considered a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor not simply a possibility, but probable. The attack, he said, had come as no surprise to him. When stationed in Japan in 1939, Turner testified, he knew the Japanese naval attaché. Both men had come to Washington at about the same time. After Japanese Ambassador Nomura arrived in Washington in February 1941, the naval attaché arranged for Turner to meet Nomura about March 1st. Turner wrote a memorandum to CNO Stark about that meeting, saying he thought he should continue the talks. They met several more times. On July 21, 1941, Turner told the ambassador, Nomura, that I believe that Congress would declare war if they, the Japanese, attacked either the Dutch or the British in Malaya. According to Turner's memorandum of that meeting, Turner had pointed out to Nomura that it is decidedly against the military interests of the United States to permit the United Kingdom to be overcome by Germany. For this reason, any action which the United States could take against Germany is necessarily one of self-defense and would never be considered an aggression. Furthermore, anything that affects the future security of the United Kingdom in any part of the world also is of interest to the United States from the defensive viewpoint. Turner was unequivocal. Any U.S. action against Germany would be self-defense and would never be considered aggression. The future security of the United States and that of the United Kingdom were inextricably allied from the defensive viewpoint. Roosevelt, Hull, and Stark were all sent copies of Turner's memorandum of that meeting. Turner told the JCC he received no indication from any of them that they disagreed or disapproved of what he had written. 
When asked about the December 6th Japanese intercepts, Turner recalled seeing the pilot message in the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply, sometime just preceding the 7th, some night, and I now believe it to have been the night of December 6th, about 11.30 p.m. He said an officer came to his house, he had been in bed but went down and read a long dispatch in several parts, which he believed was the dispatch in question. When asked to whom the officer had shown these papers, the officer replied, Admiral Wilkinson, Admiral Ingersoll, and Secretary Knox. Thus, assured that the responsible Navy officials had been advised, Turner did nothing more about it. He did not recall seeing the 14th part until after the attack. At about 10.30 on Sunday morning, December 7, Stark phoned Turner at his home asking him to come to the office. Once there, Stark asked him to draft a reply to Hart's inquiry concerning Creighton's report that the United States had promised armed support to the British and Dutch in the Far East. Turner had been working on that when Stark summoned him at about 12 or 12.15 and showed him the 1 p.m. message. Stark told Turner that Marshall had notified the Army field commanders of that message, telling them to inform the naval authorities. Admiral Stark on Joint U.S.-British War Plan and Morning of December 7 Admiral Harold R. Stark, Chief of Naval Operations at the time of the attack, was second in line of command to the President in protecting the United States and its Navy. Stark had become CNO on August 1, 1939, just one month before Hitler's forces marched into Poland, launching what became World War II. Stark was known to his associates as Betty, his nickname from Annapolis days. He was genial, polite, soft-spoken, not blunt or brusque like Admiral Richardson, who had stood up boldly to FDR. But Stark was no milk toast either. On occasion, he would tell FDR frankly what he thought, as he had, for instance, when opposing the destroyer deal. Stark appeared before the JCC on December 31, 1945. He opened his testimony by reading a statement containing substantial quotations from reports and letters to his field commanders during his term of office. When he assumed office, Stark realized U.S. naval forces were weak, so he had immediately set about trying to obtain more ships, planes, weapons, and men. Navy budget requests were first made to the Bureau of the Budget, which makes recommendations from which the President's budget is prepared and submitted to Congress. Stark had appeared before congressional committees to request authorization and funds, pointing out the increasing demands for men and material for the Atlantic Theater. He had found Congress cooperative over the fiscal years 1934-41. Inclusive, those figures show that the Congress exceeded the presidential budget estimate in the matter of appropriations. Stark also told of his struggle with the president in seeking approval for expanding the naval force. He had pleaded with FDR on behalf of the Pacific Fleet. It should at least at first remain strong until we see what Japan is going to do. Stark testified that as CNO he had developed war plans, Rainbow Number no. 3, for governing naval operations in case of war with Japan, Germany, and Italy, and then Rainbow Number no. 5, which he had helped to develop with the Army. Rainbow No. 5 was a joint basic war plan based on understandings with the British and Canadians in ABC 1, January 29 through March 27, 1941. Stark said his duties included keeping the fleet commanders in Atlantic, Pacific, and Asiatic waters informed of significant developments in political and military matters of concern to them. On April 3, 1941, Stark wrote Kimmel about the joint U.S.-British war plan that had been drawn up and on which basic war plan Rainbow No. 5 had been based. Both he and Marshall had approved this war plan. Stark had discussed it at length with Roosevelt and read to him his April 3 letter to Kimmel setting forth the plan's provisions and had received his, FDR's, general assent. And, at an appropriate time, the plan is expected to receive the official approval of the president.
According to Rainbow No. 5, WPL-46, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was to support the forces of the associated powers in the Far East by diverting enemy strength away from the Malay barrier through the denial and capture of positions in the Marshals and through raids on enemy sea communications and positions. On April 4, Stark reaffirmed to Kimmel FDR's approval of the U.S.-Great Britain Agreement for Joint Military Action. Stark's prepared statement to the committee read in part, Based on the understandings arrived at in ABC-1, the Army and Navy developed a joint basic war plan known as Rainbow No. 5, which was approved by the Secretaries of War and the Navy. Stark continued, You will note that I have crossed out the words, and by the President. That is the only change made in this statement. When Senator Ferguson asked why he had deleted those four words, Stark explained that he had no documentary proof of it. I do know the President, except officially approved of it although it shows he was not willing to do it officially until we got into the war. Nevertheless, I sent that plan out on April 3. I told Kimmel and told Tommy, Admiral Hart, that I had read to the President my official letter of April 3 and that the President had approved it and knew I was sending it out. Therefore, I think it is safe to say that the President certainly approved of it. In other words, FDR had approved an agreement well before the war started, to help the British and Dutch militarily in Southeast Asia in the event of Japanese aggression, even if the Japanese had not actually attacked the United States itself. Quoting Kimmel's June 30, 1941 report, Stark said he realized the defense forces at Pearl Harbor were inadequate to provide for the safety of the fleet in harbor. They had been further weakened in mid-1941, as had been contemplated in the Navy Basic War Plan, WPL-46 when some of the fleet's ships were transferred to the Atlantic to be used in taking the Azores. Although that plan was never carried out, the ships remained in the Atlantic and were not returned to Hawaii. Then, just before the attack, the strength of the fleet was again reduced when 50 pursuit planes were transferred, 25 each, to Wake and Midway. On November 27, the day after Hull presented the United States' note to the Japanese ambassadors, the Navy had sent the three fleet commanders, Hart, Kimmel, and King, a war warning. Japan was expected within the next few days to launch an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines, Thai, or Krau Peninsula, or possibly Borneo. Stark testified that he had worked for hours on this message, particularly the war warning which was all out. He thought it would convey what I intended it should convey. I thought it was very plain and it flew all the danger signals. Stark had cleared the message personally with the Secretary of the Navy, and he had either told the President beforehand or immediately after. Stark did know that within 24 hours, if not before, it had his full approval and that he gave us an okay. Also, on November 27, the Army sent warnings to MacArthur in the Philippines and short. According to Stark, the outstanding things in the Army message was that war might come at any moment. The message directed short to make a reconnaissance and I had directed Kimmel to make a defensive deployment. Stark felt the two warnings hooked up together. While questioning Stark, Representative Keefe said he had heard him say repeatedly that he did not expect an attack at Pearl Harbor. You were surprised. The president was surprised. General Marshall was surprised. You were all surprised. And yet you expected Kimmel with less information than you had of the situation, even conceding this order which was given on the war warning, to be prepared against an attack which none of you thought would take place. Keefe found it difficult to reconcile those two positions. Stark admitted he had not expected an attack on Pearl Harbor, although we all recognized it to be a possibility. He had sent to Kimmel for action a war warning signal containing a directive and containing what information we had. It had directed Kimmel to make a defensive deployment. 
Stark had thought that with such a warning, the fleet would be put on a war footing out there so far as any surprise was concerned. Stark's responsibility included keeping the fleet commanders informed and assuring the safety of the Navy. Yet under questioning, Stark admitted to having no recollection of having seen the Japanese Pearl Harbor bomb plot or ships in harbor messages. And he denied having heard that a wind's execute was received before the attack. Moreover, he said he had not known until the morning of December 7 about the pilot message, which had been received in Washington the afternoon of December 6. And Stark said he had not learned until the morning of December 7 of the first 13 parts of the 14-part Japanese reply, which had been intercepted and decoded the previous afternoon and evening. He did not remember when he had received the complete 14-part reply. He maintained only that he first saw it after I got in the office, on the morning of December 7, just what time he could not recall. Stark said he believed he was at home the evening of the 6th. If he was out, a servant, if not a duty officer, was on hand to take messages. He did not think anyone had called him. He also maintained that he had gone as usual to his office that Sunday morning. I usually got down to the office Sunday mornings around 10.30, and I just assumed that I had gotten there somewhere around 10.30 or 11. I was lazy on Sunday mornings unless there was some special reason for getting up early. I usually took a walk around the grounds and greenhouses at the Chief of Naval Operations Quarters and didn't hurry about getting down, and my usual time, as I recall, was about 10.30 or 11. What time it was on this particular Sunday morning, I couldn't go beyond that. This testimony contradicted other witnesses, and Stark knew it. Wilkinson was one who testified that Stark was in his office considerably earlier than 10.30, about 9.15. He said, when he arrived with Part 14 of the Japanese reply. After delivering that message, Wilkinson said he left, only to return at 10.30 or 10.40 with a 1 p.m. message. Stark did not remember the delivery of the 1 p.m. message and had no recollection as to when he received it. My remembrance, as I said, was 10.40. When you say, at least 10.30, I think you will find testimony to that effect by a witness, and if he states that, and I think he probably has good supporting data, I accept it, that it was delivered to my office, and then after that was given by whomever he gave it to me. Captain Arthur H. McCollum also said Stark must have arrived in his office considerably earlier than usual that Sunday morning. McCollum said he and Wilkinson had gone together to Stark's office when they learned that he had arrived in the Navy Department, probably about 9 or 9.15. Stark was alone when McCollum and Wilkinson entered, but according to McCollum, various other officers soon arrived, Ingersoll, Brainerd, Noyes, Turner, and possibly Shoreman. McCollum said there was considerable going in and out at that time. JCC Chief Assistant Counsel Gessel commented that one witness had said there were 15 officers in there. Stark's office was apparently a busy place that Sunday morning. Stark's acknowledged recollection of that Sunday morning began only with his talk at 11.30 a.m. with Marshall about the 1 p.m. message and the decision to send a last-minute message to the field commanders. However, Stark was certain nobody mentioned Honolulu with reference to a daylight attack. He was positive of that. He was questioned about the 1 p.m. message by JCC counsel Mitchell. Mitchell states, Well, this was what we lawyers call a last clear chance. These people were not ready at Pearl Harbor. The Jap fleet was piling in. Here was a chance to get a message to them that might have saved them. It reached your hands, we will say, at 1040. The chance wasn't taken. Does that sum up the situation as you see it? Stark replies, I gather from your question you are now pointing that dispatch directly at Pearl Harbor. It didn't mention Pearl Harbor. It gave no inference with regard to Pearl Harbor any more than it did the Philippines or the Netherlands East Indies. In the light of hindsight, if we had read into that message that it meant an attack at that hour, 
and had sent it out, of course it would have been helpful. I wish such an inference could have been drawn. Mitchell replies, The fixing of an exact hour to deliver the diplomatic message and route out the Secretary of State on a Sunday at 1 p.m., wasn't it obvious that there was some special significance, having in mind the history of the Japs striking first and declaring war afterwards? Stark replies, If so, Mr. Mitchell, I would like to say that so far as I know the Secretary of War didn't read that inference into it, the Secretary of State didn't read that inference into it. The Secretary of the Navy didn't read that inference into it. General Marshall and his staff didn't read that inference into it, and nobody mentioned it to me. Mitchell replies, Is it fair to say that if Marshall hadn't spotted that message and started to send the word out to Pearl Harbor, that you probably wouldn't have sent anything? Stark answers, I don't know that I would. I think that might be a fair deduction. First Post-Attack Investigation December 1941 Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox had flown to Pearl Harbor almost immediately after the Japanese attack in order to investigate the extent of the damage. He had written a report. No copies of that report had been released and it had received practically no publicity at the time. However, during the JCC hearings, I, as chief of the committee's minority staff, located a copy. On January 4, 1946, toward the end of Stark's testimony, Ferguson asked him to read Knox's report into the record. Knox had made three significant points. Number one, neither Short nor Kimmel, at the time of the attack, had any knowledge of the plain intimations of some surprise move, made clear in Washington, through the interception of Japanese instructions to Nomura, by the insistence upon the precise time of Nomura's reply to Hull, at one o'clock on Sunday. Number two, three waves of enemy air force swept over Pearl Harbor during the assault. Because of the element of surprise, the first wave, which lasted from 7.55 to 8.30 a.m., was substantially unopposed and wreaked considerable havoc. Yet, Navy anti-aircraft guns began firing in only about four minutes after the attack started. The second wave over the harbor, 9 to 9.30 a.m., was resisted with far greater firepower and a number of enemy planes were shot down. The third attack over the harbor from about 11.30 to 1 p.m. was met by so intensive a barrage from the ships that it was driven off without getting the attack home, no effective hits being made in the harbor by this last assault. Number three, the Army's lack of the best means of defense against air attack, fighter planes, was due to the diversion of this type of aircraft before the breakout of the war to the British, the Chinese, the Dutch, and the Russians. Stark said he hadn't seen the Knox report before, but expressed no particular surprise at its revelations. He said there is very little in that report that he, Knox, didn't tell a considerable number of us in his office. It may be, as Stark said, that the Knox report was no revelation to him but he made no mention of two of the three aspects that most impressed the committee members, the fact that Kimmel and Short had received little intelligence from Washington and that one major reason for the shortage of reconnaissance planes in Hawaii was the specified diversion of fighter planes to the British, the Chinese, the Dutch, and the Russians. Stark was the last witness to testify before Mitchell and his legal staff left the committee. A week's recess was called, so the new staff, Seth W. Richardson, general counsel, Samuel H. Kaufman, Associate General Counsel, John E. Maston, Edward P. Morgan, and Logan J. Lane, could become familiar with the record. The hearings resumed January 15, 1946. Several important witnesses still remain to be heard, notably Short and Kimmel, Safford, and the Army and Navy couriers Kramer and Bratton, respectively. Chapter 28, Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack November 15, 1945, through May 31, 1946, Part 2. Safford on the Trail of the East Winds Execute 
Outside the doors of the committee's hearing room, Captain L.F. Safford continued to pursue the fate of the missing Pearl Harbor documents. Safford played a crucial role in several investigations. It was Safford who first called Kimmel's attention to the fact that Washington had received information through Japanese magic intercepts, information that had not been shared with the Pearl Harbor commanders. It was Safford who discovered that the intercepts were missing. It was Safford who finally located most of them and had them copied and replaced in the files where they belonged. However, he was never able to locate one particular intercept that he considered crucial. This was the WINS code execute. With the coded weather words, East Wind Rain, announcing that the United States would be involved in Japan's intended aggression from the very beginning. Safford described to the Congressional Committee in considerable detail the procedure which had been followed to prevent knowledge of magic and especially of the WINS code execute from becoming known. A copy of this WINS execute message should have been in the files of Safford's division, in the locked safe of then-commander, now-Captain Kramer. The personal or immediate custodian was Lieutenant Commander Harrison, U.S. Naval Reserve. Safford explained that the only people who had access to Captain Kramer's safe were those on duty under Captain Kramer. Everything was normally cleared through Commander Harrison. There were not more than 10 people at the most, translators and the yeomen on duty in Kramer's section, the head of the section Safford or the officer who relieved Safford. Or it is possible that the Director of Naval Intelligence might have called for files at any time. Any higher authority would have been given the files without question if he had requested it. Safford states, to the best of my knowledge, the combination to the safe was held by Kramer and Harrison alone. There was a copy of the combination in a sealed envelope in my safe. There was another copy of the combination in a sealed envelope in the safe of the aide to the Chief of Naval Operations. That was required for all safes in Naval Operations, so in case of casualty to the man who regularly opened the safe, the safe could be opened when we had to. I know of no occasion when we ever had to open those sealed envelopes and enter the safe. I might add, whenever an officer was relieved, we changed the combination on the safe and substituted the new cards, and that was the only time we ever had to get into those envelopes. Safford had appeared as a witness before the Hart Inquiry, the Navy Court of Inquiry, the Army Pearl Harbor Board, and the Hewitt Inquiry. He expected to be called again to testify if Congress should decide to investigate further after the war ended. Therefore, as arrangements were being made to set up the Congressional Committee in the fall of 1945, he continued his search for the missing Wins Execute which he was convinced had been received. Because of the erratic performance of radio waves and atmospheric disturbances, Safford knew that the best chance of intercepting the Tokyo broadcasts at the scheduled times in November through December of 1941 would have been on the east coast of the United States. His recollection was that the winds execute had been picked up on December 4 at Station M of the Communication Intelligence Group, Com Inns, in Sheltonham, Maryland, and then transmitted by telewriter to Safford's office. OP-20G, in Washington, D.C. As Safford went through the files, he ran across the initials R.T. on some of the Cheltenham intercepts. Every code clerk had his own personal sign, initials by which messages he intercepted could be identified. Safford discovered that R.T. was the sign of Chief Warren Officer Ralph T. Briggs, who had been stationed in Cheltenham on December 4, 1941, and who, in 1945, was back in Washington at one of the offices of Naval Securities Group Command Headquarters. Safford phoned Briggs and asked him to come to his office. Even though the war was over and the JCC was revealing a great deal about magic, Briggs was still security conscious. He knew that the press was trying to discredit Safford as the one person who continued to insist that the Winds Code Execute had been received before the Japanese attack and that it had indicated war with the United States and Great Britain. None of the persons who, Safford claimed, had seen the message on December 4 or 5 had come forward to support his position. Because of security considerations, Briggs was reluctant to talk. 
However, when Safford showed him some of the information he had found, Briggs began to feel that this man knew what he was talking about. He realized Safford desperately needed support. Briggs wanted to help. The two men met several times. Briggs told Safford he had picked up the WINS code execute in Morse code. Safford asked Briggs if he would be willing to testify before the JCC. Yes, he replied, I'd be glad to. Sometime after that meeting, Captain John S. Harper, the commanding officer of the Naval Security Station to which Briggs was then assigned, summoned Briggs to his office. Briggs described Captain Harper later as very much chain of command oriented, strictly a line officer. He wanted strict decorum, regulation uniforms at all times, none of this running around in public with hats off as men did in the Army and Air Force. He was a gung-ho officer in all respects. Harper confronted Briggs. I understand that you've been seeing Captain Safford. That's right. On what authority, Harper asked. I'm the commanding officer of the station, yet I had no knowledge of that meeting. Why didn't you inform me? Why, I didn't know you needed to know, Captain. Harper continued. It is my understanding that he had asked you to testify. Yes, that's right. Well, for your information, Harper said, you are not to testify. I can't give you the reasons at this time, but someday you'll understand why. I know you must be interested in helping Captain Safford, but at this point in time, too much damage has already been done. Much too much has been revealed. I want you to understand that you are not to testify and that's it. I don't want you to meet with Captain Safford anymore, do you understand? Briggs was shocked, shaken up, but he obeyed Harper's orders. He felt he had to. He assumed Safford must have contacted somebody on the committee, suggested Briggs as a potential witness, and told where he could be located. When Briggs got back to his office, he phoned Safford. At first, Safford greeted his announcement with stunned silence. Then he said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. However, Briggs had supplied Safford with the confirmation he had been seeking for so long. The Japanese had actually implemented before the attack the false weather report, East Wind Rain, indicating trouble of some sort, possibly war, with the United States as well as England. But Safford realized that he wouldn't be able to use Briggs's name. When the committee reconvened on January 14, 1946, there was still several important witnesses to be heard, notably Short and Kimmel, Safford, and the Army and Navy couriers Kramer and Bratton, respectively. Admiral Husband E. Kimmel, upon appointment as Sink Sea Begins, readying fleet for war. Kimmel was the lead-off witness after the new legal staff took over. He began by reading a prepared statement to the committee. He said he realized the fleet was vulnerable at Pearl Harbor, but he had accepted the decision as an historical fact. The fleet was not then ready for war, so Kimmel said he set out through an intensive training program to make it ready. As noted, there were shortages in Hawaii of planes, especially for reconnaissance and long-range attack, shortage also of plane crews and anti-aircraft guns. Kimmel visited Washington in June 1941 and discussed the matter with Stark. He also had some conversation on the subject with the president, who was fully cognizant of the problem. By that time, the fleet had substantially weakened by the shift to the Atlantic of a large contingent of ships, about one quarter of the fleet. Kimmel told the committee he felt that a strong Pacific fleet was a real deterrent to Japan but that a weaker fleet might be an invitation to attack. According to his statement, Kimmel had argued vehemently against still further transfers, and in that he had prevailed. Kimmel's dilemma, given the situation, had been to decide how best to employ the fleet's limited ships, planes, anti-aircraft guns, ammunition, other equipment and supplies, as well as his men, so as to fulfill his several responsibilities. Under questioning by the committee's legal staff, Kimmel again reviewed the situation that faced him as commander of the Pacific Fleet. Not only the shortages of men and supplies, but also the conflicting and confusing intelligence he had received. 
the need to develop a trained force of fighting men, and the difficulty of reconciling Washington's recommendation for still further reductions in fleet strength with his instruction to prepare for offensive action, as called for under the war plan WPL-46. Kimmel said he had written C.N.O. Stark in chief of the Bureau of Navigation at Nimitz again and again of the dangerous conditions created by the shortage of qualified aviators and the continued detachment of qualified officers and enlisted men needed if the fleet were to reach the highest state of efficiency demanded by a campaign. He could not spare any considerable number of qualified officers from the fleet without assuming an enormous risk. Every action has its cost, of course. The transfer of ships to the Atlantic in mid-1941 reduced the strength of the Pacific Fleet. Passing 26 B-17s, the planes most suitable for reconnaissance, through Hawaii on their way to the Philippines, outfitting them with crews, guns, and ammunition, did not improve Pearl Harbor's reconnaissance capabilities. At times, it even reduced them as, Short testified later, Hawaii had had to relinquish some of its own B-17s for the benefit of the Philippines. Nimitz had warned Kimmel, March 3, 1941, that the enactment of Lend-Lease would make the supply situation still worse. It would bring about an enormous, almost astronomical demand for ordnance supplies for the British Navy and Allies. As a matter of fact, 1,900 planes were sent abroad from February 1 to December 1, 1941, about 1,750 of them going to the British, and 1,900 anti-aircraft guns were distributed under Lend-Lease, some 1,500 of them going to the British. That meant 1,900 fewer planes and 1,900 fewer anti-aircraft guns available to improve Pearl Harbor's defenses. Kimmel's Darth of Information Kimmel may have found it difficult to obtain clear instructions and to procure the men and material needed to build the fleet to fighting strength, but probably his chief complaint was lack of information. In his dual capacity as the Commander-in-Chief of the United States Fleet and the Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet, he said he felt he was entitled to every scrap of information they had in Washington. It needed not have been supplied in full, he said. It could have been sent in summarized form. But he felt he was entitled to all the essential information from which had to do with the Pacific situation. According to Kimmel, he had received during July 1941 at least seven dispatches quoting intercepted Japanese messages. As a matter of fact, he had been given the impression that they were sending him all the important information available. Yet little or none of the information gleaned from later intercepts was furnished Kimmel. Kimmel had tried to impress on the Navy Department that what he needed out there was information, information upon which to base my actions. He had recognized the vulnerability of the fleet largely due to the fact that we had only one base, at Pearl Harbor, and to the limitations of fuel and other things. Further, he had hoped and believed that the information would come in time to at least alleviate the situation. Having pointed out the problem, he said, he accepted the risks. Later, when questioning Kimmel, Representative Gearhart agreed that rather than being a deterrent, keeping the fleet at Pearl Harbor had actually proved to be a direct invitation to the Japanese government to come there and put our fleet out of commission. If it had been stationed on the West Coast, as Richardson had recommended, the added distance would have made a Japanese attack more difficult. Moreover, the West Coast location, with a landmass on one side, would have simplified the task of reconnaissance. U.S. Air Patrols would have had to survey only a radius of 180 degrees, not 360 degrees as in Hawaii. After receiving the November 27 war warning and the November 29 notice describing the practical end of the U.S.-Japanese negotiations, Kimmel said he received no further news from Washington on the relations between the two countries and was 
left to read public newspaper accounts of further conversations between the State Department and the Japanese emissaries in Washington, which, in contradiction of the Washington messages, indicated that negotiations had been resumed. He also said that between November 27 and the attack, there was in Washington a rising intensity in the crisis in Japanese-United States relations, apparent in the intercepted dispatches. He itemized some of the dispatches he had not seen at the time but had since learned about. For instance, there was the intercept concerning the concealed Japanese plans which automatically went into effect on November 29. The Navy Department had also known, Kimmel said, of the false weather broadcast, East Wind Rain, indicating a break in Japanese-U.S. relations. He cited several intercepts that had been picked up, decoded, and translated during this period, asking the Japanese consulate in Hawaii for information on the berthings of ships in Pearl Harbor. These intercepts, Kimmel said, were only some of the significant indications of crisis that had been available in Washington between November 27 and December 7. When questioning Kimmel, Gearhart quoted a two-part Tokyo-Berlin message of November 30 that had been intercepted, decrypted, and translated, and that had been available in Washington on December 1. In that message, Japan reassured Germany that the imperial government adamantly stuck to the tripartite alliance as the cornerstone of its national policy. The United States had taken the stand. Tokyo told Berlin in part one of this dispatch that, as long as the Empire of Japan was in alliance with Germany and Italy, there could be no maintenance of friendly relations between Japan and the United States. It has become gradually more and more clear that the imperial government could no longer continue negotiations with the United States. It became clear, too, that a continuation of negotiations would inevitably be detrimental to our cause. In part two of this dispatch, Tokyo told Berlin, that one particular clause in the note that the United States had handed the Japanese ambassadors on November 26 was especially insulting. That clause meant, in effect, that in case the United States enters the European war at any time, the Japanese Empire will not be allowed to give assistance to Germany and Italy in accord with their tripartite alliance. This cause alone, let alone others, makes it impossible to find any basis in the American proposal for negotiations. What is more, before the United States brought forth this plan, they conferred with England, Australia, the Netherlands, and China. They did so repeatedly. Therefore, it is clear that the United States is now in collusion with those nations and has decided to regard Japan, along with Germany and Italy, as an enemy. Kimmel said the Navy Department had realized that the high point in the crisis in Japanese-American affairs would be reached when the Japanese reply to the American note of November 26 was received, and the Department had been looking for it ever since that date. Kimmel's Instructions Carry Out War Plan 46 Stark's November 27 war warning had advised Kimmel that an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days. The number and equipment of Japanese troops and the organization of naval task forces indicates an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines' Thai or Krap Peninsula, or possibly Borneo. Execute an appropriate defensive deployment preparatory to carrying out the tasks assigned in WPL-46. Washington's attention was apparently focused on Southeast Asia, and Kimmel's attention was also directed there by this war warning. Kimmel testified that also on November 27, the Navy Department suggested that I send from the immediate vicinity of Pearl Harbor to Wake and Midway, the carriers of the fleet which constituted the fleet's main striking defense against an air attack. That same day, he said, the War and Navy Departments suggested that we send from the island of Oahu 50% of the Army's resources in pursuit planes. In these circumstances, no reasonable man in my position would consider that the war warning was intended to suggest the likelihood of an attack in the Hawaiian area. 
Kimmel found his pre-attack instructions most confusing, presenting him with a do-don't situation. The November 29 Navy message had told him that the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. Undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary, but these measures should be carried out so as not, repeat, not to alarm civil population or disclose intent. Undertake no offensive action until Japan has committed an overt act. Army message number 472 of November 27 had given similar instructions to short. Himmel explained, The Pacific Fleet was based in an area containing over 130,000 Japanese, any one of whom could watch its movements. You can appreciate the psychological handicaps orders of this kind placed upon us. In effect, I was told, do take precautions, do not alarm civilians, do take a preparatory deployment, do not disclose intent, do take a defensive deployment, do not commit the first overt act. One last feature of the so-called war warning dispatch remains to be noted. This is the directive with which it closed. Execute an appropriate defensive deployment preparatory to carrying out the tasks assigned in WPL-46. Under WPL-46, the first task of the Pacific Fleet was to support the forces of the associated powers, Britain, the Netherlands, and the United States, in the Far East by diverting enemy strength away from the Malay Barrier. The Malay Barrier was defined in WPL-46 as the Malay Peninsula, Sumatra, Java, and the chain of islands extending in an easterly direction from Java to Bathurst Island, Australia. It encompassed Borneo, New Guinea, the Kra Peninsula, the Kra Isthmus, which was a Malay state, and also British Singapore. According to Kimmel, the Navy Department emphasized this instruction to divert enemy strength away from the Malay barrier by repeating it on November 29. The dispatch of that date directed, be prepared to carry out the tasks assigned in WPL-46 so far as they apply to Japan in case hostilities occur. Thus, in two separate dispatches, I was ordered by the Navy Department to have the Pacific Fleet ready to move against the Marshals upon the expected outbreak of war in the Far East. This was a determinative factor in the most difficult and vital decisions I had to make thereafter. There was not a hint in these two dispatches of any danger in the Hawaiian area. On the one hand, Kimmel had been instructed to undertake no offensive action until Japan has committed an overt act, that is, to sit and wait. And on the other hand, he had been ordered to continue preparing to go on the offensive against the Japanese in the Marshall Islands, as called for in the war plan. United States-British Military Agreement In view of this country's policy of cooperating with the British, it was imperative that the field commanders be advised of any U.S. agreements or commitments that would involve them and the military forces under them. During the months preceding the attack, Kimmel had questioned Stark repeatedly as to what the United States would do and what Kimmel's responsibilities as commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet would be if the Japanese attacked the British and Dutch in Southeast Asia without striking U.S. territory. To help him make his own judgments, he pressed Stark to keep him posted as to diplomatic and military affairs affecting the situation. On May 26, 1941, Kimmel wrote Stark, Full and authoritative knowledge of current policies and objectives, even though necessarily late at times, would enable the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet to modify, adapt, or even reorient his possible courses of action to conform to current concepts. He asked that he be immediately informed of all important developments as they occur and by the quickest, secure means available. During the summer of 1941, after Germany, Britain's enemy, had attacked the USSR, which then became Britain's new ally. The concern became whether or not Japan, Germany's ally under the tripartite alliance, 
might attack Russia's maritime provinces on the Asiatic coast west of Japan, just north of Korea. Kimmel continued to press Stark for information. On July 26, Kimmel asked specifically about the U.S. attitude toward Russian participation in the war. What role, if any, would the Pacific fleet have to play between the U.S. and Russia if and when we become active participants? Number one, will England declare war on Japan if Japanese attack maritime provinces? Number two, if answer to number one is in the affirmative, will we actively assist as tentatively provided in case of attack on NEI, Netherlands East Indies, or British Singapore? Number three, if answer to number two is in the affirmative, are plans being prepared for joint action, mutual support, etc.? In October, Kimmel learned from a traveler who had visited Singapore, Manila, Java, Dutch East Indies, Australia, and New Zealand, that if Japan attacks Russia, the British Empire will declare war on Japan. The Dutch East Indies would follow Great Britain. On October 29, Kimmel asked Stark if they do embark on such an adventure and Britain and the Dutch East Indies declare war on Japan, what will we do? On November 7, Stark wrote Kimmel, Things seem to be moving steadily toward a crisis in the Pacific. Just when it will break, no one can tell. Stark's principal reaction was that it continually gets worser and worser. A month may see, literally, most anything. On November 14, Stark sent Kimmel a copy of the November 5 memorandum he and Marshall had sent the president. In that memorandum, Stark and Marshall had written, The only current plans for war against Japan in the Far East are to conduct defensive war in cooperation with the British and Dutch for the defense of the Philippines and the British and Dutch East Indies. War between the United States and Japan should be avoided while building up defensive forces in the Far East until such time as Japan attacks or directly threatens territories whose security to the United States is of very great importance. The closest thing to a reply that Kimmel received to his several requests for information as to how the United States would respond if the British and Dutch were attacked was Stark's postscript to a November 25, 1941 letter. Neither FDR nor Hull would be surprised over a Japanese surprise attack. From many angles, an attack on the Philippines would be the most embarrassing thing that could happen to us. Some think such an attack likely, Stark said, but he did not give it the weight others did. He generally held that it was not time for the Japanese to proceed against Russia. Rather, he looked for an advance into Thailand, Indochina, Burma Road area as the most likely. He said he wouldn't go into the pros and cons of what the United States may do. I will be damned if I know. I wish I did. The only thing I do know is that we may do almost anything, and that's the only thing I know to be prepared for, or we may do nothing. I think it is more likely to be anything. Later, when Gerhardt questioned Kimmel, he supported Kimmel's reasoning that Washington expected the Japanese to move against the Philippines and or Southeast Asia, thousands of miles west of Hawaii. Gerhardt considered this consistent with a jurisprudential interpretation, Ejusdem Generis Rule, namely that a general statement followed by a specific limitation always limits the interpretation in the courts to the things of the same character of the specific things mentioned. In other words, the general statement in the November 27 war warning to the effect that an aggressive move by Japan is expected within the next few days was limited by the specific statement that followed indicating an amphibious expedition against either the Philippines, Thai, or Kra Peninsula, or possibly Borneo. Kimmel had been told little or nothing in relation to U.S.-British military agreements and Japanese threat in Southeast Pacific. 
The U.S. Pacific Fleet's task under the war plan was to support the forces of the associated powers, i.e. the United States, the British Commonwealth, and their allies, in the Far East by diverting enemy strength away from the Malay barrier. The imaginary line connecting the Malay Peninsula via Sumatra, Java, and the various islands to the east extending to Bathurst Island, just off the north-central coast of Australia. When Ferguson's turn came to question Kimmel, the senator devoted most of the time to trying to find out whether information available in Washington had been relayed to him, what the United States' interest in the Malay barrier was, and what commitments, if any, the United States may have made to the British and Dutch. When Ferguson questioned Kimmel, he summarized Turner's earlier JCC testimony on the situation in the Western Pacific. Turner, Navy Warplans, had said that he believed that we would be attacked definitely in the Philippines, and if we were attacked in the Philippines, I knew it would be war. I thought it would be war if we were not attacked. I thought it would be war if they attacked the British and the Dutch, but there would have been some delays possibly. Ferguson said, in other words, if they, the Japanese, attacked the British and the Dutch alone, you thought it meant war, and you made a distinction, that if they attacked the Dutch, the British and the Americans at the Philippines, it did mean war. Turner had agreed with Ferguson's summary. Ferguson states, Were you aware that Admiral Turner had informed the Japanese ambassador, July 23 or 24, that the United States would not tolerate, in view of its policy of aiding Britain, and its interpretation of self-defense, a Japanese threat to the Malay barrier. Kimmel replies, I did not know that he had made any such statements. Ferguson replies, Now, if you would have had that information in relation to Admiral Turner's conversation, never disputed as far as Turner was concerned, and he was never called on the carpet, or it was never taken up with him that he was wrong, if you had known of that, would you then have known the policy of America in case of an attack upon the Malay barrier? Kimmel replies, it would have been most helpful to me, and if I had known all the circumstances and the fact that that was the policy of the government, yes, it would have helped immensely. Ferguson replies, Well, were you ever told that Admiral Stark was called to the White House by the President on July 24, and that then he heard a statement by the President to Japan to the effect that if Japan attempted to get Dutch oil by force, the British and Dutch would fight, and there would then result a most serious situation between the United States and Japan? Immel replies, I don't remember ever having been informed of that conversation. No, sir. Ferguson states, Well, were you advised that responsible leadership was intercepting secret Japanese messages, wherein the Japanese ambassador was advising his government that it must expect armed opposition from Great Britain and the United States should Japan move against the Malay barrier? Kimmel replies, I was never informed of that. Ferguson states, well, were you aware from your own judgment, like Admiral Stark and Admiral Turner have stated here, that Anglo-Dutch-American embargoes on Japan oil supplies, regardless of their justification for such embargoes, constituted an actual and a logical cause of war with Japan? Kimmel replies, Well, I thought that the embargoes would irritate Japan considerably, and I knew about the embargoes. Ferguson? Well, did you think it would irritate them enough, as has been stated by Admiral Stark, that we should have anticipated war over that? Kimmel replies, not necessarily, no. Ferguson, well now, were you advised that on August 17, when the president returned from the Atlantic Conference with Churchill, that the president called the Japanese ambassador to the White House and told him in diplomatic language, and it was rather blunt, and in writing, that a Japanese threat or show of force against the Malay barrier or any movement in the Pacific would compel the United States immediately to take any and all steps necessary to protect our rights? Kimmel replies, no sir, I did not know about that. Ferguson? 
Now, did that task, diverting enemy strength away from the melee barrier as prescribed in the U.S. war plan, depend upon your first knowing that America was in the war by virtue of an attack or declaration of war? Kimmel replies, it did. I had no authority to act until I received definite word from my government. Had the Japanese made an attack on the Krop Peninsula, had they made an attack on Java, I would have been unable to do anything until I got orders to move. On September 11, 1941, President Roosevelt had issued a shoot-on-sight order to U.S. Navy ships aimed at German ships and submarines, operating within areas in the Atlantic considered vital to American defense. Kimmel noted that similar orders had been issued the Southeast Pacific Force for surface raiders east of 100 degrees west, that is, about 700 miles off the western coast of South America. Kimmel wrote Stark on September 12, asking whether this shoot-on-sight order applied also to the rest of the Pacific. The threat of Japanese action, Kimmel wrote, coupled with current rumors of U.S.-Japanese rapprochement and the absence of any specific reference to the Pacific in the president's speech, leaves me in some doubt as to just what my situation out here is. Kimmel asked Stark specifically, what orders to shoot should be issued for areas other than Atlantic and Southeast Pacific sub-areas? This is particularly pertinent to our present escort for ships proceeding to the Far East. So far, my orders to them have been to protect their convoy from interference, to avoid use of force if possible, but to use it if necessary. These orders, at least by implication, preclude taking the offensive. Shouldn't I now change them to direct offensive measures against German and Italian raiders? Because of the delicate nature of our present Pacific relations, Kimmel felt Stark was the only one who could answer this question. Kimmel had also asked what to do about submarine contacts off Pearl Harbor and the vicinity. His orders at that time were to trail all contacts, but not to bomb unless you are in the defensive sea area. Should we now bomb contacts without waiting to be attacked? In his letter, Kimmel expressed fear that FDR's emphasis on the Atlantic might lead to a possible further weakening of this fleet. A strong Pacific fleet is unquestionably a deterrent to Japan. A weaker one may be an invitation to attack. Before the JCC, Kimmel testified that he believed the maintenance of the status quo in the Pacific was almost entirely a matter of the strength of this fleet. It must not be reduced and in the event of actual hostilities must be increased if we are able to undertake a bold offensive. Until we can keep a force here strong enough to meet the Japanese fleet, we are not secure in the Pacific. And the Pacific is still very much a part of the world situation. Ferguson asked Kimmel whether he had known that the Japanese ambassador to the United States, the Japanese foreign minister, and Japanese press had indicated that they expected the United States to proceed in the Pacific as it had in the Atlantic with a shoot-on-sight order. Kimmel said he had never heard anything to that effect. As a matter of fact, because of the correspondence he had had to the effect that we did not want to tackle two wars at once, he had gotten the impression that the government wanted to confine the war to the Atlantic. We did not want to go into the Pacific. He thought the United States was doing all it could to keep out of war in the Pacific. Prior to December 7, he had not believed that war was imminent or that we were in any way forcing the war. So he had not considered that the Japanese would expect us to take any such action in the Pacific as had been taken in the Atlantic. On September 23, 1941, Stark replied to Kimmel. For the present, he wrote, the president has issued shooting orders only for the Atlantic and Southeast Pacific sub-area. The situation in the Pacific generally, Stark said, is far different from what it is in the Atlantic. Kimmel's existing orders to escorts are appropriate under the present situation. They are also in accordance with Article 723 U.S. Navy regulations. No order should be given to shoot at the present time, 
Other than those clearly set forth in this article, Article 723, USNR, reads as follows. The use of force against a foreign and friendly state or against anyone within the territories thereof is illegal. The right of self-preservation, however, is a right which belongs to states as well as to individuals. And in the case of states, it includes the protection of the state, its honor, and its possessions, and the lives and property of its citizens against arbitrary violence, actual or impending. Stark talked with Hull before sending this letter and added a postscript. Hull asked that the letter be held very secret. Stark summed up Hull's comments by saying, that conversation with the Japs have practically reached an impasse, and Stark could see no chance for a settlement and peace in the Far East, until and unless there is some agreement between Japan and China, and just now that seems remote. By this time, the Japanese were rapidly completing withdrawal from world shipping routes. The United States also issued orders to ships to avoid areas where they might encounter Japanese ships. On October 16, 1941, all U.S. merchant ships, and on October 17, 1941, all U.S. flag shipping, were directed to keep to the southward through the Torres Straits between the northern coast of Australia and the southern shores of the island of New Guinea, and to keep well clear of orange, Japanese, mandates taking maximum advantage of Dutch and Australian patrolled areas. By October 23, ships carrying U.S. Army and Navy troops and military cargo were being escorted both ways between Honolulu and Manila. On November 5, 1941, Marshall and Stark had sent a joint memorandum to the president. There they admitted that the U.S. fleet in the Pacific was then inferior to the Japanese fleet and cannot undertake an unlimited strategic offensive in the Western Pacific. To do so, it would have to be strengthened by withdrawing practically all naval vessels from the Atlantic, except those assigned to local defensive forces. The result of withdrawals from the Atlantic of naval and merchant strength might well cause the United Kingdom to lose the Battle of the Atlantic in the near future. The only current plans for war against Japan in the Far East are to conduct defensive war in cooperation with the British and Dutch for the defense of the Philippines and the British and Dutch East Indies. The Philippines are now being reinforced. Marshall and Stark reaffirmed that the basic military policies and strategy agreed to in the United States-British staff conversations remain sound. The primary objective of the two nations is to defeat Germany. In this memorandum, Marshall and Stark urged that war between the United States and Japan should be avoided while building up defensive forces in the Far East until such time as Japan attacks or directly threatens territories whose security to the United States is of very great importance. Stark and Marshall closed with a clear and unmistakable joint recommendation that no ultimatum be delivered to Japan. On November 18, Kimmel was advised that until international conditions on and subsequent to 25 November become defined and clarified, any further direct or great circle routing between Hawaii and Philippines should not, repeat, not be used. And he was authorized to place a Dutch ship, Bloemfontein, in a convoy with American flag vessels. Ferguson states, Do you know why they used the date there subsequent to November 25? Did you ever know that we had a message that we intercepted from the Japs showing that the deadline, date, for the Japanese ambassadors to complete their negotiations with the United States was the 25th of November? Kimmel replies, No, sir, I never had anything like that. I do not know what November 25 meant, but I was concerned with the orders I received to put the Blumfontein in the convoy with American flag vessels. Ferguson states, do you think the fact that we put that ship into our convoy would indicate that we were taking parallel action? Did you take it as such? Kimmel replies, My memory is not entirely clear, but I think we had some material or personnel or something on the ship that we wanted to get through. 
on the Bloemfontein. I do not recall just what it was. On one of these Dutch ships that we used, we had some flyers that were going out to China. Ferguson states, Well, now what kind of an order do you interpret that to put a Dutch ship in an American convoy to be? Kimmel replies, The way I interpret that order is that you would go in betwixt an attacking force and a Netherlands ship, and if they shot at you, why, I would probably shoot back. Ferguson states, Well then, that would create at least an incident, would it not? An international incident. Kimmel replies, Yes, sir, it probably would. Ferguson responds, And there would be little use then of talking about the first overt act, wouldn't there? Kimmel answers, Well, the Japs would have shot first. Ferguson states, I see, even though you would have run between the mark that they were shooting at and that wasn't our mark, that did not belong to this country, you would consider under those circumstances that the Japs shot first. Kimmel replies, I would have to know all the circumstances first. Ferguson then asked Kimmel if he had ever been advised what the task of the Pacific Fleet should be in the event of an outbreak of war in the Pacific, which did not involve a Japanese attack directly on American possessions. This was precisely what Kimmel had been trying to find out for some time without success. Ferguson states, Well, were you fully aware on November the 27th that the Japanese had concentrated for an attack upon the Malay barrier? Kimmel replies, I was so informed. Ferguson states, Well, were you aware that such an attack, even the obvious preparation for it, was a direct defiance of the formal and explicit warning against such movement given by the United States? August 17, after the FDR Churchill meeting at Argentia. Kimmel replies, I did not know of the formal and explicit warning given by the United States. Ferguson states, You were advised by Admiral Stark, Stark letter of November 25, after he had a conference at the White House, that he was damned if he knew what the United States was going to do should Japan attack the Malay barrier without at the same time attacking possessions of the United States. Now, between the date of that letter and its receipt, you had been instructed, had you not, to prepare to attack the Marshals after Japan had committed an overt act against the United States. Now, in the manner of ordinary naval strategy, would the Japanese expect an attack by the Pacific Fleet on the Marshals in the event the United States should implement its direct and specific warning to oppose the Japanese movement against the Malay barrier? Kimmel replies, yes, I think they probably would expect attacks on the Marshals. Ferguson states, did you know then that the presence of this Japanese force before the approaches to Singapore required the responsible leadership in Washington to act immediately? or to back down from the former position it had taken with Japan, as of Sunday, August the 17th, 1941. Kimmel replies, No, sir, I did not. Ferguson, Well, if you had known that, would this fact they were moving toward the Crow Peninsula have made a difference with your action? Well, you had nothing before you, had you, that the United States government intended to back down from any stand or any policy that it had. Kimmel replies, No, sir, I did not. Ferguson, well then, if the policy was such that we should have anticipated that if they attacked the Crow Peninsula, it would mean war with America, should we not have then at the same time anticipated a co-attack on America? Kimmel replies, that would appear to be reasonable. Yes, sir. Ferguson, well, do you know why no one seems to have anticipated that if they attacked the Crow Peninsula, they would not also attack America at the same time? Kimmel replies, no, sir, I do not. Ferguson, well, at any time after November the 25th, 1941, did the Chief of Naval Operations, that is, Admiral Stark, advise you that instead of being damned if he knew what the United States was going to do in the event that Japan attacked the Malay barrier after bypassing American positions, he did know what the United States was going to do. You see, he wrote you that letter on the 25th. Kimmel states, 
If he had informed me that he knew what the United States was going to do and what they were going to do, it would have been of great assistance to me. Ferguson, did you know that the president, by direct order, OPNAV message, December 2, 7 p.m. Washington time, to SINCAF, Heart, SINCEA, Asiatic Fleet, Philippines, had ordered three ships to go into the Gulf of Siam or off the coast of China to watch for this Japanese convoy movement into the Crop Peninsula. Kimmel replies, no, sir, I did not. Kimmel said he had known that the commander-in-chief of the Asiatic fleet had been ordered to send some planes over to scout, but he had not known about the ships. However, Kimmel thought that was a perfectly natural thing to do if we wanted to know what the Japanese were doing, whether they would come to the Philippines or not. Ferguson pointed out that the stations the three small vessels were to assume, as specified in the message, were located well to the west of the Philippines, almost directly in the projected paths of the southbound Japanese convoy sighted by our overflights. According to the message, they were to observe and report by radio Japanese movements in West China Sea and Gulf of Siam. How would this tell us, Ferguson wanted to know, whether or not the Japanese were coming to the Philippines? Ferguson pointed out also that the message specified that these three small ships were to comply with minimum requirements to establish identity as U.S. men of war. The president had even given exact instructions what that meant. Command by a naval officer and to mount a small gun and one machine gun would suffice. Ferguson says, Now, if you had known of this message of the president from OPNAV to SINCAF, would that have indicated to you an answer to that question as to what we were going to do in case of an attack upon the Malay Peninsula? Kimmel replied, It would have been useful information. It would have still been short of any authoritative statement of what our intentions were. After receiving, on December 3, Stark's November 25th letter concerning the possibility of a Japanese surprise attack on the Philippines, or what was more likely a Japanese advance against the Thailand-Indochina-Burma Road area, Kimmel had certainly not visualized U.S. naval actions in the Pacific like that in the Atlantic. However, in his testimony, Kimmel had to admit that, judging from the intercepts Ferguson was showing him, that Japan might well have expected the United States to follow its Atlantic strategy if the Japanese got into a war with England. Ferguson called Kimmel's attention to a State Department Far Eastern Affairs Division document of December 4, 1941, which told of the British attempt to make arrangements with the Japanese government to withdraw or exchange British and Japanese officials and nationals in the territory of the other in the event of British-Japanese hostilities. One sentence in this document concerned whether the United States should not also, while we are not at war with Japan, try to make a similar agreement with the Japanese. Ferguson, reading. Such attempt might, at this time, be advisable also in that it would be definite indication to the Japanese government of the firmness of the American position in the present crisis, and would be one means of impressing upon the Japanese government the seriousness with which we view the present situation. Ferguson states, Now, that being true, the co-action there would indicate to the Japanese government that we were acting with Britain. Shouldn't we have anticipated that if they attacked one, they would attack both? Kimmel replies, I think that is reasonable. Yes, sir. Ferguson states, All right, now we go to the end of the document, and it is signed by M.M.H., who I understand is Maxwell M. Hamilton, Chief, Division of Far Eastern Affairs. And they are speaking now about getting American nationals out of Japanese territory in China before the declaration of war, before the shooting starts, and I will read. As the making of such an approach would be interpreted by the American public as a definite indication that this government expects war between Japan and the United States, the Secretary may wish to speak to the President in regard to the advisability of this government's making such an approach at this time.
Ferguson continuing. Now, that is dated on December the 4th, 1941. Now, from all you have learned wherein the messages were intercepted and what was known in Washington, have you any doubt that war was imminent and that we knew we were going to war? Immel replies, I have no doubt, sir. Ferguson states, well then, did you get this message indicating that we did not want the American public to know that we were going to war? Kimmel replies, I received no such message, no sir. Ferguson states, well, you were told you were to do nothing that would arouse the population of Hawaii to indicate that we were going to war. Kimmel replies, that was contained in messages which came to me, yes sir. Ferguson states, now, would it be correct to say that your first and your chief objective in the event of an American-Japanese war was an attack upon the Marshall Islands to divert the Japanese from the Malayan barrier, which comprised vital possessions of the Dutch and the British, who would be our allies. Kimmel replies, yes, sir, that was if and when we got into the war. Ferguson states, well, now, would the attack on the Marshalls accomplish the chief purpose of the American war plan that you then had, if that attack occurred after Singapore had fallen to the Japanese? Kimmel replies, that would have been a little late. Ferguson says, that would have also been late after the Japanese had gone into Borneo and Java, would it not? Himmel, yes, sir. Ferguson, well now, was the Marshall operation and its value contingent upon it being undertaken before the Japanese had breached the Malay barrier? Himmel states, well, certainly before they had had a chance to take those land areas which comprised the Malay barrier. It had to draw the forces away in time, before they had conquered that country and before they had gone down there really. Ferguson says, well, now, is that why you were interested in the movement and why the United States was interested in the movement south? And did you also want to know what you were to do in case you were sure that they were going south? Kimmel replies, yes, sir. Ferguson states, and did you ever find that out prior to the attack on the 7th? Kimmel says, what I was to do? No, sir, not definitely. Ferguson, well, now you come back to those words, not definitely. Did you ever find any information on it? Kimmel answers, no, I wanted to know what we were to do. I did not find out. Ferguson then showed Kimmel the message from U.S. Ambassador John G. Winnett in London announcing the presence of two Japanese convoys of about 60 ships off Cambodia Point. This dispatch had been received in the State Department on December 6 at 10.40 a.m. Ferguson asked Kimmel if anyone in Washington had advised him on December 6 that a Japanese invasion fleet of 60-some vessels had been sighted and was within a day or 14 hours of striking distance of the approaches to Singapore, the so-called Winnet message. Kimmel said he didn't think he had received the message, although he had received similar information on December 6, through a copy of a message from Hart to Opnav in Washington. That message pointed out that a 25-ship convoy with cruiser and destroyer escorts had been sighted heading west toward Kotron, Kongrong, on the west coast of Indochina, not very far from the Thai border. Because of what the Navy Department had told Kimmel, he thought the Japanese were probably concentrating their forces over there to go into Thai. Thirty additional ships and one large cruiser had been spotted by Hart's scouting force in Kamran Bay on the east coast of Indochina. Ferguson wanted to know from Kimmel, why in the world would they send you that message? That was another power. We were a separate and distinct nation. America is an independent and sovereign power. Why were we concerned if we did not have a war plan in relation to that attack? I realize you were trying to find out what we were going to do, and you told us now that you never did find out. You were positive about that, that you never got an answer as to what we were to do. Kimmel answers, the last answer I had on that subject before the attack was Admiral Stark's letter of November 25, which I received on December 3. 
Ferguson then asked Kimmel if he had known that Hart in the Philippines had gotten word from Singapore on December 6 to the effect that the British had received assurance of American armed support under several eventualities if the Japanese attacked them, if the Japanese attacked the Dutch, or if the Japanese attacked Siam or the Isthmus of Kra, and the British and Dutch went to their defense. Obviously, this would mean that the United States Asiatic fleet would be asked to assist the British in Singapore. Hart had been sending out flying missions to observe the movements of the Japanese convoys. He had conferred in Manila with British Admiral Thomas S. V. Phillips on how to best coordinate U.S. and British efforts, and had reported to Washington their arrangements for cooperating. However, the news from Singapore that the British had received assurance of American armed support was a surprise to Hart. He wired Washington for instructions. Turner prepared a reply for Hart. It was still in the process of drafting at the time of the attack. Turner said he believed that it was prepared in the forenoon of the 7th. Ferguson states, So someone knew here in Washington before the attack came what was to be sent to Admiral Hart in reply to his inquiry. Whereas, you had made a similar inquiry, and as I understand it, you had no information sent to you that you received, or sent to you that you did not receive prior to the attack. At least, Admiral, you didn't know of this reply to Admiral Hart. Kimmel answers, my recollection is that I didn't know anything about that until after the attack. December 7th, last-minute message didn't reach Kimmel until after the attack. The 1 p.m. message had been intercepted and was available in Washington between 7 and 9 a.m., 1.30 to 3.30 a.m. in Hawaii. Yet it was not until almost noon that Marshall drafted and sent his last-minute message advising Kimmel and short of the deadline. For security reasons, it was not transmitted by scrambler phone, the fastest means then available, lest it be intercepted by the Japanese. It did not reach Kimmel or Short until hours after the attack. Ferguson referred to this message when questioning Kimmel. Ferguson states, How could the fact that General Marshall or Admiral Stark would have alerted you on Sunday morning, say between 7 and 9 Washington time, that the message was received? How could the intercepting of that message by the Japs have changed the situation? Suppose the Japanese fleet had learned at 7 in the morning, that is, 7 hour time on Sunday, which was five and a half hours before their ships came in, their airplanes came into Hawaii. Suppose that they had flashed to that fleet the fact that the Hawaiian Islands were fully alerted and knew that there was something going to happen, and our ships would have gone out. How would that have interfered with the Japs other than probably to have stopped them coming in? Immel replies, I don't understand how it would have interfered in the slightest degree. I cannot understand why I did not get that information. On January 21, 1946, after testifying for six days, Admiral Kimmel was excused by the committee. Kimmel agreed with Vice Chairman Cooper that he had been given a full, ample, and complete opportunity to present my side of the matter. General Walter C. Short, The Attack Surprised Pearl Harbor, Also Washington Finally, on January 22nd, General Short was given an opportunity to tell his story. At the time of the attack, Short had been commanding general Hawaiian Department. Like Kimmel, he had appeared before the Roberts Commission and had to appear there alone without counsel. Also, like Kimmel, he had not been permitted to hear or cross-examine other commission witnesses. Short had not even been allowed to hear or cross-examine witnesses before the Army Pearl Harbor Board, APHB, as Kimmel had before the Navy Court of Inquiry, NCI, the Navy's counterpart. And he was not allowed to see the Japanese magic intercepts copies of which the APHB obtained on October 6, 1944, at the very end of its hearings. Short's military counsel, Brigadier General Thomas H. Green, was eventually allowed to see them, although no comment on them to Short. Green's role was limited to giving Short advice. 
The APHB did furnish Short with a copy of its hearings, except for the top-secret parts concerning magic. Short was not a West Pointer. He had gone into the Army after graduating from the University of Illinois in 1901. He served in the Philippines and Alaska. From March 1916 to February 1917, he was in Mexico with the Pershing Expedition, and he served in France and Germany for two years during World War I. Back in the States, he held various positions on the Army General Staff and at Forts Leavenworth and Benning. He also held several commanding positions organizing and commanding Army brigades, divisions, and corps, with directing soldiers and National Guard troops in maneuvers. When he took over as commanding general of the Hawaiian Department on February 7, 1941, he was promoted to lieutenant general. He served until after the December 7 attack, when he was relieved of his command, December 17. When he retired on February 28, 1942, he was reduced to a major general. Like Kimmel, Short began his testimony before the JCC with a lengthy prepared statement. His remarks paralleled Kimmel's to some extent in that he testified that he had received neither the equipment he had requested nor the information to which he, as commanding general, felt he was entitled. Short said he had had only a brief conference with Marshall before he assumed command of the Hawaiian Department. Marshall had not then told him of any of the probable dangers in the Hawaiian Department, although he had written him a long letter on the day I assumed command detailing his idea of my mission. Marshall wrote on February 7, 1941, The fullest protection for the fleet is the, rather, a major consideration for us. There can be little question about that. Please keep clearly in mind in all your negotiations that our mission is to protect the base and the naval concentrations at Hawaii. In this letter, Marshall also discussed the personal characteristics of Kimmel, who was then taking over command of the fleet. Short's primary responsibility had been different from Kimmel's. Kimmel's task had been to prepare the fleet for offensive action. Short's principal task, he testified, was defensive, to defend the island of Oahu from surface attacks, air attacks, sabotage, internal disorders such as uprising, with particular attention to the defense of Pearl Harbor and of the fleet when in harbor. Always, of course, with the support and assistance of the Navy. During his tour of duty in Hawaii, he and Marshall exchanged letters, 26 pages in the printed hearings. Cables, telegrams, and radiograms, 8 pages. Their correspondence was relatively brief compared with that of Kimmel and Stark during the same period. 113 pages of letters in the printed hearings and 14 pages of cables, telegrams, and radiograms. In his communications, Short reported shortages of men, planes, B-17s, interceptors, fighters, torpedo bombers, anti-aircraft guns, machine guns, and radar equipment. Marshall's letters dealt primarily with military housekeeping details, the construction of airfields, roads, trails, a recreation camp, anti-aircraft artillery, the aircraft warning service, radar, preparations for air and ground defense, etc. They contained little information concerning the international situation. It was the War Department's responsibility to keep Short informed, and he said he did receive department messages from time to time. But those messages were often conflicting and confusing, especially compared with those sent to Kimmel by the Navy during this period, and then relayed by Kimmel to Short. One charge made against Short was that the attack had taken him by surprise because he had not been prepared. He pointed out that even the officials in Washington who had access to the Japanese intercepts had not expected the attack. Rather, they had expected the Japanese to aim at the British and Dutch in the Southwest Pacific. When the news reached Washington, top officials from FDR, Hull, and Stimson on down all expressed surprise. Army Judge Advocate General, JAG, Myron C. Kramer, was forced to admit that Short had not been alone in failing to anticipate an attack. His nonfeasance or omissions were based on an estimate of the situation which, although proved faulty by subsequent events, was 
made or concurred in by all of those officers in Hawaii's best qualified to form a sound military opinion. That estimate was that an attack by air was in the highest degree improbable. Short quoted Kramer's November 25, 1944 comments on the APHB report. Since the War Plans Division had received substantial information from the Intelligence Section, G2, the board argues that had this additional information been transmitted to Short, it might have convinced him not only that war was imminent, but there was a real possibility of a surprise air attack on Hawaii. The JAG went on to blame Garrow for failure to appreciate the significance of the intercept messages, which were available in Washington, and for a lack of the type of skill in anticipating and preparing against eventualities, which we have a right to expect in an officer at the head of the War Plans Division. From time to time, G2 issued special estimates of the military situation. The Far Eastern parts of the estimates were always prepared initially by Bratton in the Far East section of the Military Intelligence Service. Information from the service's other geographic sections was incorporated and discussed. Then, the estimate was presented to General Miles, Chief of Military Intelligence Service, for approval or revision. On November 29, the Intelligence Branch prepared such an estimate, IB-159, which the whole division, including Miles himself, considered perhaps the most important we had ever gotten out, not so much because of the danger that we saw from Japan, although danger in that field was pretty thoroughly discussed but primarily because General Miles wished to focus War Department thought on the defeat that could be administered to the Nazi powers. This estimate, Shore testified, contained no mention of Japan's potential capability against Pearl Harbor, because neither General Hayes A. Croner, chief of the intelligence branch G-2, who according to Short was responsible for maintaining information and for the preparation of estimates as to probable action, nor others in his branch, had any information which would lead them to believe that they, the Japanese, were capable of or planned such an attack. Apparently, the Army's Military Intelligence Service, G-2, did not expect an attack on Hawaii any more than had the top Washington officials. In other words, Pearl Harbor was omitted from G-2's estimates, not because it was too obvious to mention, as Miles testified before the committee, but because, even with all the information it had, it did not believe Japan was capable of making such an attack. Croner, who had helped prepare this estimate, remembered it distinctly because, when the word came through the radio on that fateful Sunday, December 7th, that Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor, I was sitting in my office in the munitions building reading from this paper. He felt that Japan's potential capability against Pearl Harbor was left from this estimate because either Colonel Betts nor I had any information which would lead us to believe that they were capable of or planned such an attack. The imminence of crisis was becoming apparent in Washington. Yet the department, short said, failed to relay that sense of urgency to him, and he received no intimation from Washington that Hawaii might be attacked. He explained that he had been led to think that the Japanese were not going to attack Hawaii in that he had received no warning such as had been sent his predecessor in June 1940. At that time, short explained in a statement, Marshall alerted then Commander General Heron of a possible Trans-Pacific Raid scare. Heron had then taken all necessary precautions. After a month, Marshall authorized Heron to relax the alert provisions except insofar as they pertain to sabotage and the maintenance of readiness. Short said he had expected that, if the chief of staff once again had information causing him to expect a Trans-Pacific raid against Oahu, he would follow the course he had previously set as an example. Short's attention directed westward. It was obvious that Japan's forces were heading south around Indochina and towards Southeast Asia, Singapore, Malaya, and the Dutch East Indies. The information sent short by the War Department, he said, had always pointed in that direction, 
toward an attack to the southwest Pacific and including the Netherlands East Indies. Short had been told that the Philippines might be threatened. He knew the United States was doing its best to build up its Philippine defenses. B-17s were being flown there from the States via Hawaii. The planes were being outfitted in Hawaii and crews were being trained there. Then, guns and crews, he said, were being sent in the B-17s on their way to the Philippines. At times, some of Hawaii's own Army B-17s had even been flown out there, thus depleting the Army's fleet of planes in Hawaii. We had 21 B-17s at one time, Short said, and nine of those were sent to the Philippines and we were down to 12, and we had to rob six of those of parts to keep the others going through. They were ferrying in the last few months everything to the Philippines they could. Still, other types of planes were shipped through to the Philippines on transports, but it was not only planes that were being sent out there. Short said that, a few days before December 7, I had a wire from the War Department asking me if I would be willing to ship 48 75mm guns and 120 30 caliber machine guns to the Philippines. Short had agreed. The War Department said the planes and guns would be replaced very soon. He quoted the few telegrams or cable warnings he had received from Washington after assuming command. A War Department dispatch on July 8 advised him that, Deduction from information from numerous sources is that Japanese government has determined upon its future policy, one of watchful waiting involving probable aggressive action against maritime provinces of Russia. Opinion is that Jap activity in the South will be for the present confined to seizure and development of naval, army, and air bases in Indochina, although an advance against the British and Dutch cannot be entirely ruled out. Short thought that the July 8 message, when they were pointing out action of the Japanese against Russia, was a rather definite prediction and was the only prediction that the War Department ever made direct to me. Short said that, at no time after July 8 did I ever have an army message that indicated any probable line of action by the Japanese. He said he was advised on October 16 through a Navy message to Kimmel that hostilities between Japan and Russia are a strong possibility. Since the U.S. and Britain are held responsible by Japan for her present desperate situation, there is also a possibility that Japan may attack these two powers. On October 20, Short had a message from the War Department that appeared to conflict. Tensions between United States and Japan remain strained, it said. But according to the War Department's estimate of the Japanese situation, no, repeat, no abrupt change in Japanese foreign policy appears imminent. Short also testified that on October 17, one of Short's intelligence officers, Lieutenant Colonel George W. Bicknell, had prepared a report on the situation. Following the principles of defeating one opponent at a time, he had written, it is believed that Japan, if faced with certain British military resistance to her plans, will unhesitatingly attack the British and do so without a simultaneous attack on American possessions because of no known binding agreement between the British and Americans for joint military action against Japan and that the American public is not yet fully prepared to support such actions. However, Bicknell continued, it must be evident to the Japanese that in case of such an attack on the British, they would most certainly have to fight the United States within a relatively short time. What do you understand by binding agreement, Ferguson asked. To be binding, Short said, it should be approved by the Congress. He thought Bicknell might have meant simply any agreement that had been made and approved by the President and not made public, something that the President expected to set forth in the Senate. Ferguson recalled that we weren't consulted on the question of the shooting orders in the Atlantic. Congress didn't say anything about that. Short said he knew that the Navy Basic War Plan, Rainbow Number no. 5, had been drawn up with the idea apparently that when it went into effect, we would be allied with Britain and the Dutch. 
However, Short said he felt at that time that the American public would not have been willing to have an agreement ratified that we would go to war to defend the Netherlands, East Indies, or Singapore. On November 24, he said he received, through Kimmel, a Navy Department message stating that a surprise aggressive movement in any direction, including attack on Philippines or Guam, is a possibility. Then, on November 27, Short said he received War Department radiogram number 472, notifying him that negotiations with the Japanese appear to be terminated to all practical purposes. Japanese future action unpredictable, but hostile action possible at any moment. Short was told that if hostilities cannot, comma, repeat, cannot, comma, be avoided, the United States desires that Japan commit the first overt act. Short was to undertake such reconnaissance and other measures as you deem necessary. So as not, comma, repeat, not, comma, to alarm the civil population or disclose intent. In response, he alerted for sabotage and so notified Washington. Otherwise, he received no army warning of likely Japanese action or message giving diplomatic or military background that would have enabled him to judge the situation in the Pacific for himself. Short not advised of available evidence of imminent crisis. Short said he was convinced that the War Department was aware of the fact that I did not have this information regarding the mounting U.S.-Japanese crisis and had already decided that I should not get this information. A definite decision had been made by the War Department that neither the Japanese intercepts nor the substance of them should be given to the commanding general in Hawaii. He quoted Miles' testimony before the committee. There were no steps taken to distribute these messages to that general. Short. This decision was in line with the general policy laid down by the chief of staff that these messages and the fact of the existence of these messages or our ability to decode them should be confined to the least possible number of persons. No distribution should be made outside of Washington. Not only was Short denied the intelligence derived from magic, but the information he did receive was confusing. Navy messages were habitually rather more aggressive than the Army, Short said. On October 16, Kimmel had a Navy Department message in which they said Japan would attack. On October 20, I had one from the War Department saying they didn't expect any attack. My message said nothing about a war warning, and Kimmel's did. Short thought the Navy messages were inclined to be more positive, possibly more alarming, in the context than the Army's. The War Department had sent Short no information concerning any U.S. military commitments arising out of the United States-British staff conversations and the joint Canada-United States defense plan, which might have led him to expect U.S. involvement in the Far East. If he had known that Singapore had been alerted and that the governor of the Netherlands East Indies had ordered comprehensive mobilization of his armed forces, Short testified, he would have realized that they considered war very imminent out there. It would have meant possible hostilities on Hawaii, but not necessarily an attack. He was asked about two December 3 Navy messages sent to Kimmel. One had announced that Japanese diplomatic and consular posts at Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, Manila, Washington, and London had been instructed to destroy codes, ciphers, and secret documents. The other reported that Tokyo had ordered London, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Manila each to destroy its purple machine. The Batavia machine, it said, had already been returned to Tokyo. Short denied having known about either message. Like Kimmel, Short did not expect a break in U.S.-Japanese relations as long as the representative of the two nations were still talking in Washington. Neither man knew, as Washington officials had learned from the intercepts, that the Japanese consider the negotiations de facto ruptured and that the Japanese ambassadors were only keeping up the pretense of negotiating. 
From what Kimmel and Short could glean from newspaper accounts, the negotiations were continuing supposedly in good faith. Short, again like Kimmel, had been led to believe that an attack on Pearl Harbor, although possible, was not probable. In view of Hawaii's large population of Japanese aliens, sabotage and subversion seemed much more likely than an attack from outside. He reiterated that messages from the War Department had led him to the view that the prime desire of the U.S. government was to avoid war and to not let any international incident happen in Hawaii that might bring on war. Short's task, as he interpreted number 472, was to guard against hostile action in the form of sabotage and subversion. Thus, Short had responded by reporting that he had alerted for sabotage. Several other messages from Washington at about the same time also advised him to guard against sabotage, reassuring him in his decision. Hearing nothing further from Washington during the nine days between his November 7 sabotage alert report and the attack, he could only assume that his action had been appropriate. Short mentioned two messages in particular that had been available in Washington and that would have been more important than those that were sent to Pearl Harbor the ships in harbor bombing plan intercepts, and the December 7, 1 p.m. message. He said that had that message been relayed immediately by scrambler phone, both he and Marshall had such phones, and it took only about 10 or 15 minutes to get a message through. It would have reached him four hours before instead of seven hours after the attack. Short said Marshall's last-minute message concerning the 1 p.m. message was marked, delay in deciphering due to not being marked priority in Washington. If this message had been sent by scrambler telephone, there would have been time to warm up the planes and put them in the air. The fact that the War Department sent this message by radio in code instead of telephoning it in the clear indicates that the War Department, even as late as 6.48 a.m. December 7th Honolulu time, did not consider an attack on Honolulu as likely enough to warrant drastic action to prepare the islands for the sneak attack. Short quoted the War Department's field service manual on the importance of adequate and timely military intelligence to enable the commander to draw logical conclusions concerning enemy lines of action. Military intelligence is thus an essential factor in the estimate of the situation and in the conduct of subsequent operations. Asked if he was complaining because he had made an error and Washington hadn't corrected him, Short replied, If you are not furnished information, you in all probability will make an erroneous estimate. Also, in the War Department's field service regulations, the best information will be of no use if it arrives too late at the headquarters for which it is intended. Important and urgent information is sent by the most rapid means available to all headquarters affected, without regard to the usual military channels. Committee Chairman Barkley was skeptical that more information would have enabled Short to judge the situation any better than he had. Barkley states, Everybody in Washington, all the high officers in Washington, Navy, Army Intelligence, War Plans, General Staff, all saw these intercepted messages. They all have testified that, notwithstanding those messages, they did not really expect an attack at Pearl Harbor and were surprised when it came. Do you think that if you, or if the Admiral, or both of you together had gotten them, you would have reached any different conclusion from that reached by everyone in Washington? Short replies, I think there was a possibility because Pearl Harbor meant a little more to us. We were a little closer to the situation and would have been inclined to look at that Pearl Harbor information a little more closely. We might not have made the correct decision but I believe there was more chance that either we or someone on our staffs would have had the idea. Barclay states, If that is true, why did you rely for the action you took upon some definite instruction from Washington instead of exercising greater judgment and discretion in doing what you could do with what you had? Short answers, Because they were my only sources of information. I had no source of information outside Hawaii except the War Department. The War Department had many sources of information, 
They had military attachés. They got reports from the State Department and the Commerce Department. They had a certain number of agents scattered around in the Far East. If they were in a position to get information that I had no access to at all, I had every reason to believe that their judgment would be better than my just reading the newspapers. Short defends Army's efforts during attack. Immediately after the attack, Short said he made several reports by telephone to Washington. Then he sent a radiogram giving a succinct account of the event from the Army's viewpoint. Japanese enemy dive bombers estimated number 60 attacked Hickam Field, Wheeler Field, Pearl Harbor at 8 a.m. Stop. Extensive damage to at least three hangars, Wheeler Field, three hangars, Hickam Field, and to planes caught on the ground. Stop. Details not yet known. Stop. Raid lasted over one hour. Stop. Unconfirmed report that the ships in Pearl Harbor badly damaged. Stop. Marine Airfield EWA also badly damaged. Stop. Details later. Before the last raid was completed, Short said a total of 14 U.S. planes got in the air. They shot down 10 enemy planes. Senator Lucas was impressed, so it is a pretty safe assumption that if the planes had been warmed up and ready to go, that considering what you did with the 14 planes, the damage would have been minimized considerably. Short replies, no question about that. I think our pilots showed that they were superior to the Japanese pilots in individual combat that day. When Navy Secretary Knox visited Pearl Harbor immediately after the attack, Short said, he went completely through my field headquarters and spent, I would say, probably two hours, in which we had officers detailed from every section to explain everything that had happened. He got a very complete picture not only of our headquarters, but how we were functioning, and exactly what happened. And at the end of the time, he was so impressed with our headquarters that he directed the Navy to make arrangements to move over into an underground headquarters right alongside of us. Representative Keefe said to Short, summarizing, As commander at Pearl Harbor prior to December 7, 1941, and subsequent to your appointment to that important position, you did everything within your power to provide the physical things necessary to provide for the defense of the Hawaiian Islands. Yet, Keefe said, Short had testified, as to many items of physical property such as guns, installations, radar equipment, airstrips, buildings, and so on, that he had not received but a small part of the material that you had requested prior to December 7, 1941. But according to Marshall's testimony, the material which you did have at Pearl Harbor on December 7, if alerted and effectively used, would have given a good account of itself and perhaps enabled you to repel the attack or to severely minimize the damage that was caused. Do you agree with that? Short said he could have given a better account of himself if he had had more equipment. For example, the best anti-aircraft defense against low-flying planes. The armaments that had done the most damage in the attack were 50 caliber machine guns. At the time of the attack, he had only 109, although the program at the time had called for 345. The number of 50 caliber machine guns in Hawaii had actually been increased by December 1, 1942, to 793, showing how many the War Department considered necessary. And keep in mind that that date is after the Japanese had been seriously defeated at Midway. Keith pressed on. The fact of the matter is, is it not, that except for the possibility of getting a few more guns into action and possibly minimizing to a small extent the damage that was done, this attack would have come in by surprise, isn't that true? Short answers, with the information we had from Washington, it was bound to be a surprise. Short claims his retirement, handled by general staff, made him a scapegoat. He defends himself against Robert's commission charges. After the attack, Short had been relieved of his command. According to him, Marshall's testimony conveyed the idea that Short's retirement had been handled entirely by the Secretary of War Stimson, 
and that he, Marshall, had nothing to do with it. In fact, he was not cognizant of what was being done. However, that apparently was not the case. The correspondence, Short said, did not agree with that. Ferguson quoted from Short's prepared statement to the effect that he did not feel he had been treated fairly or with justice by the War Department. In that statement, he said he thought he had been singled out as an example as the scapegoat for the disaster. Ferguson states, I wish you would be specific and tell me whom you had in mind by saying the War Department. Short answers, I had in mind the general staff in particular headed by Marshall because they were primarily responsible for the policies pursued by the War Department. General Garrow, as head of the War Plans Division, had the direct responsibility for keeping me informed. General Miles, the head of G2, had a very direct responsibility. Ferguson says, what about the Secretary of War? Short answers, I would not have expected him to be as fully aware of the significance of technical things. I would expect him to be fully aware of any policy. Ferguson asks, now, when you use the word scapegoat, will you give us the meaning that you want to convey to us in that word? Short answers, it seems to me that may be a slang expression, but it is a word in very common usage. And I mean just exactly what the common usage meant, that it was someone that they saddled the blame on to get it off of themselves. That is exactly what I want to convey. The same two basic accusations made against Kimmel by the Roberts Commission had also been made against Short, dereliction of duty and errors of judgment. Under date of April 20, 1942, the War Department formalized the Roberts Commission's accusation against Short into 11 specific charges, each of which was considered a violation of the 96th Article of War. When Ferguson questioned Short, he pleaded not guilty to each of the 11 charges. He explained that his actions in every case had been limited by equipment shortages and shaped by the limited information supplied him. He had done the best he could, he said, given the resources and information available. Number 1. Failure to provide an adequate inshore aerial patrol. Not guilty, Short said. He did have an adequate patrol. The air people were satisfied and had full control. It was not designed for air defense. He was using all the equipment he had. Number 2. Failure to provide adequate anti-aircraft defenses. Not guilty. We would have an adequate anti-aircraft defense if the War Department had given us the equipment and had given us the information which indicated imminent attack or if they had replied to my sabotage alert report and indicated any desired modification. Number three, failure to set up an interceptor radar command. Not guilty. We were training personnel as fast as we could to operate an effective interceptor command, and it was set up and operating as effectively as it could. Short told of considerable delay encountered not only in getting the needed equipment, but also in obtaining Department of Interior permission to erect the radar towers on National Park land. Number four, failure to provide a proper aircraft warning service. Not guilty. We were training our personnel as fast as we could to set up an effective aircraft warning service. It was in operation. Number five, failure to provide for the transmission of appropriate warnings to interested agencies. Not guilty. We were restricted by direct order from Marshall from transmitting the November 27 warning to any other than the minimum essential officers. If I had set up an aircraft warning service and gotten it to everybody, we would have had to give it to all the enlisted men. Number six, failure to establish a proper system of defense by cooperation and coordination with the Navy. Not guilty. We had full, complete plans for defense by cooperation with the Navy, which had been approved by General Marshall and Admiral Stark. It would have been carried out 100% if they would have given us the information they had. Number seven, failure to issue adequate orders to his subordinates as to their duties in case of sudden attack. Not guilty. I could not tell subordinates to expect a sudden attack which neither I nor the War Department nor anyone else expected. 
Our information regarding impending hostile action was, by direction of the Chief of Staff, limited to the minimum essential officers. Our standard operating procedure of 5 November 1941 prescribed fully the duties of all personnel in event of any sudden attack. As to the civilians, we had a number of alerts and blackouts. We had definite training of the surgical teams and of the first aid people and of the ambulance corps. And I think that the civilian agencies that had to act not only knew, but they performed their duties extremely well on December 7. Number 8. Failure to take adequate measures to protect the fleet and naval base at Pearl Harbor. Not guilty. I took every measure I thought necessary to protect the fleet and naval base against sabotage. I so reported to the War Department. Marshall testified that I was reasonable in assuming that I was doing exactly what he wanted, because otherwise he would have notified me that he wanted more measures taken. Number 9. Failure to have his airplanes dispersed in anticipation of a hostile attack, after having been warned of the danger thereof. Not guilty. I was never warned of any imminent danger of an air attack. The planes were therefore grouped for more adequate protection against hostile action in the form of sabotage. Number 10. Failure to have his airplanes in a state of readiness for an attack. Not guilty. My aircraft were not in a state of readiness for a surprise attack, but were protected against sabotage as directed by the War Department in the sabotage alert messages of 27th of 28th November 1941, and as reported to the War Department by me. If they had been equipped with ammunition, grouped as they were, and a sabotage attack had been made, there would have been much more damage by exploding ammunition. Number 11. Failure to provide for the protection of military personnel, their families, etc., and of civilian employees on various reservations. We made quite an elaborate plan for evacuating the families of civilians on the military reservation. We asked the War Department for money to establish a camp some four miles east of Schofield. I wrote a personal letter to the Chief of Staff and told him that we were asking for the money to establish these camps on the basis of recreation camps. But our real purpose was to get ready for a possible attack. He answered my letter and stated that guns were needed worse for other purposes. Thus, Short pled not guilty to number 11 also. As the committee wound up its questioning of Short, Barclay asked him if he wished to make any further statement. Short said, As a matter of the interests of the country and as a loyal soldier, I maintained a steadfast silence for four years, and I bore the load of public censure during this time, and I would have continued to bear it so long as I thought the question of national security was involved. However, the war is ended now. He said he was very appreciative of the opportunity I have been given to make a full and frank statement of my point of view. Short thanked the committee members for their attitude and assured them that he had tried to give them fully and frankly all the information he could on the subject. Chapter 29, Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack, November 15, 1945 to May 31, 1946, Part 3. The Joint Congressional Committee still had many potential witnesses in its list whose testimony was expected to prove important. Among these were Admiral R.E. Ingersoll, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, as well as several men who had been closely concerned with magic, Captain L.F. Safford, who had been in charge of the Security Section of Naval Communications, Captain A.D. Kramer, Navy Translator and Courier, and Colonel Rufus S. Bratton, Army Courier. The JCC members did not find it easy to learn how much was known in Washington before the attack about the imminence of war, when it was known, and how much information was relayed to the Pearl Harbor commanders. Top Washington officials confer daily on impending crisis. When testifying before the Hart and Navy Court inquiries, Assistant Chief of Naval Operations Ingersoll had admitted having seen the winds execute before December 7, 1941. 
However, in his JCC testimony, he belittled its importance as a war warning. The wording in that wind's message did not say that we are going to be in a state of war or that hostilities now exist. It referred to a rupture of diplomatic negotiations or that the situation between the countries was becoming critical. If you rupture diplomatic negotiations, you do not necessarily have to burn your codes. The diplomats go home and they can pack up their codes and take them home. Ingersoll considered the destruction of the code dispatches much more important. They not only told their diplomats in Washington and London to burn their codes, but they told their consuls in Manila, in Hong Kong, Singapore, and Batavia to burn their codes. And that did not mean a rupture of diplomatic negotiations, it meant war, and that information was sent out to the fleets as soon as we got it. When we received the original message, which set up the WINS code that became important then, because that would be the first indication that we would get of when the Japanese thought they would rupture negotiations or be at war if a broader interpretation were placed on it. But once we had learned that they were destroying their codes, then the WINS message lost its importance. The fact that the consulates were included cinched, in my opinion, that it was war and not a rupture of diplomatic negotiations or diplomatic relations. Ingersoll did not recall having seen any of the several ships in harbor intercepts, not even the one that divided Pearl Harbor into five areas, to report each shifting and visit of ships from one area to another. If he had, he would have wanted to know why they were interested in the actual location of a ship within a harbor, as distinguished from whether or not the ship just happened to be in port. If he had seen that dispatch, his suspicion would have been aroused. He thought Admiral Kimmel should have been informed. Ingersoll had known of the November 29 deadline set by the Japanese, after which things were automatically going to happen. It was well known that Japanese troops could reach several potential targets in Southeast Asia in a very short time. China, Indochina, Formosa. The situation was reviewed almost daily, he said, at conferences in the office of Navy Secretary Knox. Yet day after day went by after the November 29 deadline without a Japanese strike. Ingersoll states, There was a conference in Mr. Knox's office every morning in which the Director of Naval Intelligence presented the whole situation, and the possibilities were discussed by the Director of War Plans, Admiral Turner. The situation was reviewed every morning. Gerhardt were there in those meetings after the 29th, discussions of why that had occurred. After we had read the Jap Intercept, that after the 29th, things were going to happen automatically. Did anybody in those meetings raise the question that possibly the Japanese were sailing to a distant point of attack? Ingersoll replies, No, none that I recall. The question of an attack on Pearl Harbor, of course, was always considered as a possibility. The places in the Far East were the only places of which we had definite information towards which the Japanese were moving. I did not think that the Japanese would risk an air attack on Pearl Harbor. Our estimate was that the Japanese would not do that that they were fully occupied with what they were doing at that time, and that the risks were too great. In view of our knowledge of Japanese military movements and our close political ties with the British and Dutch, Representative Gearhart and Senator Ferguson tried to determine what the United States would have done had the Japanese struck British and or Dutch positions in not U.S. territory. Ferguson states, Did you know what our policy was prior to Pearl Harbor? If there was an attack on the Malay Peninsula, what the position would be of the United States of America as far as the Navy or the Army were concerned? Ingersoll replies, As far as the Navy and Army were concerned, what we would do was contained in our war plans. I do not think there was anybody in the Navy Department who knew what would happen if Japan went into the Malay Peninsula or into Siam or Thailand. The position of the Navy would have been the position taken by the United States government and what the President would have recommended to the Congress about declaring war. The Navy's position would have been exactly the position of the United States.
Ingersoll did not believe the United States would go to war in the Pacific without any recommendation to the Congress, as they had in the Atlantic. That was not a legal war. The Germans were still here in Washington, and they had not declared war on us for all that we had been doing to them in the Atlantic. The next day, Ingersoll half apologized for his remark. He had almost humorously called the war in the Atlantic as illegal. It was more in the nature of irregular. In the Atlantic, we were doing some things which only a belligerent does. There had been no declaration of war. We had done a great many things that under international law, as it was understood before the last war, were unneutral. It was apparently to her, Germany's, advantage to have us as a non-belligerent rather than as a full belligerent. President Orders Defensive Information Patrol in South China Sea The U.S. government was receiving information on Japanese ship movements in the Southwest Pacific and China Sea from our daily overflights, as well as from reports from the British. Yet, at about 7 p.m. on December 1, the President directed Admiral Thomas Hart, Commander-in-Chief of the Asiatic Fleet in Manila, to charter three small vessels to form a defensive information patrol. The three small ships were to be manned by a U.S. naval officer and equipped with one small gun and a machine gun, the minimum requirements to establish identity as U.S. men of war. They were to be stationed in the paths of known Japanese ship movements, number one between Hainan Island, China, and Hwei on the east coast of Indochina, now Vietnam. Number two, east of the Indochina coast between Kamran Bay and Cape St. Jacques, and number three, off Pointe de Kamau on the southern tip of Indochina. All three vessels were to observe and report by radio Japanese movements in West China Sea and Gulf of Siam. Ferguson wanted to know why Stark had ordered three small vessels to watch for Japanese movements on British possessions. Ingersoll replied simply, the dispatch had said, President directs. That was our reason for doing it. Admiral Stark was told by the President to do it. Admiral Hart was already conducting reconnaissance off that coast by planes from Manila. I am sure Admiral Stark would not have done this unless he had been told. We did not initiate this movement, sir, and we were getting sufficient information from Admiral Hart by the searches which his planes were making. Footnote number 11 reads, In the same place, part 9, ages 4252 through 53. Of these three small vessels, only one got to sea before the Japanese attack. The Isabel left Manila on December 3 with orders to proceed to Kamran Bay on the Indochina coast, ostensibly to search for a lost Navy PBY plane. On the 5th, about 22 miles from the Indochina coast, she was sighted by a Japanese Navy pilot and ordered to return to Manila, where she arrived on December 8. Ken Tolley, Cruise of the Lanikai, Annapolis, Maryland, Naval Institute, 1973, pages 269 and 70. The second ship, the Lanikai, skippered by then-Lieutenant Kent Tolley, was preparing to leave Manila when the attack came. She patrolled the coast of the Philippines for a couple of weeks, finally departing Manila on December 26, and after some adventures reached Australia, in the same work, page 120. The third small ship selected, the Molly Moore, was never commissioned. When the attack came, her mission became superfluous, in the same work, page 272. Author's Note Apparently Hart looked on the mission of these three small vessels as mission impossible. When ordering the Lanikai to the coast of Indochina, in the same work, page 19, Hart said he had felt he was sending its skipper on what looked like a one-way mission. Tully thought that FDR may have been offering these small ships and the men aboard to bait an incident as Casas Belli, in the same work, page 279. Hart wanted to know why the president had sent the message ordering these vessels to sea. He felt the order might have been a reflection on his overflight reports. The LG 1962 Interview of Hart 
Had the president personally given him, Stark, the order to send the dispatch concerning these vessels? Stark said he had discussed with the president where this Japanese expedition going south was likely to hit. His, the president's, thought was the Crop Peninsula. The Philippines was a possibility, and the East Indies, and just where it would go we did not know, and these three small vessels were to assist in that determination. You will see where the president put them, they were well placed to get information, either positive or negative, and it was for that reason, and for the reasons as stated in the dispatch, to get information that he directed that be done. He says, to form a defensive information patrol, to accomplish a purpose, which is to observe and report by radio Japanese movements in the West China Sea and Gulf of Siam. And then he himself designated where those vessels were to be placed, and they were well placed for the purposes for which he wanted them. I simply think that he thought that was additional precautions. He was intensely interested in every move at that time, as we all were. Of course, one cannot know what FDR had in mind in issuing this directive. It may have been out of concern for his commitments to the British and Dutch. He may have been trying to do what Stimson had suggested at FDR's War Cabinet meeting November 25, to maneuver them, the Japanese, into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Few would be killed or wounded by a shot fired on such a minimally equipped U.S. man of war. Yet it might be incident enough to call for U.S. military intervention against the Japanese. Maintaining the Secrecy of the Japanese Intercepts and Magic it was apparent throughout the several investigations that special effort had been made to keep information about the purple machines and the magic intercept secret. Quite understandably, extreme caution was necessary before the war to prevent any security leak. And during the war, when the intercepts were still yielding intelligence valuable in the struggle against the Japanese, it was necessary to continue to maintain tight security. However, the determination to maintain silence persisted even after August 1945 when Japan surrendered and even after President Truman, who had taken office on the death of FDR, had revealed the existence of magic by releasing to the public the secret 1944 reports of the Navy Court of Inquiry and the Army Pearl Harbor Board. When finally, in December 1945, the restrictions against revealing magic were further relaxed to permit witnesses before the JCC to testify and give information regarding cryptanalytic activities, which had to do with the investigation of the Pearl Harbor incident, many witnesses revised their stories. Safford, Bratton, and Kramer had been intimately involved in handling the Japanese intercepts, and each had been questioned at length during previous investigations while the war continued. Each had then faced the same dilemma, how to respond to pressures placed on them by wartime patriotism and loyalty to their superior officers, and how to testify under oath to the truth as they saw it, without revealing military secrets. Then, when questioned during the JCC hearings after the war and after restrictions had been relaxed, they had to decide whether to modify or to defend their previous testimony. As we shall see, each responded differently. Captain L. F. Safford, Naval Communications Security, discovers Kimmel had not been sent magic. In 1941, Safford had been in charge of the security section of Naval Communications. He testified that after the attack, he, like millions of other Americans, blamed Kimmel for the terrible losses at Pearl Harbor. He assumed Kimmel had been sent information derived from magic. Safford was bitter. He could not understand why Kimmel had not been ready for the attack. Safford said he thought that if Kimmel had received the wind's execute, which Safford had seen on December 4, Kimmel surely would have recognized its significance and would have been completely ready for the attack on Pearl Harbor, in fact with his fleet at sea, and Pearl Harbor just an empty nest. After Safford read the Roberts Commission report, he expected to be called as a witness for the prosecution against Kimmel, so he began to review the pre-attack record. 
To his dismay, Safford discovered that important information derived from the magic intercepts decoded before the attack had not gone to Kimmel. By mid-January 1944, Safford realized that the Navy Department had not sent out the war warning prepared by Captain McCollum, which Safford had read in Admiral Noyes' office on the afternoon of December 4, 1941. His sense of justice was aroused. Kimmel had been unfairly accused. Safford then shifted from siding with the prosecution to siding with the defense. At that point, Safford set the wheels in motion that led in time to revealing purple and magic information. On February 21, 1944, Safford called on retired Kimmel in New York. From notes and memory, Safford related to Kimmel information that had been available before the attack in Washington, information which would have been invaluable to the Pearl Harbor commanders. Safford's revelation were Kimmel's first intimation that, in spite of his request to be kept fully informed, Washington had not sent him pre-attack U.S.-Japanese information relevant to his situation as U.S. Fleet Commander-in-Chief. When Safford returned to Washington and attempted to document his assertions to Kimmel, however, he found to his amazement that pre-attack magic intercepts, which were supposed to have been permanently retained in locked Navy files, were missing. When Safford came before the JCC, February 1 through 5, 1946, he had already appeared, while the war was still going on, before the Hart Inquiry, the APHB, the NCI, and the Hewitt Inquiry. Both the APHB and NCI had been authorized by Congress to conduct thorough investigations and to handle super-secret materials. Safford had told them the truth about magic and purple as best he could, and he continued to stick to his story when appearing at the JCC. Safford described to the Congressional Committee in considerable detail the procedure which had been followed to prevent knowledge of magic, and especially the Winds Code Execute, from becoming known. The personal or immediate custodian was Lieutenant Commander Harrison, U.S. Naval Reserve. Safford explained that the only people who had access to then-Commander, now Captain Kramer's, safe were those on duty under Captain Kramer. Everything was normally clear through Commander Harrison. There were no more than ten people at the most, translators and the yeoman on duty in Kramer's section, the head of the section, Safford, or the officer who relieved Safford, or the director of naval intelligence might possibly have been called for files at any time. Any higher authority would have been given the files without question if he had requested them. A copy of the Winds Execute message should have been in the files of Safford's division in the locked safe of Captain Kramer. Safford states, To the best of my knowledge, the combination to the safe was held by Kramer and Harrison alone. There was a copy of the combination in a sealed envelope in my safe. There was another copy of the combination in a sealed envelope in the safe of the aide to the Chief of Naval Operations. That was required for all safes in naval operations, so in case of casualty to the man who regularly opened the safe, the safe could be opened when we had to. I know of no occasion when we ever had to open those sealed envelopes and enter the safe. I might add, whenever an officer was relieved, we changed the combination on a safe and substituted the new cards, and that was the only time we ever had to get into those envelopes. Finally, in 1944, Safford succeeded in locating a single set of most of the missing intercepts, had copies made, and placed in the files where they belonged. However, one message, Japan's Winds Execute, which Safford considered especially crucial, was not found. Safford claimed Winds Execute was received before December 7. If so, was that significant? Washington officials were well aware of the impending crisis, Safford said. On December 3, the U.S. military attaché in the American embassy in Tokyo had been ordered to destroy his ciphers and codes. On December 4, Greenwich time, December 3, Washington time, the U.S. naval attaché in Tokyo was ordered to do the same. Also, on December 4, the U.S. consular agents in the Far East had been told to destroy their codes. 
When Safford knew he would be called to testify before the Congressional Committee, he prepared a written statement. It was primarily about the WINS code setup. On November 26 and 28, Washington had learned from Tokyo Circulars 2353 and 2354 that Japan planned to broadcast in the course of a routine news program a false weather message with a hidden meaning. If the Japanese embassies and consulates worldwide had to destroy their codes and code machines and could no longer decipher encoded messages, this so-called WINS code setup would enable Tokyo to communicate secretly with her overseas officials and to advise them when events leading to war would automatically begin to happen. Safford's prepared statement started, there was a WINS message. It meant war, and we knew it meant war. By we, Safford meant those who had been working on magic and with whom he had been in close contact, such as Kramer, McCollum, Wilkinson, and Noyes. Safford considered that message clear evidence of the imminence of war. Thus, he was puzzled when Washington officials did not send out any truly urgent warnings. In Safford's words, the winds execute was the unheeded warning of war. As soon as the Japanese winds code setup messages were intercepted, Admiral Wilkinson, Director of Naval Intelligence, directed Safford, through Admiral Noyes, Director of Naval Communications, to alert all intercept stations capable of monitoring Japanese news broadcasts to listen for such a false weather announcement. Safford described for the committee the preparations he had made for intercepting this message. Safford not only considered the WINS code setup extremely important, but he believed that the eagerness of senior U.S. officers to have Japanese news programs followed closely on the chance of intercepting such a false weather broadcast was evidence that they shared his view that it concerned something much more important than merely a break in diplomatic negotiations. That receipt of a WINS execute would even portend the actual outbreak of war. U.S. government officials realized that if the Japanese implemented their WINS code and actually sent such a false weather message, it would have had still further significance as a definite portent of conflict. Safford considered the implementation of the WINS code the most important message we had up to the time of the pilot message on December 6, announcing that the Japanese reply to our note of November 26 was on its way. The significance of the winds execute, if received, was reinforced by intelligence available from other sources. Number one, the Japanese cable designating November 29 the deadline for terminating U.S.-Japanese negotiations, after which things are automatically going to happen. Number two, the instructions to overseas Japanese nationals to destroy their codes. The winds execute gained further significance because of its indication that Japan wanted to reach its nationals all over the world after their codes were destroyed because of the positive evidence it would give that Japan definitely intended to act soon, and that war was about to start against the country or countries indicated, England, Russia, United States. According to Safford, any country or countries named in a wind to execute would actually be involved in the war from the very beginning, and not just as a spectator. Thus, the interception of a wind to execute would provide us with an announcement of the intentions and decision of the Japanese government. In Safford's words, it would be a short-range forecast of war. Safford testified that a winds execute was actually intercepted in Morse code and that Navy courier Kramer had delivered it to him in his office on the morning of December 4, 1941, typed on yellow teletype paper. It had indicated war with England and war with the United States. Kramer had underscored the three code words in the message and had written below in pencil or colored crayon a rough translation. War with England, including NEI, etc. War with the U.S., peace with Russia. This is it, Kramer said as he handed the paper to Safford. This meant that Japan would soon be at war not only with Great Britain, but also with the United States. 
This was the broadcast we had strained every nerve to intercept, Safford said. This was the feather in our cap. This was the tip-off which would prevent the U.S. Pacific Fleet being surprised at Pearl Harbor the way the Russians had been surprised at Port Arthur. This was what the Navy Communications Intelligence had been preparing for since its establishment in 1924, war with Japan. Safford had immediately sent the winds execute by special messenger to noise naval communications. If the messenger could not find noise in a reasonable time, he was to let Safford know. In a few minutes, Safford received word that the message had been delivered. Representative Clark wanted to know if Safford had immediately put it in the process of handling and distribution and disposal just as in the case of all other magic. Safford said he had. He had checked Kramer's folder of intercepts before Kramer had set out to make his daily routine deliveries of magic intercepts about noon that day, December 4. The wins execute had been included, so presumably it was delivered that day to the usual recipients. Not only that, Safford said, but in addition, it was telephoned around to various people by Admiral Noise, and so far as I know, that was the first time that had ever been done. About an hour later, Noise called Safford on the interphone. He did not mention the winds execute specifically, but told Safford that we had better tell Guam to destroy all their excess codes and ciphers. Safford then went to Noise's office, that was at about 3 p.m., and there Noise showed him a several-page message prepared in McCollum's far eastern section of naval intelligence. The final paragraph of McCollum's long message, Safford testified, closely followed the winds execute giving every indication that Captain McCollum had read the wind's message, had appreciated its importance, and was trying to get an urgent war warning out to the Pacific fleet. Safford recalled that according to McCollum's message, Japan was about to declare war on the United States, about to declare war on England, including the Netherlands, East Indies, and so forth, and would maintain peace with Russia. The last sentence added the forecast or evaluation, war is imminent. After the discussion of McCollum's message, Safford saw Wilkinson leave Noyes' office with it in his hand, saying, I am going to send this message if I can get the front office to release it. Safford learned much later that the McCollum message had not been sent. Safford responds to Wins Execute as Chief Naval Communications Security. Being in charge of the security section of naval communications, Safford's jurisdiction and responsibilities were limited to maintaining the security of communications. He was not permitted to send evaluations or orders to men in the field. Any messages he sent had to deal specifically with maintaining document security. In fulfillment of this obligation, and as a result of the receipt of the winds execute, he filed four messages for transmittal between 3 and 3.20 p.m. on the afternoon of December 4. He instructed the naval attachés at Tokyo, Peiping, Bangkok, and Shanghai to destroy all secret and confidential files, except those essential for current purposes. Similar instructions were sent to the Commander-in-Chief Asiatic Fleet in Manila. Safford also sent a priority message to Guam and Samoa at 8 p.m., ordering a change in codes from their then-current code RIP-65 to a new code RIP-66. This order was promptly received in Guam. Seventeen minutes later, a secret message was released by Ingersoll to Guam, deferred precedence to allow time for the new code RIP-66 to be implemented asking Guam to destroy all secret and confidential publications, retaining minimum cryptographic channels necessary for essential communications. Be prepared to destroy instantly, in event of emergency, all classified matter you retain. Then, in the attempt to warn Wake, Safford prepared a strong message that read in part, In view of imminence of war, destroy all registered publications on Wake Island except this system, 
and current editions of Aircraft Code and Direction Finder Code. Ingersoll refused to send this strongly worded message as drafted by Safford. He released instead an ambiguous message with Wake's name deleted from the text. Moreover, it was held up until December 6 when it was sent deferred precedence, which meant delivery, in Pearl Harbor for relay to Wake by 9 p.m. on Monday morning, December 8, 1941. Safford didn't know when it got to Pearl Harbor, but he said, no action was taken on it until long after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And then, because we had sent an ambiguous message, the fleet communications officer sent another ambiguous message. The net result was that when Wake was captured, I believe the 24th of December, some of the cryptographic aids fell into Japanese hands, and it was reported at the time by Commandant 14th Naval District. And later, on some of the alphabet strips were captured at Kiska in some of the abandoned Japanese dugouts. Given the limitation of their responsibilities and the Navy's restrictions on their duties, Safford and McCollum did all they could to notify the field commanders. But their intended warnings were watered down, their urgency reduced by being sent deferred priority or withheld. The winds execute seemed to be virtually ignored. Safford could not understand why anyone would want to fail to make use of a winds execute message that meant war. Receipt of winds execute contested by other witnesses. Most of the questions addressed to Safford by members of the JCC concerned the WINS code and its implementation. Had we, or hadn't we, intercepted a WINS execute before the attack on Pearl Harbor as Safford maintained? Once the Navy intercepted and translated Japan's WINS code setup on November 28th, its code clerks had been alerted to listen to Japanese news broadcasts. Safford insisted their effort succeeded and that the broadcast in which the crucial false weather message was embedded was intercepted on December 4. Yet few people profess to believe him. They prefer to believe that the Japanese government really hadn't implemented the setup before the attack at all, and that therefore we couldn't have intercepted a wind's execute. The situation was complicated by the fact that Safford could find no copy of it in the Navy Department's files. Those files could not be located, he said. All documentary evidence concerning the receipt of a wind's execute, together with all information relating to the instructions to watch for it, which had been sent to Cheltenham, Maryland, the station Safford claimed had intercepted it, had vanished. But note 66 reads, in the same work, page 3756 through 58, regulations required the receiving stations, including Cheltenham, to retain one copy of every intercept only until notified that the other two copies forwarded to the Navy Department had been received. Then the receiving stations were free to destroy their copies if they wished, or they could retain them temporarily for reference. Until the August 1945 release to the press of the secret Army and Navy Pearl Harbor reports, the public had heard little or nothing about Wynn's code. Safford gave Hart a list of 15 reliable witnesses he believed had seen the Wynn's execute. In a May 14, 1945 memorandum to Lieutenant Commander John F. Sonnet, Assistant Attorney General in the Navy, who had served as counsel to the Hewitt investigation, Safford listed 26 officers who he believed had known of its interception on December 4, 1941 but when questioned, they denied it. Most of the people who had been in a position before the attack to know of the winds execute, if it had existed, swore they had never seen it. In spite of their testimony, Safford believed that McCollum, Wilkinson, Hewitt, and Noyes, among others, knew it had been intercepted. By the time Safford appeared before the committee, he could not name a single person whom he could confidently expect to corroborate the pre-attack receipt of the message. He would rather not attempt to estimate what any other witness is going to say on the stand. Ferguson then cited three or four persons involved in the Pearl Harbor investigations other than Safford, who admitted to having seen a winds execute prior to the attack. He quoted specifically from the testimony of Assistant Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Ingersoll, 
before the heart inquiry and the naval court of inquiry. Footnote 71 reads, in the same work, pages 3788 through 90, Ingersoll testimony before the heart inquiry concerning others who admitted having seen a winds execute prior to the attack. Ferguson cited an affidavit by a Colonel Moses W. Pettigrew referring to an implementation message which he had seen on or about the 5th of December, 1941. Ferguson also quoted from NCI top-secret testimony by Admiral Turner to the effect that he had learned on December 6th that the winds message came in and that it meant at least a break in diplomatic relations and probably war. Also, a Lieutenant Colonel Kendall J. Fielder who had testified before the Roberts Commission to three signal words as an indication that the code had been followed and that the attack was planned. In the same work, Part 8, pages 3792-94. to Safford said, This was the first time that I did not know that I was standing alone against the world in my testimony. Seeking corroboration of his memory, Safford writes Kramer on duty in the Pacific. Safford knew that Kramer was familiar with the winds execute. After all, it was Kramer who had translated the crucial passages and handed the teletyped intercept to Safford on the morning of December 4. Then, a week or so later, Kramer and Safford together had gone over a special folder of messages leading up to Pearl Harbor that Kramer was assembling for acting Navy Secretary Forrestal in Secretary Knox's absence from the country, in Hawaii, then a territory not yet a state, to investigate the attack. Safford believed a copy of the Winds Execute was included in that special folder. Safford had discussed the Winds Intercept with Kramer in the spring of 1943, before Kramer left for Pearl Harbor and active duty in the Pacific. At that time, Kramer's memory, Safford said, coincided with his own. They had not then looked for it, for they had both expected to find everything pertaining to that Winds message in the files. In any event, the Winds Execute was not then in controversy. After that, Safford had had no occasion to talk to anyone about the Winds Execute until late 1943 when he had been ordered by the Director of Naval Communications to prepare a history of radio intelligence up to and including the attack on Pearl Harbor. He then began researching the pre-Pearl Harbor record, including, of course, the Winds Code setup and the Winds Execute. At that point, Safford started asking anyone he encountered who had been on duty in the War and Navy Departments prior to Pearl Harbor and might have been expected to have first-hand knowledge of the Winds message, what they could remember about events at that period. That was when Safford learned from Commander Wesley A. Wright, who had had it from McCollum, that McCollum's long warning message of December 4 had not been sent. He also discovered then that many intercept files were missing. In his research of pre-Pearl Harbor radio intelligence, Safford testified he wanted the benefit of Kramer's recollections. So on December 22, 1943, he wrote Kramer, then in the Pacific. He asked Kramer primarily about his December 6 through 7, 1941, deliveries of the Japanese 14-part reply to Washington's top officials. The war was still in progress, so Safford phrased his questions very carefully in the event that my letter might fall into unauthorized hands. He wrote, We can't find the original weather report and its translation. What became of it? When Kramer replied, December 28, 1943, he answered the questions about the December 6-7 through 7 deliveries, but had misunderstood Safford's question about the weather report. Safford wrote a second letter January 22, 1944, asking many more questions about the winds execute. This time, he assigned code numbers to persons, dates, messages, places, etc., so that Kramer could answer Safford's questions by citing numbers. He also asked for Kramer's comment on Safford's suspicions since November 15, 1943, 
which he said had been confirmed December 2, 1943, and absolutely proved January 18, 1944, that Kimmel, long considered a scapegoat, was actually the victim of a frame-up. Safford said he had overwhelming proof of the guilt of Opnav and the general staff. Kramer did not reply to Safford's second letter. When Kramer later turned the correspondence over to the JCC, Safford's remarks about a frame-up, Opnav, and the general staff returned to haunt him. Why was Safford pressured to change his testimony about the wind's execute? Safford knew that when Kramer testified before the NCI in Pearl Harbor during the summer of 1944, he had described in some detail the interception of the wind's execute and his role in its translation and disposition. Safford fully expected Kramer to acknowledge that a wind's execute had been received before December 7. In fact, Safford said also that Kramer had told him, even after the start of the JCC hearings as recently as just before Christmas, 1945, that he remembered the wind's execute. Over and over again, the JCC members asked Safford about the wind's code setup and whether a wind's execute had actually been received before the attack. Why was no one other than Safford willing to testify to having seen the winds execute before December 7? Safford states, In 1945, there was a determined effort made to have me reverse my testimony before previous investigations and to say I had never seen the winds message. Relentless effort was made to persuade him that he must be mistaken, that there had never been a winds execute. Lieutenant Commander John Sonnet, Special Representative of the Secretary of the Navy and Legal Advisor to Admiral Hewitt, interviewed Safford several times. Sonnet had told Safford repeatedly that he thought his memory was playing him tricks, that he might be suffering from hallucinations. Sonnet told Safford he should change his testimony to permit reconciling all previous discrepancies. In some cases, the idea was staged outright. In some cases, it was implied, and in other cases, it was unexpressed, but obviously the end in view. In all his experience as a commissioned officer of the Navy, Safford said he had never seen anything like it. The whole procedure struck Safford as quite unusual, and he had prepared a memorandum on the subject while the events were still fresh in my memory. Safford believed Sonnet had employed similar tactics on other witnesses whose testimony had favored Admiral Kimmel, particularly Rochefort and Kramer. When Sonnet testified before the JCC later, he denied that he tried to influence Safford in any way. Many witnesses mentioned a false winds message that was at one time believed authentic. Richardson states, did it ever occur to you that that, the false winds message, was the only message that ever came in there on the 4th and that you were mistaken? Safford replies, this is only about the 20th time such a suggestion has been made to me, but I saw the winds message myself. To Safford, it began to look like a conspiracy. A message had been intercepted, he was sure of that, the so-called winds execute, that he considered a short-range forecast of war positive evidence that the United States would be involved from the very beginning in the war that was looming with Japan. Yet the Washington officials who, according to Safford, had received the message, had really done nothing to warn the field commanders about it. McCollum's long warning message had not been sent. What seemed like an orchestrated attempt had been made to persuade anyone who might have seen, or who had ever admitted seeing, the winds execute before the attack to deny it. One person after another, named by Safford as possible witnesses, including those who had admitted during earlier investigations that they had seen it before the attack, changed their stories, decided they had been mistaken, or denied that they had seen it at all. Safford himself, who refused to change his story, was vilified. Blame for the surprise attack had been levied by the Roberts Commission and by public opinion against the two Pearl Harbor commanders. And then there was the disappearance not only of the Wind's execute message itself, which should have been retained in the files, 
but also any reference to the instructions to Cheltenham Station concerning its interception. Moreover, other crucial pre-attack magic intercepts had turned up missing as well. Representative John W. Murphy questioned Safford about his remarks in his letter to Kramer, to the effect that no one in OPNAV can be trusted, and that Kimmel was victim of a frame-up. Murphy states, Tell us who was in OPNAV who could not be trusted. Please give us some names. Who were you saying could not be trusted? Names, please. Who could not be trusted? Names, please. I am still waiting. Waiting. Will you please give us the names as to who could not be trusted in OPNAV? Please, sir. Safford replied, I prefer not to answer. Murphy also asked Safford whom he was accusing of framing Kimmel in short. Framing somebody, Murphy said, was one of the meanest and lowest crimes. When pressed to say whether he felt that the General Staff of the United States Army under General Marshall and the General Staff of the Navy under Admiral Stark had framed Kimmel in short, Safford replied, I felt that way. Senator Scott W. Lucas also questioned Safford ruthlessly about his letter to Kramer. He asked especially why the men whose names Safford had mentioned, oil and patriotic Americans all, would want to secrete or destroy or disturb an important message of this kind. Safford finally said that he really had no proper basis for suspicion against Stark and Marshall. He had no suspicion directed against any individual who can be named. But the fact remained. Official records have disappeared from the files of the Navy Department, and that is a suspicious circumstance. I have no idea how they disappeared. It is a fact that they are not present and cannot be accounted for. However, Safford said he had no suspicion against any individual. He could name nobody. Representative J. Bayard Clark was also relentless in questioning Safford. The effect of Safford's wins execute testimony, if true, Clark pointed out, was to accuse the most senior Army and Navy officers, Stark and Marshall, not only of neglect of duty, but also of violating the criminal law of the land by secreting, removing, defacing, or destroying public records. Safford admitted that his testimony was diametrically opposed to that of other witnesses. However, he said, the fact remained that documents were missing from the files. Murphy even badgered Safford about his behavior at the time of the attack. Safford told the committee he had interpreted the winds execute to mean that war would commence within two or three days in all probability, possibly Saturday, December 6, possibly Sunday, December 7. That was the best estimate that could be made as to the timing implied by a message of that nature. The 1 p.m. message had come in early that Sunday morning, yet Murphy pointed out Safford had had no one on duty to translate that message promptly. He had left the office Saturday at 4.30 p.m. and was at home, in Murphy's words, still in pajamas having breakfast at 2 o'clock. Safford explained that he had fulfilled his responsibilities as head of the security section of Naval Communications before he left the department on Saturday. He had done his best to alert the men in the field by sending out instructions concerning the need to destroy confidential codes and ciphers. He was not authorized to send out warnings to the field and he had no responsibility to issue orders to the translators. Neither the Japanese reply to our note of November 26, nor the 1 p.m. message, had come in before Safford's duty ended on Saturday. Moreover, Sunday was his regular day off. Even so, Murphy practically accused Safford of not being interested in protecting the American Navy. Murphy states, Do I understand you to say you are not responsible for anything at all that might help with winning the war? Keith interjects, Mr. Chairman, I don't think that the answer bears any such interpretation. I think it is an unfair question. The witness didn't testify to any such thing. The witness is entitled to some degree of fairness and fair play. I object because the witness has testified that under the setup he had no responsibility for translators. You are trying to make it appear that he did have and had no interest in protecting the welfare of the nation. 
When Keith had an opportunity to question Safford, he said he was puzzled and assumed other committee members were too. What possible interest, personal interest, might Safford have in this controversy? You realize, of course, Keefe said to Safford, that in view of the implications that have been stated in the cross-examination of you, especially by the gentleman from Pennsylvania, Murphy, that you have made some rather strong charges. That may well militate against your career as a naval officer. Did you realize that when you came here as a witness? Of course, Safford replied, every time he had testified. True, he had no personal interest, except I started it and I've got to see it through. Keefe states, and despite the fact that you have nothing personally to gain and everything to lose, you have persisted in the story every time you have testified. Safford replies, I have. I believe the best defense is telling the truth. Finally, Safford completed five days, February 1 through 6, before the JCC, battered and bruised perhaps, but unbowed. His testimony remained consistent throughout the investigations. Chief Warren Officer Ralph T. Briggs, the Cheltenham Code Clerk who had intercepted the wind's execute, had bowed to the command of his superior officer and did not testify. Safford had respected Briggs's request for confidentiality, never mentioned his name, and revealed nothing Briggs had told him in confidence. Because of personal problems, his wife was going blind. Briggs complied with the order of Captain Harper, his superior officer, out of fear he would be fired if he disobeyed. Only since his retirement in 1977 has he acknowledged intercepting the wind's execute and located records proving this. The reassurance Stafford received from Briggs that a wind's execute had actually been picked up on December 4, 1941, must have given him added confidence in standing up to the vigorous and grueling cross-examination by some of JCC's Democratic members. His determination to learn the truth about Pearl Harbor persisted for the rest of his life. He worked closely with this author in trying to follow investigative leads and to explain discrepancies in some of the testimony. Safford later was recognized for some of his contributions to cryptography. On February 11, 1946, the Navy Department awarded him the Legion of Merit for his work as a cryptographic expert from March 1942 to September 1945. In 1958, Congress rewarded him $100,000 for his efforts in solving foreign codes and constructing our own codes. And in 1983, a decade after his death, he was awarded a delayed patent for his invention that overcomes jamming of radio communications. Kramer, U.S. Navy translator and courier, testifies. On February 6, Captain Alwyn Dalton Kramer took the stand. 42 years old and a 1925 graduate of the Annapolis Naval Academy, Kramer had 21 years in the Navy. He had been in charge of a section of the Division of Naval Communications, but at the time of the attack, he had actually been serving under Safford in the security section. During the crucial months before December 7, he had been the Navy's courier and Japanese translator. A couple of years after the attack, he was sent to the Pacific where he served under Admiral Nimitz in Pearl Harbor and then under Admiral Halsey in Nomiya, New Caledonia. He had been promoted during the war from lieutenant commander to captain. As Japanese translator and Navy courier, Kramer had been a crucial player in the pre-attack situation. It was hoped that, with his intimate knowledge of the Japanese intercepts, he would be able to shed some light on the receipt of these intercepts and the timing of their delivery to the various recipients. When he was sworn in by Chairman Barkley, the old Senate caucus room was packed, the audience tense in anticipation. Among those who had been attending the hearings regularly for weeks was Alice Roosevelt Longworth, daughter of the late Republican President Theodore Roosevelt and widow of the late Speaker of the House, Nicholas Longworth. Mrs. Longworth was in her usual seat on a bench behind the committee members. At the other end of the room was Mrs. Kramer, who was often seen standing on her seat nervously biting her fingernails during five days her husband was a witness. Kramer said he had been thoroughly familiar with the Japanese magic intercepts, but 
It was not essential for the activities of my section that I be so familiar with the negotiations, nor with the status of the diplomatic arrangements and intercourse between this country and Japan. However, his familiarity with the intercepts clearly made him one of the JCC's most important witnesses. Kramer had not been called to testify before the Roberts Commission or the Hart Inquiry. However, in 1943-44, when stationed in the South Pacific, he had had occasion to review the pre-attack situation. At that time, he received two letters from Safford, one dated December 22, 1943, which he had answered, and a second dated January 22, 1944, which he had not. Then in mid-May 1944, Kramer's commanding officer, Halsey, received a letter from Kimmel. Kimmel asked Halsey to consult Kramer about the wins execute and the December 6-7 through 7 deliveries of the crucial last-minute Japanese intercepts to top Washington officials. Kramer reviewed the situation in his mind at that time and wrote a memorandum. For the benefit of Halsey, answering in effect both Safford's second letter and Kimmel's letter to Halsey, Halsey read Kramer's memorandum and returned it to him. Kramer did not send it to Safford. For reasons of security, he made only a single copy, which he retained in his personal files in a sealed envelope. In September 1944, Kramer was issued travel orders to go from Halsey's headquarters in New Caledonia to Pearl Harbor to testify before the Navy Court of Inquiry. When he appeared on September 13, he spoke quite readily about the arrangements made to intercept weather broadcasts, about his having been shown the winds execute when it was received, and about his having helped to interpret it. The following spring, the Hewitt Inquiry had begun. On May 22, 1945, when Kramer appeared there, he was less positive that the winds execute had included the words referring to the United States, Egashe no Kaze Ame. When recalled by Hewitt a couple of months later, Kramer was again questioned about the winds execute this time by Lieutenant Commander John F. Sonnet, Counsel to Hewitt, and Special Assistant to the Secretary of the Navy. His testimony this time, on July 6, 1945, differed in important respects from his 1944 testimony before the NCI. In replying to Sonnet, Kramer adopted Sonnet's phraseology, agreeing that there was a wind's message, but he could not say with certainty what the contents were. Nor could he recall the exact Japanese nomenclature used, but the phrase, not in accordance with expectations, could have the implication of our words, relations are reaching a crisis, either a minor crisis or a major crisis. It could mean simply that negotiations concerning an understanding with the United States were at an end or that relations were to be broken, or it could even mean that the crisis was so severe that war was imminent. In his testimony before the JCC, Kramer said that in mid or late September, before the committee began its work, he was invited to Stark's home for lunch. Also invited were Shurman and McCollum. The luncheon was largely and primarily a social affair and we discussed old times. But Kramer said some aspects of Pearl Harbor were discussed. The chief point he remembered was as to what time Admiral Stark got down to his office Sunday morning, December 7, and whether there was a conference in his office. There were no papers at the luncheon and no mention was made of the WINS code message, the pilot message, or the 14-part Japanese reply. Then on September 28, Kramer was hospitalized. A month earlier, he had gone to the Navy Medical Hospital at Bethesda for a routine physical checkup. The hospitalization of the most important witness in the upcoming congressional investigation attracted press attention. A United Press dispatch reported Republican charges denied by the Navy that he had been broken in mind and body and was being held incommunicado in a hospital psychopathic ward. An Associated Press story also held, quoting an unidentified source, that Kramer was being badgered to change his original testimony. According to the New York Times, Kramer had been beset and beleaguered, badgered and beset by an effort to break down his testimony. 
He denied the charge and asserted that he was feeling very well and would appear before the committee prepared to state fully anything I know that they may want to know. Kramer was visited in the hospital by Safford and committee members Gearhart and Keefe. Their conversation was very pleasant in nature, Kramer said. They made no attempt to bulldoze him into changing his opinion or anything of that kind. Kramer was also interviewed at the hospital by reporters. Kramer's NCI wins co-testimony versus his refreshed JCC testimony. In his December 1943 and January 1944 letters, Safford had asked Kramer about his recollections of the pre-attack situation in Washington, especially about the wins execute in Kramer's December 6-7 intercept deliveries. When Kramer appeared before the JCC, Keefe questioned him about his 1944 memorandum prepared for Admiral Halsey. In that memorandum, and again before the NCI, Kramer had detailed his role in translating and delivering the pre-attack intercepts. Passage by passage, Keefe went over the memorandum with Kramer, and passage by passage, Kramer modified his 1944 statements. There were serious discrepancies between Kramer's earlier 1944 NCI testimony and his later newly refreshed JCC recollections concerning the receipt or non-receipt of a wins execute. At the NCI, Kramer had testified quite readily about the wins execute, even volunteering details on his own. Higashi no Kazayame is east wind rain. The sense of that, however, meant strained relations or a break in relations, possibly even implying war with a nation to the eastward, the United States. However, when Keefe questioned Kramer, he waffled. Keefe states, was it the truth? Kramer replies, it was not, sir. It was the truth as it came to my mind at the time. That occasion, namely the Naval Court of Inquiry, was the first time that the question of what country appeared in that piece of teletype ever came up in any conversation in which I was participating. Keefe states, so that we now have a situation where you make a statement on a vital issue before the Naval Court of Inquiry, which you admit was not true because you claim that subsequent events have now convinced you that the answer which you gave was not true. Is that the fact? Kramer replies, Despite the fact that I was caught cold at the NCI on that point when the question was propounded, my reaction even then was that only one country was involved on that piece of teletype paper. Eve states, Now you want us to understand when I read your testimony before the Naval Court that according to your present refreshed and current recollection you were mistaken, that there were no such words in the message that you saw. Kramer replies, no words referring to the United States. Eve states, you do not remember what words were in the message. Is that your testimony, Captain? Kramer says, what I mean to imply by that, I think it has been reiterated many times, is that I do not now and have never known since the time I saw that piece of teletype exactly what Japanese phraseology was in it, sir. Eve states, you pretended to know what words were in it when you testified before the Naval Court of Inquiry, did you not? Kramer says, that was apparently the impression I created, yes, sir. Keefe states, Yes, now I want to understand what your testimony is today. Am I correct in the assumption that according to your present, or what you have referred to many times as your current recollection after being refreshed, you are not able to tell this committee what words were in that coded execute message? Kramer replies, My present belief and conviction is that piece of teletype referred to one country, and that country was England. Ishi no Kaze Hari. Keefe states, I asked you the simple question as to whether the statement which you made, which I have read to you, the answers that you gave in response to those questions was the truth. Was it or wasn't it? Kramer replies, it was not the whole truth as I see it now, inasmuch as there was no reference in that answer to any handwriting on the teletype message. Keefe then turned Kramer's attention to his mid-1945 testimony before Hewitt concerning the wins execute. Kramer had said at that time, Kramer, it may have been Higashi no Kazeame, specifically referring to the United States, as I have previously testified at Pearl Harbor. 
but I am less positive of that now than I believe I was at the time. The reason for revision in my view on that is the fact that in thinking it over, I have a rather sharp recollection in the latter part of that week of feeling that there was still no overt mention or specific mention of the United States in any of this traffic, which I was seeing all of and which also was the only source in general of my information since I did not see, as a rule, the dispatches from the fleet commanders or going out to them from operations. Keefe replies, So as late as the time you testified before Admiral Hewitt, you were of the opinion that it may have contained the words Higashi no Kaze Ame, but you were becoming uncertain about it in the light of your further refreshing. Kramer replies, I meant to imply by that that I did not recall and still do not recall the precise wording of the Japanese on the piece of teletype paper. Keefe states, So we now get to the point of your testimony here that there was a message, it had something on it, and must have had something on it to designate it as a WINS code execute message. Then I am to understand, Captain Kramer, that this message, which was considered of top importance by everybody, which everybody was looking for and on the lookout for, and for which you have testified specific arrangements had been set up, as in connection with no other message, after this message comes in you see it, you read it, you determine that this is the message you've been looking for, and you can't tell us now what was on that message, or what it said. Kramer replies, that is correct, sir. Keefe states, then Mr. Sonnet examined you about a lot of other matters. Then, Captain Kramer, at the conclusion of the examination of Admiral Hewitt, is it a fair assumption to conclude that as far as your testimony discloses, there was a WINS execute code message received in the middle of the week, the exact date of which you were then uncertain, which may have referred to the United States, England, or possibly Russia. You were not certain. You were not then certain, and you were not certain what the message specifically said, but it may have referred to one or both or all three of the countries in the original code setup. Is that what you meant to tell Admiral Hewitt? Kramer replies, that is what I meant to tell him at the time. Eve states, now you, as the man in charge of translations of these messages, with knowledge that the whole government was set to pick up this very vital and important message, who handled that message, who saw it, who read it, who checked the interpretation of the watch officer on that message, sit here before us today and say you can't tell us what the message said. You have no recollection of what it said at all. Is that correct? Kramer replies, that is correct, sir. However, I would like to point out to you, Mr. Keefe, that I think that an entirely unwarranted emphasis and importance is being attributed to that message, not only in this hearing, but in past hearings and in the press. There were many other messages more specific as to Japanese intentions during this period. A WINS message would have been only one further indication of the general trend of this traffic, as well as the general trend of the international situation. Keefe replies, well, I am very happy that you have made that statement, Captain because I have concluded that, as one member of this committee, a long time ago that there were plenty of messages to have warned those who read them and saw them that war was imminent and just about to break, without this wind's execute message. But Captain Kramer, the Navy Department, and all of the officials in the Navy Department, and I assume the War Department too, considered that the wind's execute message was of supreme importance. Otherwise, why did they set up this great setup of cards and treat it as they did, with complete priority over every other message that was received? Well, it did appear, didn't it? Now, this message came in over the teletype, didn't it? Kramer, yes, sir. Keefe, yes, yes, you saw it. Kramer, I saw it. Keefe states, The thing that attracted the attention of the GY watch officer was that in this message appeared the same Japanese language words that were in the original setup. Isn't that true? And you still want to say to us that you can't recall what those words were. Kramer, that is correct, sir. Keefe, they must have been the words of the original code, otherwise you wouldn't have paid any attention to it. 
And it is because the words on this teletype are the original Japanese code words in the original code setup that you determined that this was the coded execute message at that time. Isn't that true? Kramer replies, it is not, sir. I should like to explain precisely what I meant by that. The determination was not made by me in the case of this piece of teletype. On the number of previous times when I had been called down concerning possible messages in this wind system, I had examined long sheets of this teletype paper, had looked for the point of whether or not the expression was repeated or appeared as it was supposed to appear in the middle or at the end or both. In this particular case, my presumption was that the GY watch officer had made that determination in as much as the piece of paper I saw was only a short piece of paper, three or four inches in length as I recollect, and that presumably he had identified this message as being an authentic wind's message, not only from the wording that actually appeared in it, but from its location in the Japanese plain language broadcast. That was a function of the GY watch officer, not only as regards this wind system, but as regards all systems to determine its authenticity and to break it down. The only reason for having shown this piece of paper to me was in connection with the Japanese words thereon, and that is all, sir. Keith states, And you looked at those words and looked at the interpretation which he had given them. You may have corrected it in some particular, and you became convinced that the Japanese language words on that piece of teletype made the message that Japanese code execute message, and so you determined at that time and went down to Captain Safford's office and handed it to him, or saw the watch officer hand it to him and said, Here it is, this is it. The thing that we have been straining ourselves for and setting up all this intercepting apparatus. That is true, isn't it? Kramer replies, It is, sir. Keefe states, So if the words Higashi no Kazayame appear on this wind's execute message, the interpretation would mean east wind rain. That is right, isn't it? Then you say, That is plain Japanese language. The sense of that, however, meant strained relations or a break in relations, possibly even implying war with a nation on the eastward, the United States. Now that interpretation is the same today as it was when you testified out there before the Naval Court of Inquiry, isn't it? Kramer, exactly, sir. Keefe, so that if you had wanted to, you could have indicated that those words meant war with the United States, couldn't you? And be within the interpretation which you had given to the Naval Court of Inquiry. It was one of the three alternatives, was it not? Kramer replies, Only Mr. Keefe, insofar as you would evaluate the Japanese instructions contained in the setup of this wind's message, referring to the destruction of codes and classified papers. An evaluation which concluded that that meant war would then include that interpretation. Yes, sir. Keefe then asked Kramer about the cards distributed at the direction of noise to persons who were to watch for a plain language Japanese wind's execute. Kramer had testified before the NCI that these cards had on them the Japanese expressions contained in this exhibit and the meaning. However, Kramer told the JCC that apparently my memory was faulty at that moment as to what was on the cards. My present belief and conviction is that the Japanese expressions did not appear on those cards. Keith thought it perfectly in line with common sense for Kramer to have listed the Japanese words on the card together with their meaning so that these top flight people to whom the cards were directed would be able to compare it a wins execute, with the Japanese words on the card, and then know the meaning. However, Kramer wanted to change that testimony. He insisted that, according to his present, current, refreshed recollection, the only words he had put on the cards were the English translation and the country referred to, and that was all. East wind rain, United States. West wind clear, England. North wind cloudy, Russia. As Keefe's questioning wound down, Kramer admitted that there had been a wind's execute, 
On that point, he and Safford were in agreement, and he had believed that it was an authentic message of that wind system, until the last few days when I had been making further studies, including the reading of interrogations of high Japanese officials by General MacArthur. When Republican Representative Keefe finished questioning Kramer, Democratic Senator Lucas took over. He pointed out that Kramer had had only a few brief seconds of contact, not over 30 seconds, probably near 10 or 15 seconds with the wind's execute before it was handed to Safford. He had not been involved in its decoding, translation, and delivery. It was by mere chance that he had happened to be in his office as the GY watch officer passed on his way to deliver it to Safford. Thus, Lucas implied, Kramer's contact with the message was so brief that it was not surprising his recollections were not too clear. Pilot Message Received, Announcing Japan's Response to U.S. November 26 Ultimatum On Saturday morning, December 6, 1941, U.S. intelligence picked up a Japanese dispatch that became known as the Pilot Message because it announced to the Japanese ambassadors in Washington the impending arrival of their government's 14-part response to the U.S. note of November 26, rejecting their latest proposal for compromise. This pilot message told the Japanese ambassadors that the time for its presentation to the United States would be wired separately in purple-coded English. It would need decrypting but not translating. The timesheet shows that the pilot message was intercepted by a Navy station on the West Coast, December 6, 1941, between 7.15 to 7.20 a.m. East Coast time, and then teletyped in Japanese code to the Navy in Washington. It was more than four hours later, 12.05 p.m., when the Army, whose day it was to decode, received it from the Navy. This abnormal delay was never accounted for. It was then decoded, typed up by the Army's Signal Intelligence Service, and delivered to the Army and Navy officer couriers. When Kramer appeared before the JCC on February 6, he acknowledged that the Navy had intercepted the pilot message between 7.15 and 7.20 a.m. that Saturday morning, and that it hadn't reached the Army until 12.05 p.m. In any event, Kramer was as certain as he could be that the first knowledge I had that the 14-part Japanese note was being sent to the United States was around 3 or shortly after 3 p.m. Saturday, December 6, 1941. Although the Army might possibly have delivered the pilot message to Kramer's section earlier in the afternoon, he had no recollection of seeing that message until later in the afternoon. Two days later, Kramer changed the story he was telling the JCC. He said he didn't believe the pilot message had been disseminated Saturday afternoon at all and listed it, Navy number 7149, as one of several intercepts that were delivered at 10.30 Sunday morning. I find as a result of my study last night, after referring to a Navy Department file, that the pilot message was not disseminated, at least in the Navy, until Sunday morning subsequent to 10 o'clock, at the time when the so-called hidden word message and a number of other short messages, including the 1 o'clock messages, were disseminated. When Senator Ferguson asked Kramer, If you did not know what this pilot message was until 10.30 on Sunday morning, how did you know there was going to be a 14th part? How did you know without the pilot message that you were going to get an answer to the 26th note? Kramer replied that he did not, at least, know positively, but certainly at the time, and now presumed from the context of the parts we were breaking down, that that must be the reply to Mr. Hull's note of 26 November. Ferguson tried to find out what there was in the records to show whether the pilot's message had actually been received in the Navy Department Saturday, December 6, or Sunday morning, December 7. Kramer admitted that there is nothing whatsoever in the file, Senator, to show definitely one way or another that point. Kramer repeated again the next day his account of the Sunday morning receipt and delivery of the pilot message. His present belief, he told the JCC, was that he did not get it in my section from the Army until the next morning, Sunday, December 7, 
sometime between 9 and 10.30 that morning. His memory had been refreshed since I got to studying this on my arrival at Washington. As a matter of fact, Kramer told the JCC two days later that he did not believe the pilot message had even been included with the first delivery early on the morning of the 7th, but that it had become available only in time for the second round of deliveries. According to the study I made a few days ago, my best knowledge and present conviction is that my section in the Navy Department did not receive it until approximately 10.25 or 10.30 Sunday morning. His sole reason for saying this, he told Ferguson, was due to the fact that in the Navy book, it, the pilot message, appears after the 14-part message and after the 1 o'clock message. Thus, he had been led to the conclusion that it must have been delivered Sunday instead of Saturday. Kramer testifies further on Japan's reply to U.S. November 26 note and other matters. When Republican Senator Brewster took over the questioning of Kramer, he said he was amazed that Kramer had not reread the memorandum he had written at Halsey's request in 1944, not even when he had shown it to others, Lieutenant Commander Beecher, Admiral Wilkinson, his longtime personal friend, Captain Rochefort, and Marine Corps Colonel Bales. Brewster could see no reason why Kramer shouldn't have reviewed his memorandum prior to his appearance before the JCC. It would have been far easier to credit his story if he had, rather than basing his entire present recollection on the refreshment received from consultation with officers who examined that document. Kramer, like Safford, had been examined by Sonnet, counsel in the Hewitt Inquiry. Senator Lucas asked Kramer if his experience with Sonnet had been at all similar to Safford's. Kramer denied that Sonnet had badgered or beset him at any time or tried to persuade him to change his testimony. He knew of no one in the Navy, Army, State Department, or Chief Executive's office who had provoked, angered, or tricked those peace-loving and harmless Japs into attacking Pearl Harbor, or who had maneuvered, conspired, or attempted to lay the sole blame for the Pearl Harbor disaster on Kimmel and Short. Kramer was also asked why there were occasional gaps in the numbered intercepts. Sometimes the numbering machine would skip a number, he said. Army and Navy both often worked on decryption of the same intercept, he said, and both would assign it a number. When it was discovered later that the same message had been given two different numbers, one was canceled. When asked to explain the missing wins execute teletype, Kramer said he believed the purpose of having duplicates for any of this traffic, whether encoded or plain language, was to have an extra copy for systems which we were not reading, so that more than one person could work on that system in attempting to break it down. As for the wins execute, Kramer had not had anything specifically to do with it. It had gone directly to Noy's office and had not been handled through Kramer's office. Representative Cooper, vice chairman of the committee, questioned Kramer about how all the documents relating to the wins execute could have vanished from the files. He could offer no explanation. Given the precautions that had been taken to conceal the combination to the safe in which these papers were kept, Kramer couldn't understand it. Only he and two others knew the combination, and if anyone had broken into the double-sealed envelope in the Navy Department's front offices where the combination was kept, someone would surely have known. Vice Chairman states, I understand then, Captain, that these messages, including the number 7001, were in your custody and were kept in your safe in your office. Kramer replies, Yes, sir. Vice Chairman, and all of the files were in their proper order and in their proper place and kept there in your safe. Kramer replies, That is correct, sir. I might further amplify that answer, sir, to this effect, that the so-called numerical file, after a series of messages were numbered for dissemination, a copy was invariably and immediately inserted in that numerical file. Messages were never removed from that numerical file for reference or for any other purpose. That numerical file had two primary purposes, one to have a solid file of what had been translated and disseminated, and two, the primary purpose was to have something to which the translators could turn in case of references to back traffic, 
when future messages were received. We had a very complete and involved cross-index system on 3x5 cards, covering every originator in the Japanese diplomatic service. By that I mean every consulate, every embassy, every legation that originated messages had their own serial numbers for their series of messages. From this basic numerical file, there was no occasion that I know of where anything was removed or destroyed from that file, with the exception of the fact that if it was determined later, probably a few days or a week later, that we had two identical messages, one of which was a duplication of another, when that was discovered, the latest numerical file number would be canceled as a duplication of the earlier one. Vice Chairman states, Well, could anybody have gone in there and filched or stolen all of the messages relating to the Wins Execute message, and you have known nothing about it? Kramer replies, I don't see how that would be possible, sir, with this possible exception, that the combination of the safe in which these were kept, there was a copy of that combination in a double-sealed envelope in some of the front offices. If that envelope had been opened, someone else would, of course, be able to open my safe. Otherwise, the only people who knew the combination of the safe in which that particular file was kept were three people, Lieutenant Harrison, the then-Chief Yeoman, Bryant, and myself. From an examination of the files last Saturday in the Navy Department and this study, Exhibit 142 of about a week or so ago. I am as positive as I can be that file number 7001 could not possibly have been any wins message. That is in addition to the fact that I have absolutely no matter of any kind, no recollection, no knowledge that a wins message was ever written up by my section. Keith questioned Kramer about the Japanese government's 14-part reply. According to Kramer's 1944 memorandum, Kramer recalled receiving the first 13 parts during the afternoon of December 6. He had tried by phone to locate Beardall, Turner, Wilkinson, and Bratton. He had tried unsuccessfully to reach Stark. Kramer said he had delivered the 13 parts to Beardall's aide at the White House that Saturday evening. He also told the JCC that he delivered the 13 parts about 9.45 p.m. to Knox at the Wardman Park and had then gone to Wilkinson's home in Arlington, Virginia, where he was having a dinner party. Kramer delivered to Wilkinson's home, and Beardall was there. Kramer thought Wilkinson may have phoned Stark and Turner that evening. Admiral Wilkinson was present, also Captain Beardall, FDR's naval aide. Kramer said his memory had been refreshed only quite recently to the effect that General Miles was also present. Kramer had then returned to the Navy Department before going home. He was positive that he had not delivered the 13 parts of the Japanese reply that evening either to Ingersoll, the Assistant Chief of Naval Operations, or Turner, Chief of the Navy War Plans Division. Yet apparently, Turner had seen it that evening. He testified before the NCI that a rather long dispatch had been brought to him, sometime during the very late evening of December 6 or the early morning of December 7. The officer who brought the dispatch to the house stated that there was a part of the message missing, the latter part. Still, Kramer maintained he had neither telephoned Ingersoll nor delivered to him directly any of these intercepts that night. Kramer held also that he had not delivered the 13 parts to Turner, although he had testified to the contrary. Ferguson read an excerpt from Turner's JCC testimony and Kramer had to agree that Admiral Turner knew what he was talking about. However, Kramer continued to maintain that he had made no delivery to Turner that evening. He would admit only that Turner's recollection obviously differs from my recollections. Ferguson elicited from Kramer that he had drafted for noise a December 1 message concerning Japanese movements in Thailand, thousands of miles from any U.S. possessions. Ferguson wanted to know why, especially if Kramer knew nothing about our policy in case of an attack by the Japanese on the British, he felt that we should ensure that they, Sincaf and Sinkpak, got that picture, sir, even though they may have received it and read it on the Asiatic station, the British also at Singapore, and the unit at Honolulu. 
Why would he, Kramer, send a message that involved the British and the Japanese a thousand miles from any of our possessions directly to the information of Senkpak, which was Admiral Kimmel, when he had not sent to either the Pacific or Asiatic fleet the ship movement message, which set up a plan of Pearl Harbor, indicating what they wanted it for was an attack later. Kramer said that every message bearing on ship movements, either of our Navy, our Merchant Marine, or foreign navies, specifically England, was given high priority in my section and all were translated and disseminated by my section. He admitted that the Japanese had used this grid bombing map for all ship movements subsequently to setting up of this abbreviated system of reporting ships in Pearl Harbor. However, evaluation was never at any time a function of his section. Moreover, Kramer pointed out, Pearl Harbor was not the only base the Japanese had been watching. Back in 1940, during the course of negotiations with the Dutch in Java, the Japanese conducted rather rigorous reconnaissance of all military establishments, not only in Java but in other islands of the Dutch East Indies. They had also requested information on the military establishments, air bases, fleet facilities in Panama, and in part of the Western Hemisphere under United States jurisdiction. The Japanese diplomatic service, as well as their military and naval attaches abroad, Kramer testified, were very conscientious people and reported in meticulous detail all facts that they could learn. They likewise reported in great detail the air bases in the vicinity of Seattle and Bremerton Navy Yard, sir, similarly on the San Francisco area. Nevertheless, Kramer could not point to any request from the Japanese in the latter part of November or December 1941 in relation to San Francisco and Seattle for bombing maps of any locations other than Pearl Harbor. Kimmel was on the witness stand for five long days, February 6 through 11, 1946. February 10 was a Sunday. After he finished testifying, he returned to the hospital where he remained until after the committee's reports were released for the Sunday papers of July 21. The next month, at age 46, he was given a medical discharge and an untaxed pension. He maintained his silence on Pearl Harbor throughout his remaining 26 years. He died in 1972. Bratton, Army Courier, on delivery of Japan's reply to U.S. Note of November. Colonel Rufus Bratton was another key figure in the events of December 6 through 7. As Army Courier, he had been Kramer's counterpart, charged with the delivery of the Japanese magic intercepts to the Army's list of officials entitled to see them. These included Hull, Stimson, Marshall, Garrow, and Miles. Bratton's chief assistant had been Colonel Carlisle C. Duesenbury. Every time Bratton testified, he changed his story slightly in some respects. On September 15, 1944, he had told Colonel Clark, who was conducting a special investigation for Marshall, that Japan's 14-part reply started coming in on the 6th of December. It was then his recollection that he had transmitted a copy to the Secretary of State that night. He made no mention of any other deliveries that evening. On September 30, 1944, when appearing before the Army Pearl Harbor Board, Bratton testified that he had had the bulk of it, the Japanese reply, since the evening of December 6, it came in 14 parts. 13 of those parts were received the afternoon and evening of the 6th. He said he had delivered the first 13 parts to three recipients that evening. The Office of the Chief of Staff, actually Marshal Secretary Colonel, later General Bedell Smith. The AC of SG2, actually Garrow's Executive Officer, Colonel Gailey. The Office of the Secretary of State. On July 27, 1945, in an affidavit for Clausen, who was touring the Army's several theaters of operations under orders of Stimson, to interview and collect sworn affidavits from persons involved in some way with Pearl Harbor, Bratton had given a still different account of the events of December 6 through 7. Clausen had shown Bratton several sworn affidavits submitted by men Bratton knew, some of them Bratton's superiors in the Army. 
Bratton had interpreted some of those affidavits as differing from his previous testimony. Although on examination, it is apparent that they were not actual contradictions so much as merely carefully crafted evasions. However, they influenced Bratton to revise his statement. In his affidavit for Clausen, Bratton had said that, after receiving the first 13 parts of the Japanese reply and ascertaining that the 14th part would not be coming in that evening, he had directed Duesenberry to deliver the set for the chief of staff at his home at Fort Myer. The affidavit stated further, in contradiction to his APHB testimony, that he had delivered only one set of those 13 parts that evening himself, the set destined for the Secretary of State, which he had left between 10 and 11 p.m., with the night duty officer at the State Department. He also said in his affidavit that the sets for the other officials on Bratton's list were delivered the next morning, 7 December 1941, with the 14th part. Bratton had said that when he saw Marshall that morning, Marshall had on his desk the 14-part message, which he had not given him. He could not explain how it had reached Marshall. According to Bratton, any prior statements or testimony of mine which may be contrary to my statements here, the affidavit for Clausen, should be modified and considered changed in accordance with my statements herein. This affidavit now represents my best recollection after having my memory refreshed in several ways and respects. By the time Bratton was finally called to the witness stand by the Joint Congressional Committee, he had been listening for months to the sworn testimony of witnesses, some of whom had contradicted one another, some had even contradicted their own earlier testimony, and some had offered to shoulder the blame for Marshall's possible delinquencies. As the bewildered Bratton took the chair on February 14, 1946, suspense pervaded the packed hearing room. Delivery to Top Officials Evening of December 6 of Japanese Reply to U.S. Ultimatum Respecting the receipt of the pilot message, Bratton contradicted the testimony of his Navy opposite Kramer. Kramer's refreshed testimony was that the message had not reached him, ready for delivery, until about 10 or 10.30 Sunday morning, December 7. However, it was undoubtedly available to Navy officials in Washington on Saturday afternoon, where several Navy officers testified that it had been phoned or distributed to the usual Navy recipients by then. Bratton told the JCC the message had first come to his attention at about 2 p.m. on Saturday, that it had been translated by the Army, typed, and delivered to him. He then had it distributed that afternoon about 3 o'clock to the full list of persons for whom he was responsible. Bratton said he even recalled discussing its contents with both Garrow and Miles. If the pilot message had been decoded and distributed on Saturday as Bratton testified, then Washington officials would have been on notice that Tokyo's reply to our November 26th note was on its way. They expected this reply to be a rejection of our proposal, so they would have had reason to anticipate a final break with Japan, possibly the outbreak of war, and would have had some opportunity to think about how best to respond. If it had not been available until Sunday morning, as Kramer said, the top personnel would not have been expecting Japan's response and would have had little time to anticipate and decide how to respond to the Japanese threat. When the first 13 parts of Japan's reply, which had been intercepted, decoded, and typed up by early Saturday evening, were actually placed in the hands of the top Washington officials, was crucial for determining what we knew of Japan's intentions prior to the attack. Bratton had testified variously about his deliveries of this intercept. JCC Associate General Counsel Kaufman asked him about these several discrepancies. Now before answering your question, Bratton began, I would like to state that this is the fifth time I have appeared as a witness in this Pearl Harbor investigation. I hope it will be the last time, but it is also the first time that I have had an opportunity to examine files, records, and documents in the War Department to refresh my memory as to the details of various events, and it is the first time that I have had an opportunity to talk to the people I worked for and with at that time. 
In consequence, my memory as to the details of certain events have been greatly improved. As to the details of certain other events, it is foggier than ever for the reason that I have heard and seen so many conflicting arguments and statements here and elsewhere since my return to Washington. Returning to the 13 parts. There are several details that stand out very clearly in my mind. First, I called up the SIS, Signal Intelligence Service, to ask if there was any likelihood of the 14th part coming in later that night, December 6. After some discussion in the SIS, this officer returned to the phone and he said, no, there is very little likelihood of that part coming in this evening. Brad Newhall had a strong interest in this message, so he put the 13 parts in the pouch, locked it, and delivered it personally to the State Department's night duty officer sometime after 10 p.m. He advised the night duty officer that this was a highly important message as far as the Secretary of State was concerned, and it should be sent out to his quarters immediately. Bratton was assured it would be. Then, at about 11 p.m., Bratton had returned to his quarters. From there, he phoned Miles' home and was told he was out. When Miles got home and returned Bratton's call, Bratton described the 13 parts in guarded terms and added that the 14th and most important part had not yet been received. Miles said he had seen the 13 parts where he had been a dinner guest. Bratton also told Miles that he, Miles, had delivered the first 13 parts to Hull. Kaufman asked Bratton if Miles had told him it wasn't necessary to deliver the 13 parts to Marshall that night. Bratton remembered no such instructions. Kaufman then read into the record Miles's JCC testimony in which he took full responsibility for that message not going to the chief of staff that night. I knew its substance. I did not consider that it was necessary to arouse the chief of staff at that time of night for that message. After having this testimony called to his attention, Bratton added, I would like to say further at this point that if there was any error of omission or commission with respect to the delivery of the 13 parts of that message, Saturday night of the 6th of December, 1941, to Army personnel, the error was mine, and I accept full responsibility for it. In this way, both Miles and Bratton added their names to the list of those willing to take the responsibility for a possible failure on the part of Marshall. Denials by top officials lead Bratton to doubt his earlier testimony. The persons in the Army who customarily received magic, Bratton said, were Marshall, Garrow, and Miles. And do we have it now, Kaufman asked that no delivery was made to any of those persons other than to the Secretary of State and accepting General Miles, who had already seen it at Admiral Wilkinson's house. This is the point, Bratton said, at which his memory begins to go bad. He could not state positively whether there was any delivery made that night or not at this time. He had testified before the APHB that he had made delivery to the Secretary of the General Staff, to the night duty officer, or to General Garrow and to General Miles. That, Bratton said, was his normal procedure. He tried to make simultaneous delivery to all these people. However, when he had made that statement to the APHB, he had not remembered that Colonel Dusenberry was working with me in the office that night. Also, Clausen had shown him a number of sworn affidavits collected from various officers, Fidel Smith, General Ralph Smith, Garrow, Galey, and others, to the effect that they did not receive the 13 parts of this message from me or from anyone else Saturday night. Now I know all these men. I do not doubt the honesty and integrity of any one of them. And if they say that I did not deliver these pouches to them that night, then my memory must have been at fault. Asked by Ferguson why he had changed his testimony, Bratton replied, It was a combination of facts, sir. My subsequent recollection that Colonel Dusenberry was at work with me in the office that evening, and the affidavits of various officers stating that I did not make deliveries to them on Saturday evening, and my recollection of the telephone conversation with General Miles at about half past 11 Saturday night, my subsequent conversations with Colonel Dusenberry, 
with whom I have talked here in Washington, my conversations with General Garrow, with whom I talked here in Washington, my conversations with General Miles before he appeared before the committee. All of these have combined to lead me to the belief that the evidence that I have given before the committee today is my best recollection of the facts. After the lengthy questioning of Safford, Kramer, Bratton, and all the other officers concerned, it was difficult to know just what to believe. Their testimony had often been confusing and contradictory. Kramer's testimony did little to clear up the mystery over whether a wins execute had been intercepted before December 7, or if it had been, what it had meant. His testimony about the pilot message raised questions as to whether it was actually received before or after the 14-part response itself. And Bratton's testimony on the delivery of the Japanese intercepts during the evening of December 6 helped little in clarifying the situation. Intercepts indicating imminence of war delivered to the White House evening December 6. At my suggestion, committee member requested a list of all persons who had been on duty at the White House on December 6 and 7. One name on that list was Navy Commander Lester R. Schultz. On February 12, 1946, while at sea aboard the Indiana, Schultz received orders to come to Washington. When he arrived at the Capitol, Senator Ferguson and Lieutenant Commander Beecher, assistant counsel, and the Navy's liaison to the committee, took him aside in a room adjoining the chamber where the hearings were being held. When the senator returned to the committee table, he said to me, Sotto voce, this is it. Schultz had told his story about the evening of December 6 to no one except when he had spoken briefly with Beecher the previous December. This was his first time to testify, he said. He had never written his experiences down and had no notes. In 1941, Schultz had been a Navy lieutenant in the Office of Naval Communications for Communications Intelligence. He had first entered the White House on December 5 on a temporary assignment from the Communications Division. On the evening of December 6, he had been on temporary duty at the White House and a communications assistant in Able Aid Captain Beardall. At about 4 p.m., Beardall told Schultz to remain in the office to receive a special message for the president. During the evening, Captain Kramer would bring up some magic material and that I was to take it and give it immediately to the president, Schultz testified. The material would be in a locked pouch and Beardall gave Schultz the key so he could remove the material. Beardall told him it was of such importance that the president was expecting it. Beardall himself left at about 5.30 to attend a dinner party. This was the first time in his seven months as FDR's naval aide that he had been asked to make special arrangements to deliver a message to the president after 5.30 or 6 in the evening i.e. after the close of the ordinary workday. The first 13 parts of the Japanese reply were in the Navy Department and ready for distribution by 9 p.m. on December 6. Before delivering the locked pouch with these 13 parts to anyone else, Kramer took them to the White House. Schultz had been given a small office, not in the White House proper, but in a corner of the mailroom in the White House office building. At about 9.30 p.m., Kramer came in with a locked pouch which he handed to Schultz. Schultz immediately took the pouch over to the White House and obtained permission to go up to the president's study on the second floor. He was accompanied by someone from the usher's office who announced him to the president. Then Schultz went into FDR's study alone. The president was there seated at his desk, and Mr. Harry Hopkins was there, Schultz said. He told FDR that he was delivering the material which Kramer had brought. Schultz unlocked the pouch, took out the papers, perhaps 15 typewritten pages, fastened together in a sheaf, and handed them to Roosevelt personally. According to Schultz, the president read the papers, which took perhaps 10 minutes. Then he handed them to Mr. Hopkins. Mr. Hopkins then read the papers and handed them back to the president. The president then turned toward Mr. Hopkins and said in substance, this means war. Mr. Hopkins agreed, and they discussed then for perhaps five minutes the situation of the Japanese forces, that is, their deployment. 
Schultz was a young graduate of Annapolis, decent and upright in appearance, his manner open and forthright. There could be no doubting the truth of what he was saying. The spectators in the packed hearing room listened in complete silence, straining to catch his every word. Counsel Richardson asked Schultz if he could remember anything specific that FDR or Hopkins had said. Schultz could only remember a few words, but he could say definitely that the substance of it was that I believe Mr. Hopkins mentioned it first, that since war was imminent, that the Japanese intended to strike when they were ready, at a moment when all was most opportune for them. That is, when their forces were most properly deployed for their advantage. Indochina in particular was mentioned because the Japanese forces had already landed there and there were implications of where they would move next. The president mentioned having sent a message to the Japanese emperor concerning the presence of Japanese troops in Indochina and requesting their withdrawal. Schultz did not see Roosevelt's message, but he recalled, the president quoting from this message that he drafted to the effect, he had told Hirohito that he could not see how it could be held that there was any danger to peace in the Far East as far as the United States was concerned, if there were no Japanese forces in Indochina. In other words, we were not going to attack Indochina, nor was anyone else. Therefore, the presence of Japanese forces in Indochina was for an aggressive purpose or for ulterior purposes on the part of the Japanese. We ourselves held no threat for Indochina. Schultz continued, Mr. Hopkins then expressed a view that since war was undoubtedly going to come at the convenience of the Japanese, it was too bad that we could not strike the first blow and prevent any sort of surprise. The president nodded and then said, in effect, no, we can't do that. We are a democracy and a peaceful people. Then he raised his voice, and this much I remember definitely. He said, but we have a good record. Schultz got the impression that we would have to stand on that record. We could not make the first overt move. We would have to wait until it came. The only geographic name Schultz remembered was Indochina. There was no mention of Pearl Harbor. The time when war might begin was not discussed. There was no indication that tomorrow was necessarily the day, he said. Schultz carried the impression away because it contributed to my personal surprise when the news did come. According to Schultz, there was no mention made of sending any further warning or alert. After the discussion to the effect that the war was going to begin at the convenience of the Japanese, the president said he believed he would talk to Admiral Stark he started to get Admiral Stark on the telephone. It was then determined, I do not recall exactly, but I believe the White House operator told the president that Admiral Stark could be reached at the National Theater. Schultz could not hear what the operator said, but he did hear the National Theater mentioned. The president then went on to state in substance that he would reach the Admiral later, that he did not want to cause public alarm by having the Admiral paged or otherwise went in the theater, where I believe the fact that he had a box reserved was mentioned and that if he had left suddenly, he would surely have been seen because of the position which he held, an undue alarm might be caused, and the president did not wish that to happen because he could get him within perhaps another half an hour in any case. According to Schultz, nothing was said about telephoning anybody else. To the best of my knowledge, that is all that was discussed. The president returned the papers to me and I left the study. Schultz had been there about a half an hour. He left about ten. He then went back to the office, over toward the State Department on the basement level. Kramer was waiting. According to Schultz's recollection, he returned the locked pouch to Kramer. The happenings during that particular period are somewhat hazy, but I know that I did not have the papers the next day. Further, I hadn't too suitable a place to put them during the night because of their high secrecy classification. I would not have kept them under any circumstances. Schultz phoned Beardall to inform him that I had received the papers, the president had seen them, and I had carried out my instructions. Schultz was then free to go home. He left the White House at about 10.30. Schultz's testimony demolished the administration's claim of shocked surprise at the Japanese attack, 
The Democratic members of the JCC were stunned. They did not attempt to rebut. His appearance was a highlight of the congressional investigation. General Marshall does not recall his activities Saturday night, December 6. There is no evidence in the JCC hearings that FDR actually summoned his closest aides to the White House the night of December 6-7. through 7. But for FDR to call a meeting to discuss the growing crisis would have been consistent with his operational style. He liked to talk things over with his associates. Marshall and Stark were the only ones asked if there might have been such a meeting, and their answers were not very helpful. Keefe states, Can you state definitely whether or not you have a present recollection as to whether the president did in fact contact you? Marshall replied, I am quite certain that he, the president, did not contact me. There is no question in my mind, no, that is a positive answer. Keefe replies, and you are certain that you did not attend any meeting then at the White House that night. Marshall replied, I am absolutely certain of that. So all the evidence in my own mind, short of my absolute knowledge of the matter, is that I was home as was customary. Keefe replies, but you are certain of one thing, and that is that you received no communication from the president on the evening of the 6th of December, and that you didn't attend any meeting at the White House that night. Marshall replies, that is correct. I will add that the first information I had of anything unusual was, as I have testified after I got into my shower, or was going into my shower December 7 a.m., when this message was relayed to me from Colonel Bratton that he wanted to come out to the house with an important matter. Gerhardt questioning Stark says, When you left the office on Saturday night, did you leave word there as to where you were going to be and where you could be reached on December 6, 1941? Stark replies, Yes, when I went out, I always left word. I do not recall of any time when I did not. I do not recall being out that night, but I also do not recall whether I was out or not. So there it is. If I were going out at night, my aide would usually leave word with the duty officer where I could be found, assuming that my intentions to go out were before I left the office. If after I got home, I suddenly decided to go out somewhere, I would leave word with the house and usually call up the duty officer in addition. Gerhardt states, Well, have you searched the records in the office of the Chief of Naval Operations to ascertain where you were on Saturday night, the 6th day of December, 1941? Stark replies, We have found nothing as to where I was, and it follows my assumption that my thought was that I was at home. There is nothing I have been able to find out which locates where I was that evening. Gerhardt replies, In view of the fact that the Chief of Staff, Marshall, cannot remember where he was on that night, it is possible that you and he could have been together. Stark replies, I think we had no such conspiracy at that time, sir. Earhart, well, do you shut it out as being an utter impossibility that you and he could have been in each other's company that night? Stark, I do not shut it out as an utter impossibility that we could have been in each other's company, but I think we were not. Earhart, you do not remember that. Stark, no, but I feel that perhaps we both could have remembered if that had occurred. Gerhardt, well, you not remembering where you were, certainly you cannot remember that you were not with General Marshall on that night, can you? Stark replies, well, I think that may be a reasonable assumption. Gerhardt, you were together a great deal all the time, were you not? Stark replies, we were together either talking by telephone or inter-office visits a great deal during office hours. We were not together a great deal in the evening. I have heard that an effort was made to locate me. Gerhardt, and you also have learned that a courier called at your quarters and you were not there. Stark, no, I have not heard that. Gerhardt, did you have any telephone call that evening from Colonel Knox, the Secretary of the Navy? Stark replies, not that I recall. Thirty-two years after the attack, evidence of just such a December 6-7 through 7 White House meeting surfaced. It came in a letter from James G. Stallman, a longtime friend of Knox, then on active duty in the Navy. 
On his return from Pearl Harbor immediately after the attack, Knox confided to Stallman that he, Stimson, Marshall, Betty Stark, and Harry Hopkins had spent most of the night before the attack at the White House with FDR, all waiting for what they knew was coming after those intercepts. Intercept heralding actual approach of war delivered to the Navy Sunday morning, December 7. Saturday evening, with the delivery of the first 13 parts of Japan's 14-part reply to our note of November 26, it was apparent that war with Japan was imminent. It was the next morning, Sunday, December 7, 1941, that the Japanese intercepts that heralded the final approach of war were received in Washington. Most notable among these were the 14th part of Tokyo's reply and the 1 p.m. message giving the Japanese ambassadors in Washington instructions as to precisely how and when to deliver that reply to Secretary of State Hall. JCC members devoted considerable time to asking Navy courier Kramer about his Sunday morning deliveries. Kramer had said in his 1944 memorandum that on his first trip Sunday morning he had seen Stark with others in his office, about 0900 when he, Kramer, had left night before matters, including all 14 parts of Japan's reply to our note of November 26. Footnote number 227 reads, The sequence of Kramer's December 7 morning deliveries varied slightly from account to account. At the NCI, Joint Committee Pearl Harbor Attack, Part 33, pages 858-860. In mid-1944, he said he had delivered the 13 parts plus Part 14 and other new material to number 1, Stark, number 2, the White House, and number 3, Knox, at the State Department. Then, upon his return to the Navy Department at 10.20, he found the 1 p.m. message had been received. On February 6, 1946, before the Joint Committee, he testified, in the same work, Part 8, pages 3904 to 3908, that he had delivered all 14 parts to number 1, McCollum, number 2, Wilkinson, number 3, Stark, possibly through McCollum and Wilkinson, and number 4, directly to Knox, whom he saw personally at state. He had then returned to the Navy Department where he had encountered the 1 p.m. message. This account made no mention of delivering the 14 parts to the White House, Joint Committee Pearl Harbor Attack, Part 8, Pages 3904 to 3908. Kramer Testimony, February 6, 1946, at the JCC. Richardson. Now, how early did you go to the office the next morning? Kramer replies. My recollection is it was very shortly after 7.30. The normal office hours commenced at 8 o'clock. I further wanted to be at the office earlier that morning, December 7, than usual, because of the likelihood that I would have to make earlier disseminations that morning than usual late morning. I had a specific appointment to be at the State Department by 10 that morning, on instructions from Secretary Knox. I gathered from conversation with Admiral Wilkinson that Admiral Stark would very likely be in Sunday morning, which was not a usual practice. It was an unusual thing for Admiral Stark to be there on Sunday morning, italics added. On a number of occasions that fall on Sunday morning, I had delivered folders to his home and had been received in his study on the second deck, he being in pajamas and dressing gown, on one occasion having breakfast. I recollect that because I was offered some coffee. Richardson. Now, you got in your office around 7 o'clock on Sunday morning. Kramer replies. Shortly after 7.30 is my best recollection. My recollection is that the 14th part was there shortly after I got in that morning, or possibly when I got in that morning. I was on a 24-hour basis and my translators were also. I had on at least two dozen occasions during the course of 1941 been called to my office at odd hours of the night, sometimes two or three in the morning. I had standing instructions with the GY watch officer to call me any time they felt a translator was required. I was the nearest translator to my office, only five minutes away in Arlington near Fort Myer.
I therefore put myself in the status of being the first one called rather than one of the translators whose homes were in outlying districts. Richardson replies, When the delivery was made on Sunday morning, then the entire 14-part message was delivered as one message? Kramer answers, That is correct, sir. Some details of delivery between 8 and 9 o'clock I have only in the last month or so had my memory refreshed on, in conversations with other officers. The first delivery, to my present best recollection, was made to Commander McCollum, head of the Far Eastern Section Navy Intelligence. It was probably about 8 o'clock or a few minutes after. Another delivery was made, I believe, about a quarter of nine to Captain McCollum also, or Commander McCollum then, when I was informed that Admiral Wilkinson had arrived at his office, and I therefore automatically delivered another copy to Admiral Wilkinson. It was about that time or shortly afterward that another copy was delivered to Admiral Stark's office. That first delivery to Admiral Stark's office, I believe, was done by either Admiral Wilkinson or Captain McCollum. My first positive recollection of seeing Admiral Stark is when I was on my way to the State Department to keep my 10 o'clock appointment, when I left a copy of some of the other traffic that had come in in Admiral Stark's outer office. That was probably 9.30 or 9.40. I was at the State Department almost exactly 10 minutes of 10. Richardson, and to whom did you make delivery actually? Kramer responds, actually to Mr. Knox directly. He came in, as I recollect, about five minutes of 10, a few minutes after I got there, and went into the conference room, Mr. Hall's office. There was a brief discussion between myself, the Army courier, and Mr. Hall's private secretary in Mr. Hall's outer office. It lasted probably not more than three or four minutes, and then I headed back for the Navy Department. Richardson, what time did you return to the Navy Department? Kramer, my best recollection is about 10.20. On my arrival there at 10.20, the most striking recollection I have is the first sighting of that message from Tokyo directing the delivery of this note from Tokyo at 1 o'clock p.m., December 7, Washington time. I immediately instructed by Chief Yeoman to prepare another set of folders so I could make immediate delivery of them. However, after talking it over with people upon his arrival in Washington, and after having had his memory refreshed as to the events, Kramer revised his testimony slightly as to his delivery times. He said then that, actually, he did not go to Admiral Stark's office until about 9.30 although he admitted he was still a little hazy on precise times. When Kramer reached Stark's office on Sunday morning, December 7, all of the higher Navy echelon, including Stark, Wilkinson, and Turner, were there. Kramer agreed with Congressman Keefe, who was questioning him that Sunday was not usually a day for the big boys in the Navy to assemble at their offices, and that the arrangements for such a group of top-level officers to meet that Sunday morning must have been made the night before. It was no formal conference, but many officers were in Admiral Stark's office and going and coming, Kramer said. It was in a similar manner that the normal 11 o'clock conference was held more or less daily in Admiral Stark's office, similarly assembled. However, it was no formal conference, but a continuing discussion that Sunday morning. After making his first round of deliveries that Sunday morning, Kramer returned to the Navy Department. There he had encountered the 1 p.m. message plus several other intercepts, with final words of advice and thanks to the Japanese ambassadors for their efforts. Kramer recognized the importance of the 1 p.m. message immediately, and this added special urgency to his second round of deliveries. But note 233 states, in the same work, Part 8, pages 3908 to 3909, Kramer testimony before the Joint Committee. Kramer says, on my arrival there, back at the Navy Department at 1020, the most striking recollection I have is the first sighting of that message from Tokyo, 
directing the delivery of this note from Tokyo at 1 p.m. December 7, Washington time. I immediately instructed my chief yeoman to prepare another set of folders so I could make immediate delivery of them. Just as I was about to leave the office, a plain language Japanese message was sent into my office by the GY watch officer that carried, I believe, the so-called hidden word message. I recognized it as such from an external indicator, namely the word stop at the end, and recognized the first word as being one of the code words referring to England. In scanning the rest of the message, as I recollect, the sixth or seventh word had another code word, which incidentally were all proper names. The word was Hattori, which, although I recognized it as a code word, I did not immediately recall the meaning of, and hastily referred to the list of such code words interpreted as relations between Japan and blank country. To be inserted was not in accordance with expectations. I dictated to my chief yeoman the sense of that message. In his 1944 memorandum for Admiral Halsey, Kramer had described in pretty meticulous detail his haste to deliver the 1 p.m. message that Sunday morning, December 7. In his testimony before the NCI in 1944, Kramer said that on this, his second trip of the morning, he had first delivered the 1 p.m. message to Stark's office between 10.30 and 11 o'clock, secondly to the White House, and finally to Navy Secretary of Knox, who was still in a meeting at the State Department with Secretary Hull. Footnote number 235 reads, In the same work, Part 33, pages 859-860, through Kramer testimony in reference to 1 p.m. message at the NCI in mid-1944. At the NCI, Kramer said that he had returned to the Navy Department after his first delivery on the morning of December 7. There he had discovered the 1 p.m. message along with several others. Within 10 or 15 minutes, he was at Admiral Stark's office. From there, he had gone to the White House and then, with italics added, to State, where Knox and Stimson were meeting with Hull. Kramer said that he had not seen Knox personally, but he had made a point of verbally inviting the attention of Mr. Knox through a State Department Foreign Service officer who regularly handled this material for Mr. Hull. The Implications of the Times 1300 Washington time was 7.30 at Pearl Harbor and a few hours before sunrise at Kotubaru, where the Japanese appeared to be heading. At the JCC, he changed the sequence of his delivery slightly, saying that after delivering first to CNO Stark, he had delivered it secondly to Knox at the State Department and then finally to the White House. Footnote 236 reads, In the same work, Part 8, pages 3909 to 3912, Kramer Testimony. Kramer told the JCC, Part 8, pages 3910 through 12, that he had delivered the 1 p.m. message to, number 1, the State Department where he had most emphatically not spoken with Knox, number 2, the White House, and then number 3, back to the Navy Department. When Kramer testified before the JCC about delivering the 1 p.m. message to Navy Secretary Knox at the State Department, where Knox was still meeting with Secretary of State Hull, he said that before the folder was taken into Mr. Hull, there was a brief conversation pointing out the tie-up of the time at 1 o'clock in Washington with the situation in the Southwest Pacific. Kramer had talked with one of Mr. Hull's private secretaries about that. Also with the Army Courier, he thought it could have been Bratton, who was there at the time making delivery to Secretaries Hull and Stimson. Safford had told the NCI that when Kramer made delivery to Knox at the State Department on Sunday morning, December 7, Kramer had sent a note via Knox's personal aide, a Foreign Service officer, saying in effect that this means a sunrise attack on Pearl Harbor today and possibly a midnight attack on Manila. Footnote 238 reads, In the same work, Part 9, pages 4180, 
Excerpt reprinted from Safford NCI Testimony. In the same work, Part 9, pages 3909 Kramer Testimony. Kramer states, I stopped off at Admiral Stark's office. Stark was in his office. It was between 10.30 and 10.35. The office door was closed. Word was sent in that I had something for him. My impressions earlier have been that it was his flag secretary, then Commander Wellborn. That has only quite recently been corrected on that score since I am informed that Wellborn was not there that morning at all. My recollections were fully refreshed in a conversation only in the last few days with Captain McCollum to the effect that he was the one who came to the door. I distinctly recollect that now. I further recollect pointing out to Captain McCollum the tie-up of time, one o'clock Washington, with the scheme that had been developing for the past week or so in the Southwest Pacific with reference to Malaya and the Crow Peninsula. Captain McCollum reacted instantaneously to my pointing that out. His reactions, I believe, were identical to mine. I do not believe our conversation lasted more than 10 seconds or so, and then I headed for the State Department. In the same work, Part 8, pages 39-10. Arriving at State at about 10.45, Kramer made delivery to one of the private secretaries of Mr. Hull. Before that folder was taken into Mr. Hull, there was a brief conversation of the identical nature that I had had with Captain McCollum at Admiral Stark's door, pointing out the tie-up of the time, 1 o'clock Washington, with the situation in the Southwest Pacific. Richardson states, 1 o'clock Washington meant dawn in Hawaii, did it not? Kramer responds, it was 7.30 in Hawaii, yes, sir. Richardson replies, and was that fact pointed out in your conversation with McCollum and at the State Department? Kramer replies, it was mentioned in passing, yes, sir. Kramer said he had not then seen Knox personally, and he had most emphatically not sent him a note. There was only the verbal explanation. Kramer had not said that the time, one o'clock, had any significance in connection with any attack at Pearl Harbor. Footnote number 240 reads, in the same work, pages 3909 to 3912, Kramer testimony. Question by Richardson, Kramer said, the primary point of that, the one o'clock delivery time, was the conviction, at least in my mind, that the Japanese intended to carry out their plans against Kotobaru, with the intention and purpose of forcing the hand of the Thai premier, Peeble, who had been maintaining for some time past the position that his country was neutral, that any foreign nation that invaded his quarters would be considered an enemy, and that the moment such an invasion took place, he would call on the other party for assistance. By other party, I refer to Japan or to Britain. In the same work, Part 9, page 4110 and 4116, excerpts of Kramer's 1944 memorandum reprinted. Kramer explained the significance of the 1 p.m. message for Knox's benefits, as he often had explained other Japanese intercepts to the Navy personnel authorized to see them. The implications were so obvious in the light of what we know that it was not necessary to state that invasion of British territory was undoubtedly scheduled for 1300 Eastern Daylight Time and that at least a complete break with the U.S. was scheduled simultaneously. I recollect conversation only for Mr. Knox's benefit regarding the implication of the 1300 hour. I distinctly remember that the tie-up of these times would be apparent to experienced naval officers, but that a civilian, Mr. Knox, might overlook it. Hence the pains I took to point it out at the State Department. I repeated this point at least half a dozen times that morning to others, chiefly subordinates, I think, but including one of Mr. Hull's secretaries, who handled this material for him, to one or two of my office workers, and I believe also to Colonel Bratton, the Army Courier, in Mr. Hull's outer office, probably to Commander Wellborn, in Admiral's Flag Secretary, 
possibly to McCollum and probably to you, Safford, too. It had been Safford's interpretation, Kramer said later, that turned that remark into a reference to Pearl Harbor. He had only intended to comment on how the hour, 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, tied with the sun and moves in progress elsewhere. After delivering the 1 p.m. message at State, Kramer had gone to the White House to deliver the same set of traffic. Intercept indicating actual approach of war delivered to the Army Sunday morning. On or about December 10, 1941, Miles and Bratton drafted a Memorandum for the Record of their recollection of what took place in General Marshall's office that morning of December 7. Bratton had referred to this memorandum when appearing before both the Army Pearl Harbor Board and Clark's investigation. Most of Bratton's testimony before the JCC concerning the events of this morning were also based on that memorandum. Bratton told the JCC that the 14th part of the Japanese message was not delivered to me until between 8 and 9 o'clock around 8.15 or 8.30 on the morning of December 7. It had then been delivered immediately to the State Department. Bratton didn't remember whether he had taken it himself. It is entirely possible that I may have gotten a car and rushed over there with a 14th part so that the Secretary of State's book would be complete. On the other hand, I may have given it to Colonel Dusenberry to deliver. In any event, Bratton knew that the Secretary of State had all 14 of the parts before 10 o'clock that morning. It continued, At about 9 o'clock or shortly before 9, there was placed in my hands the so-called 1 p.m. delivery message. This immediately stunned me into frenzied activity because of its implication, and from that time on I was busily engaged trying to locate various officers of the general staff and conferring with them on the exclusive subject of this message and its meaning. Bratton said he washed my hands of all other matters, turning them over to my assistant, Colonel Dusenberry, and proceeded to take steps with a 1 p.m. delivery message. When he discovered that neither the Chief of Staff, Marshall, Chief of War Plans Division, Garrow, or G2 Miles, were in their offices, I immediately put in a phone call for General Marshall at his quarters at Fort Myer. One of his orderlies answered a telephone and informed me that the general had gone horseback riding. Bratton asked the orderly to find Marshall and tell him who I am, and tell him to go to the nearest telephone, that it is vitally important that I communicate with him at the earliest practicable moment. The orderly assured Bratton he would do so. He then phoned Miles at his home and told him to come to the office. Miles came in about 10 o'clock. Bratton discussed this whole business with General Miles in his office, so that General Miles was thoroughly conversant with the entire matter, before he and Bratton went together later into Marshall's office after he had arrived. Bratton or Miles had then phoned Garrow, although Bratton said he didn't remember seeing General Garrow that morning, until he joined us in General Marshall's office at about 11.25. Bratton's frantic call had reached Marshall's orderly shortly after 9 o'clock, probably between 9 and 9.15. From that time until Marshall arrived in his office, Bratton kept Marshall's copy of the 1 p.m. message in my hands until I gave it to Marshall in his office. Marshall had returned Bratton's call in person sometimes between 10 and 10.30. Bratton explained to him that I had a most important message that he must see at once and that if he would stay where he was, I would get a car and bring it to him. Bratton thought he could have gotten there in 10 minutes. Marshall replied, no, don't bother to do that. I am coming down to my office. You can give it to me then. Marshall finally arrived about an hour later at 11.25 a.m. Bratton couldn't explain why it had apparently taken Marshall an hour or more to reach the War Department when it was normally a 10-minute trip from his quarters to his office. It took Marshall only 10 minutes to make that same trip in the afternoon after he had heard the news of the attack. After his phone conversation with Marshall, Bratton went up towards General Marshall's office and stood around there in the hall or in the office of the Secretary of the General Staff, waiting for General Marshall to arrive. When Marshall finally arrived at 11.25, he'd went into his office from the door that opens into the hall 
and General Miles and I, not more than a minute or two minutes after that, walked in through the other door. Bratton was positive that when he reached Marshall's office at 1125, the chief of staff had on his desk all 14 parts of the message that Bratton had not delivered to him. Bratton was waiting for him with the 1 p.m. message in his hand. General, he said, I have a very important message here which I think you should see at once. But Marshall did not look up. He had the 14-part reply and was reading it. Bratton and Miles tried to interrupt him with his 1 p.m. delivery business, but he would not be interrupted, and he went right ahead with his reading until he got to the end of the 14 parts. Marshall hurriedly drafted his last-minute warning to the field commanders. Bratton had taken his message to Colonel French, Signal Corps officer in charge of the message center, and had explained to him that it was General Marshall's desire that the message be transmitted to the addressees by the fastest possible safe means, giving the Philippines first priority. Bratton testified that he reported back to Marshall, who asked him to return to the message center and find out how long it would take for the messages to reach the addressees. French said the message would be encoded in about three minutes, on the air in about eight minutes, and in the hands of the addressees in about 30 minutes. Bratton checked his watch. It was then 11.50 a.m. The message should be in the hands of the Army Signal Officer in Hawaii, still in code, by 12.30 Eastern Daylight Time, 7 a.m. in Hawaii. One important question still remained unanswered when Bratton finished testifying. If he hadn't delivered the 14-part reply to Marshall, how was it on his desk when he arrived at 11.25 a.m.? Gerhardt asked Bratton where Marshall could have obtained it when the only places that the 14 parts had been delivered before that meeting at 11.25 was at the White House and the State Department and to Admiral Stark. Had Marshall obtained a copy from Stark or the White House where Kramer had made deliveries that morning? Did Bratton's assistant Duesenberry deliver it to one of Marshall's secretaries, possibly Colonel Dean, earlier that morning, as Bratton said he might have? Or could he have gotten a copy of the first 13 parts at the White House during the night, possibly from Hull, for whom Bratton had delivered them to the State Department, or from Knox, to whom Kramer had delivered in his Wardman Park apartment? FDR had not kept copies of the messages delivered to him Saturday evening. Marshall's Sunday Morning Whereabouts Another unanswered question concerns Marshall's whereabouts on the morning of December 7. He was supposedly on duty 24 hours a day. If unavailable for some reason, an aide or duty officer should have been able to reach him at any moment. Yet Bratton told the JCC that when he called his quarters at about 9 o'clock Sunday morning in the attempt to deliver the urgent 1 p.m. message, he was told Marshall was out horseback riding. Where was Marshall during the hour and a half between 10 or 10.30 a.m. when he returned Bratton's 9 o'clock call? and 11.25 when he arrived in his office. Marshall may have gone horseback riding earlier, but where was he when he called Bratton? Bratton assumed he was still at his quarters at Fort Myer. But was he? Perhaps he was calling from somewhere else, and that was why he had told Bratton not to drive out but to wait in his office. Did he call from somewhere in the War Department? From Stark's office in the Navy Department? The White House? One report of Marshall's whereabouts that morning comes from then-Colonel, later Major General, John R. Dean. On the day of the attack, Dean was one of the secretaries of the general staff. Marshall had asked him to come into the office that Sunday morning to write a one-page statement on the number of planes and anti-aircraft guns in the United States. Marshall wanted that information to refer to during his scheduled appearance before a congressional committee the next day. Later, in describing the events of the day, Dean wrote that Marshall had arrived at the office at about 10 o'clock or shortly thereafter and had a series of conferences with staff officers from G2 and the War Plans Division. So Marshall could have phoned Bratton from the War Department at 10 o'clock. But why would Marshall not want to tell Bratton where he was? Why would he want to conceal his activities that morning? Would they have destroyed the myth that the Japanese attack was unexpected? 
or was some devious scheme afoot that would have ruined the nation's reputation as a peace-loving nation if it had become known. Some years later, in an interview, May 3, 1961, Captain Arthur H. McCollum, at the time of the attack, chief of the Far Eastern Section of the Navy's Communication Division, told me that he knew nothing about the JCC testimony reporting Marshall out horseback riding that Sunday morning, but he was willing to swear that he had seen Marshall coming out of Stark's office at around 9.30. Stark cannot recall his Saturday evening whereabouts or early Sunday morning activities. Like Marshall, Stark was supposed to be available 24 hours a day. If he was not at home or in his office, an aide or duty officer should have been able to locate him at any time. Yet Kramer, who had phoned Stark's home Saturday evening about the 13 parts, had not been able to reach him. Wilkinson testified that he had also tried unsuccessfully to telephone Stark at his home that evening. Asked during the JCC hearings where he had been the night before the attack, Stark replied, Nobody reached me that evening. I thought I was home, but if they had tried to reach me, I should have been there. Also, if I were not there, word would have been left where I was. Also, the duty officer was generally informed of my whereabouts. Stark testified that he had tried to chase down several leads in the attempt to discover where he had been that evening. Unfortunately, he said, his wife had destroyed her date calendar of that time. We have found nothing as to where I was, and it follows my assumption that my thought was that I was at home. There is nothing I have been able to find out which locates where I was that evening. Gearhart asks Stark, in view of the fact that the chief of staff cannot remember where he was on that night, is it possible that you and he could have been together? Stark thought they had no such conspiracy at that time. He did not shut it out as an utter impossibility that we could have been in each other's company, but I think we were not. We were together either talking by telephone or inter-office visits a great deal during office hours. We were not together a great deal in the evening. JCC General Counsel Mitchell told Stark that, according to the record, Knox and Wilkinson had both received Japan's first 13 parts during the evening. As a result, Knox had made an appointment for the next morning with Stimson and Hull. Yet Stark said he had no recollection of having seen or heard of the pilot message, announcing that the Japanese reply would soon be en route. His first information on that score, he said, was Sunday forenoon. Stark also insisted he had not heard anything at all that evening about the 14-part message. He was asked by JCC members when he had gone to his office on Sunday morning. He didn't answer directly. I can only guess on that. I usually got down to the office Sunday mornings around 10.30, and I just assumed that I had gotten there somewhere around 10.30 or 11. I was lazy on Sunday mornings unless there was some special reason for getting up early. I usually took a walk around the grounds and greenhouse at the Chief of Naval Operations Headquarters and didn't hurry about getting down, and my usual time, as I recall, was about 10.30 or 11. What time it was on this particular Sunday morning, I couldn't go beyond that. According to Stark, therefore, it was about 10.30 or 11 after he reached his office that morning that he saw the 14-part Japanese reply. It was then also, he said, that he had learned that the Japanese ambassadors had been directed to present his government's reply to the Secretary of State at 1 p.m. that same day. Stark said he had discussed the Japanese reply in the time of its presentation with Navy Captain Sherman, State Department liaison. However, several other witnesses told of seeing Stark in his office much earlier than 10.30 or 11. Kramer told the 1944 Naval Court of Inquiry that he made the hurried delivery of the 14-part Japanese reply to Stark in his office at about 9 a.m. on the morning of December 7. Stark had not been alone, he said. There were then about 12 or 15 officers present. Most of the heads of divisions in the Navy Department and those that attended the Admiral's Conference were there. Kramer was relieved that Wilkinson was there because Kramer could let him carry the ball with Admiral Stark as far as any further explanation of references were concerned. 
In February 1946, before the JCC, Kramer changed his story slightly. He testified, as soon as this 14th part was typed up, shortly after 8 o'clock, delivery was made to Captain McCalm along with the other 13 parts. Kramer's 1946 recollection was that it was about 9.30 that all 14 parts were delivered to Stark's office. Wilkinson also testified before the JCC that Stark was in his office earlier that Sunday morning than 10.30 or 11, Stark's usual arrival time. Wilkinson had reached his own office shortly after 8 o'clock on the morning of Sunday the 7th. He thought it was about 9.15 when he and McCollum went to the office of the Chief of Naval Operations Stark, where he recalled, Admiral Stark, Admiral Ingersoll, and Admiral Turner were present. In any event, he was quite clear that Stark had read the 14-part message in its entirety by 9.15 or 9.30. Wilkinson was struck by the fighting words in the 14th part. He was more impressed by that language than by the breaking off of negotiations, and he had pointed out to Stark the seriousness of that language. Wilkinson believed the Japanese were going to press on in the direction of the advance which they were then following in the South Sea and that something might be expected in that or other directions. He was particularly concerned that, in view of this strong language, the fleet should be advised of the latest development. According to Wilson, Stark had the authority to act. Wilkinson thought Stark should act, but Stark did not act. It would certainly appear that Stark was in his office and had seen the 14-part reply and even the 1 p.m. message, several hours before the Japanese ambassador's delivery deadline. Yet, except for the assembly of an unusual number of naval officers, the apparent lack of any sense of urgency in Stark's office contrasted sharply with the frantic activity in Marshall's office at the last minute after he finally arrived there at 11.25. Stark said that when Marshall phoned him at about 11.40 and asked what I thought about sending the information concerning the time of presentation onto the various commanders in the Pacific, Stark's first response was that, we had sent them so much already that I hesitated to send more. A minute or so later, Stark called Marshall back and told him there might be some peculiar significance in the Japanese ambassador calling on Mr. Hull at 1 p.m. and asked him to include instructions to his army people to inform their naval opposites. Pearl Harbor Attack, Not a Complete Surprise to FDR Further evidence that the attack did not take the administration by complete surprise is revealed in FDR's letter, dictated December 5 to Wendell Wilkie, defeated 1940 Republican presidential candidate. In that letter, FDR had suggested that Wilkie visit Australia and New Zealand as special representative of the president. It would, of course, be of real value to cement our relations with New Zealand and Australia, and would be useful not only now but in the future. There is always the Japanese matter to consider. The situation is definitely serious and there might be an armed clash at any moment if the Japanese continued their forward progress against the Philippines, Dutch Indies or Malays or Burma. Perhaps the next four or five days will decide the matter. After the attack, before mailing, the president had added in longhand, this was dictated Friday morning, long before this vile attack started, FDR. Committee Adjourned The committee, created by a Senate resolution of September 6, 1945, had held its first open hearings on November 15, 1945. By the time Commander Schultz appeared on February 15, 1946, most of the principals involved in the attack had been heard from. The hearings continued a few more days and a few more persons were questioned. Finally, the committee members decided it was time to wind up their hearings. In closing, Chairman Barkley congratulated the members. On the whole, the attendance of this committee and the interest it has manifested in the testimony of all the witnesses has been extraordinary. The committee adjourned February 20, 1946, subject to recall by the chairman. Committee reconvened to hear testimony, read December 6-7, whereabouts of Stark and Marshall.
On April 9, Barclay reconvened the committee to question Stark and Marshall once more as to their whereabouts on December 6 through 7. Marshall had been appointed ambassador to China by President Truman in 1945, but was back in Washington for a brief visit in April 1946. At that time, he appeared once more before the committee. Brewster asked Marshall, among other things, to explain why, in view of all pre-attack considerations and factors, he had not expected an attack on Pearl Harbor. Marshall said he had felt that was a vital installation. That was the only installation we had anywhere that was reasonably well-equipped. In our opinion, the commanders had been alerted. In our opinion, there was nothing more we could give them at the time for the purpose of defense. In our opinion, that was one place that had enough within itself to put up a reasonable defense. MacArthur in the Philippines was just beginning to get something. His position was pitiable, and it was still in a state of complete flux, with the ships on the ocean en route out there and the planes half-delivered and half still to go. The Panama Canal was quite inadequate at that period, seriously inadequate in planes and, of course, of vast importance to anything in the Pacific. The only place we had any assurance about was Hawaii, and for that reason we had less concern about Hawaii. We had worked on it very industriously, and we felt reasonably secure at that one point. When Marshall was in Washington testifying, Ferguson in the men's room in the Capitol overheard him talking with Barclay. Ferguson did not see the two men, but he recognized their voices and heard Marshall tell Barclay that if Marshall were to say where he was on the night of December 6 through 7, it would get the chief, FDR, in trouble. But note number 289 reads, This story, related to me by Ferguson, lends credence to Stallman's assertion that Marshall and Stark, along with Knox, Stimson, and Hopkins, had spent most of the night before the attack at the White House with FDR. See James G. Stallman's November 26, 1973 letter to Admiral Kemp Tolley, copy in author's files. Several attempts were made in the course of the JCC hearings to determine if there had been such a White House meeting. See, for instance, the questioning of Marshall in the same work, Part 3, page 1110, and Part 11, page 5193 and the interlocutory with Stark at Part 11, page 5549. These remarks may also have sparked the following line of questioning by Keefe. He reminded Marshall that on Saturday evening, after the president had read the first 13 parts, he had turned to Hopkins saying in substance, this means war. The president had then tried to get in touch with Stark. Keefe states, Can you state definitely whether or not you have a present recollection as to whether the president did in fact contact you? Marshall replies, I am quite certain that he did not. There is no question in my mind. No, that is a positive answer. Keefe says, and you are certain that you did not attend any meeting then at the White House that night. Marshall replies, I am absolutely certain of that. I might say that not only had I no dinner engagements of any kind between the 1st of November and the 7th of December, but that Mrs. Marshall was convalescing from having broken three or four ribs and we didn't go out anywhere. So all the evidence is that I was home as was customary. Keefe replies, that is your present recollection. Marshall states, I can't say that is my recollection. I am certain I was at home, but I don't recall anything about it. Keefe says, but you are certain of one thing, and that is that you received no communication from the president on the evening of the 6th of December, and that you didn't attend any meeting at the White House that night. Marshall says, that is correct. When asked about the morning of December 7, Marshall repeated his account of his Sunday morning routine. He said, the first information I had of anything unusual was after I got into my shower or was going into my shower when this message was relayed to me from Colonel Bratton that he wanted to come out to the house with an important matter. When Stark appeared before this reconvened session of the JCC, his mind still drew a blank as to where he had been or what he had been doing Saturday evening. 
He remembered very clearly having seen a revival of The Student Prince, but I had not connected it with that Saturday night, nor did he now. My recollection was it was in Philadelphia, that he had seen the revival and he had contacted my daughter and her husband, who were there, and they said no. The next I heard of it was in connection with Commander Schultz's testimony, but even that did not ring any bell with him. He could only assume, in view of the testimony of Commander Schultz and of others who tried to contact me, that I probably was there. And Stark did not remember hearing from the President that evening. To the best of my knowledge and belief, the President did not call me that night, nor did he think he had learned then that there was a dispatch down there at the White House, which was clear-cut and which meant war. In any event, he was absolutely certain that he did not go to the White House that night, December 6, and that he did not see the first 13 parts of the Jap 14-part message that night. Stark persisted in saying that his visit to the office Sunday morning had been routine. He did not recall meeting there that morning with various officers, as Kramer and Wilkinson had testified that he had. On April 11, 1946, after introducing additional material on the record, the committee stood adjourned subject to the call of the chair. However, on May 23rd, it reopened to accept a few more documents. Among other materials, Ferguson introduced for the record written statements from former Secretary of State Hall and former Secretary of War Stimson. Stimson notes for December 7, describing a meeting with Hall and Knox that morning and told of his position that the main thing is to hold the main people who are interested in the Far East together, the British, ourselves, the Dutch, the Australians, the Chinese. For the record, Stimson attached copies of the statements expressing similar sentiments he had solicited that morning from Hall and Knox. With the introduction of these documents, the hearings were officially closed, and the committee stood adjourned, subject to call by the chair. JCC hearings reopened again to hear an account of Stark's December 6 evening. Although officially closed, the committee reopened once more on May 31, 1946, at the special call of Barclay. Stark had written Barclay a letter advising that he had finally been reminded of his whereabouts on the evening of December 6. Barclay did not feel he should sit on Stark's letter, nor did he think he should simply put it in the record where it would in effect be lost and buried. The matter could not be delayed as Stark was leaving for London that afternoon. Barclay hurriedly reopened the hearings just to hear from Stark and his informant. Some of the ten committee members were out of town and unable to attend on such short notice. Only four Democrats appeared and one Republican, Keefe, who having had only a few minutes' notice by phone, arrived late. Stark had written Barclay that Navy Captain Harold D. Crick, a personal friend and Stark's former flag captain, had reminded Stark that the two men and their wives had spent that evening together. They had attended a performance of The Student Prince at the National Theater in Washington. When they returned from the theater to Stark's quarters, one of Stark's servants told him that the White House had called. Stark went immediately upstairs to phone FDR from his study, where a direct line to the White House was located. According to Crick, when Stark came back downstairs, he told him, in substance, that the situation with Japan was very serious. When the two couples again met socially on Saturday, May 25, 1946, Crick happened to relate these events to Stark. Stark did not remember the occasion, but he realized that this meant that his testimony that he had not talked to FDR that evening was incorrect. The more Stark thought about this, the more disturbed he became. He thought the committee should have this, the record should have it straight. He got up around 2 or 3 in the morning and wrote the letter that he had delivered to Barclay on May 27. Counsel Richardson asked Stark, Admiral, if the President had told you in his talk with you that night that this 13th part message meant war, thereby impressed you with his very serious estimate of it, what would have been, in accordance with your custom, the action for you to have taken with that information? Stark thought that he should have gotten in touch with Ingersoll, Assistant CNO, and with Turner, Chief Navy War Plans. 
We had a conference a few days previously, Stark said, going over the seriousness of the situation. If there was anything more we could have sent, and, as I say, we practically repeated this 14th part. Some days earlier, we had sent the same thing. We thought, and the President knew every move that we had made, that we had sent everything possible on that premise that war was in the immediate offing. I don't know that I would have done anything. I couldn't say. Richardson then took advantage of the opportunity to ask Stark another odd question about a possible late-night December 6-7 through 7 meeting at the White House. I never heard of such a conference. I know of nothing now regarding such a conference was not present at it. I had never even heard anyone suggest such a thing until it was mentioned here in previous hearings. My honest opinion is that nothing of the sort took place. It was a complete surprise to Marshall that even the question came up. It was to me. I am certain that I didn't leave the house after the Cricks left. I just can't think of any such thing as happening. Certainly I was not present, and Colonel Knox never mentioned any such thing to me. Such a conference at the White House, under those circumstances, Stark said, would have been so extraordinarily unusual that it should unquestionably have stood out in his memory. But he didn't remember any such meeting. In spite of Crick's detailed account of the events of the evening, Stark's memory did not revive. He remained consistent in saying that he could recall neither attending the theater with the Cricks nor phoning the president when he returned home. He did not remember that evening. Keefe had arrived at a special meeting only after Stark had given the bulk of his testimony. He feared that by reopening the hearings for this purpose, they were establishing a precedent now that may plague us in the future, and that its proceedings could go on and on. The JCC finally accepted Richardson's suggestion to take the captain's, Crick's, testimony. And then if the committee later decides not to use any of this testimony, all right. On the other hand, if they allow it to go in, we have it. Crick testified that he and his wife had seen the Stark socially on May 25, 1946. The subject of their December 6 meeting came up quite casually in the course of the conversation. Crick hadn't been following the JCC testimony closely, and so he hadn't realized what Stark had told the committee. But then he had seen a headline to the effect that the Admiral couldn't remember where he had been that evening. He had told Stark that they all had attended a performance of the student prince at the National Theater on the evening of December 6. When they returned to the Admiral's quarters, one of the servants had told Stark that there had been a White House call during the evening. Stark excused himself and retired to his study on the second floor. When he returned, he said only that the conditions in the Pacific were serious, in a critical state, something of that sort. Crick's reminder of their December 6th theater party made Stark realize that he had given wrongful testimony to the JCC, and according to Crick, he was very disturbed. Stark told him, You realize that I have testified to the contrary, and he implied that this matter should be laid before the committee. Asked by Lucas how he could remember this so vividly, Crick replied that the events of the evening were strongly impressed on his mind because I was a very small fish and great things were transpiring, and you don't forget that sort of thing. It is not like looking down when you look up at something. When the Pearl Harbor disaster struck the following day, the entire evening was definitely impressed on him, and he said it will be there for a long time to come. Thus, by chance, the committee learned of Stark's whereabouts on the evening of December 6. Unfortunately, no witness ever came forward to enlighten the JCC similarly as to Marshall's doings during these crucial hours. Finally, the committee adjourned, subject to call. Chapter 30, Joint Congressional Committee on the Investigation of the Pearl Harbor Attack, Reports. JCC Report, July 20, 1946. The committee's report was published in a separate, unnumbered volume and transmitted to Congress under date of July 20, 1946. The hearings had continued much longer than anticipated, and the deadline for the report had been extended. By the time the committee closed down in May 1946, it had held 70 days of open hearings, 
examined 43 witnesses, taken 15,000 pages of testimony, introduced countless documents, and admitted some 183 exhibits. Incorporated in the volumes of the hearings were the findings of all previous Pearl Harbor investigations. Moreover, the JCC had had access to a great deal of secret information that had not been available before. Much new material had been revealed. To organize all this data gathered from various sources to separate the wheat from the chaff, the relevant from the irrelevant, and to determine responsibility was a formidable task. The Majority Report The Majority Report itself was a veritable book, 492 pages long. It reviewed in considerable detail the historical background of the attack, Japan's Asiatic policy, the Japanese-U.S. negotiations, U.S. diplomacy, and U.S. agreements to cooperate with the British and the Dutch. It described the attack itself, including the Japanese plan for making and executing the attack, the defenses of U.S. forces in Hawaii, the surprise occasioned in Pearl Harbor by the attack, and the U.S. losses that resulted. The majority report was signed by only eight of the committee's ten members. One of the signatories, Keefe, dissented in some respects and presented additional views. The conclusion of the majority report was that the ultimate responsibility for the attack rested with Japan. The top Washington officials had done nothing to provoke the Japanese into attack and had discharged their responsibilities with distinction, ability, and foresight, and had made every possible effort without sacrificing our national honor and endangering our security to avert war with Japan. The majority report did not let Washington military officials get off scot-free, however. It charged the War Plans Division of the War Department with having failed to discharge its direct responsibility to advise the commanding general he had not properly alerted the Hawaiian Department. It also held the Intelligence and War Plans Division of the War and Navy Departments failed a. to give careful and thoughtful considerations to the intercepted messages from Tokyo to Honolulu of September 24, November 15, and November 20, the Harbor Birthing Plan and related dispatches, and to raise a question as to their significance b. to be properly on the key vive to receive the one o'clock intercept and to recognize in the message the fact that some Japanese military action would very possibly occur somewhere at 1 p.m. December 7. Notwithstanding the fact that there were officers on 24-hour watch, the committee believes that under all of the evidence the War and Navy Departments were not sufficiently alerted on December 6 and 7, 1941, in view of the imminence of war. Thus, the majority report was somewhat critical of Garrow, War Plans, and Turner, Intelligence for not being more alert, and it placed some blame indirectly on Marshall and Stark for not having reacted more promptly on receiving the 1 p.m. message. However, it held Hull's diplomatic role justified and praised Knox and Stimson. According to the majority report, everyone was surprised that Japan struck the fleet at Pearl Harbor at the time that she did. Yet officers, both in Washington and Hawaii, were fully conscious of the danger from an attack. They realized this form of attack on Pearl Harbor by Japan was at least a possibility and they were adequately informed of the imminence of war. The report listed several failures on the part of the Hawaiian commanders and concluded, the errors made by the Hawaiian commands were errors of judgment and not of derelictions of duty. The principal recommendations were to institute unity of command at all military and naval outposts and to integrate Army and Navy intelligence agencies in order to avoid the pitfalls of divided responsibility, which experience has made so abundantly apparent. Keefe's Additional Views in his additional views, Keefe had said that he agreed with most of the majority report's conclusions and recommendations. For instance, he recognized, as the majority did, that both Washington and Hawaii were surprised. Apparently, neither believed that Pearl Harbor would be Japan's initial target. Both expected Japan to strike first in the Asiatic area. 
If this belief was unjustified, as Keefe believed it was, then the mistake lies on the Washington doorstep just as much as it does upon that of Hawaii. Throughout the long and arduous sessions of the committee in the preparation of the committee report, I had continuously insisted that whatever yardstick was agreed upon as a basis for determining responsibilities in Hawaii should be applied to the high command at Washington. This was Keefe's fundamental objection to the committee report. If the high command in Hawaii was subject to criticism for concluding that Hawaii was not in danger, then Keefe insisted that the same criticism with the same force and scope should apply to the high command in Washington. Keefe pointed out that it was FDR who had made the decision to retain the fleet at Pearl Harbor. Yet, the position of the fleet in the Hawaiian area was inherently untenable and dangerous. Once the ships were in Pearl Harbor with its single channel, they were a target for any successfully launched air attack from carrier-borne planes. As the fleet lacked sufficient patrol planes to conduct the necessary reconnaissance, out as far as 800 miles and for 360 degrees all around Oahu, the chance of discovering such a hostile carrier would be only by lucky accident. An inferior fleet, under enemy surveillance, in an exposed naval base without resources to protect it, Keefe wrote, could only avert disaster by receiving the best possible evidence of the intentions of its potential enemy. The commander-in-chief of the fleet in 1941 recognized that information was essential to his making appropriate disposition to meet any crisis. He formally requested the chief of naval operations that he be immediately informed of all important developments as they occur and by the quickest secure means available. Yet Kimmel was not kept so informed. Keefe reviewed some of the more vital information that had been available in Washington, but which had not been relayed to Pearl Harbor. The evidence of Japanese intentions, the bomb plot or ships in harbor messages, FDR's several statements concerning the imminence of war, the pilot message, the 13 parts of Japan's reply, etc. All in all, Keefe's objections to the majority report were so substantial that Senators Brewster and Ferguson were surprised and disappointed that he did not join them in drafting their minority report. JCC Minority Report The two committee members who refused to sign the majority report, Brewster and Ferguson, submitted their own minority report. In it, they pointed out that the first purpose of the investigation, according to Barclay, was that of fixing responsibility for the Pearl Harbor disaster upon an individual or a group of individuals or upon a system under which they operated or cooperated or failed to do either. They proceeded to lay the blame directly at the door of the Roosevelt administration. Inasmuch as all decisions and activities connected with this occurrence at Pearl Harbor were decisions and activities of executive authorities of the government of the United States, the issue of responsibility for the degree of success attained by the Japanese attack involves at least one general question and four subsidiary and specific questions. The general question is, did all the civil, military, and naval authorities of the United States, charged with responsibility for the conduct of diplomatic negotiations with the Japanese government, and for preparedness and defense at Pearl Harbor competently, efficiently, and with proper regard for the trust imposed in them, fulfill the duties of their respective offices under the Constitution and laws of the United States. The subsidiary and specific questions are, number one, did the high civil, military, and naval authorities in Washington secure in advance of 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, December 7, 1941? Information respecting Japanese designs and intentions sufficient to convince them beyond all reasonable doubt that war with Japan was immediately imminent. Number two, if so, did they give to General Walter C. Short and Admiral Husband E. Kimmel, the commanders at Pearl Harbor, clear and definite orders immediately prior to the Japanese attack, instructing them to be fully alert for defense against such an attack? 
Number three, was Hawaii adequately equipped for its defense against the Japanese attack in accordance with the known circumstances? Number four, did the commanders at Pearl Harbor take the appropriate measures required by the orders issued to them from Washington, by the duties of their respective officers, and by the information in their possession, and the resources at their disposal, to maintain the security of the possessions of the United States, as far as that responsibility was invested in them? The minority report objected to the trouble the committee had in obtaining documents. The proposal presented to Congress just before the death of FDR in April 1945 to prevent all disclosure of U.S. cryptanalysis activities had failed to pass thanks to the charges of censorship raised by Ferguson. However, the members of the Joint Congressional Committee still encountered obstacles to obtaining documents crucial to their investigation. Under date of August 28, 1945, President Truman issued an order similar to the April proposal. This order was relaxed somewhat in October 1945, when its application was limited to the State, War, and Navy Departments. Also, the secrecy of records was relaxed, only so far as the Joint Committee was concerned. The opportunity to search the records was still denied to individual members of the Committee. Moreover, the order contained the unfortunate phrase, any information in their, the government's, possession, material to the investigation, which provided a cloak for those reluctant to yield information requested by members of the committee. It was always possible to confront individual members with the view that the papers, data, and information desired was not material to the investigation. In an order of November 7, 1945, President Truman relaxed restraints on executives of the government in order that they may speak freely to individual members of the committee, but the order closed with a direction. This does not include any files or written material. Brewster and Ferguson charged in their report that when they asked to have a search made for missing records, vigorous and public denial was made, presumably on executive authority, that any records were missing. Yet, when it developed that some records actually were missing, most inadequate explanations were supplied. How any public interest could possibly have been prejudiced by affording any opportunity to examine the manner of keeping records of this character has never been satisfactorily explained. The major criticism of Brewster and Ferguson was of the top authorities in Washington. Roosevelt, the Secretaries of State, War, and Navy, the Army Chief of Staff, and Chief of Naval Operations. Hours, even days before the attack, these men all had access to detailed information about Japan's intentions information that was not available to the field commanders. They knew that a Japanese strike was imminent, yet they did not act. They just waited. They waited for Japan to strike the first blow. Yet all this time they failed to advise the military men in the field of the seriousness of the threat. And the warnings Washington did send to the field were, couched in such conflicting and imprecise language, that they failed to convey to the commanders definite information on the state of diplomatic relations with Japan and on Japanese war designs and positive orders respecting the particular actions to be taken, orders that were beyond all reasonable doubts as to the need for an all-out alert. In this regard, according to Brewster and Ferguson, the said high authorities failed to discharge their full duty. The minority report reviewed some of the crucial information that had been available in Washington, but which had not been transmitted to Hawaii. Intercepts of Japanese messages made by the Army and Navy Intelligence Services showed high authorities in Washington that the Japanese government had ordered its agents in Hawaii to report on American military and naval installations and ship movements in that region. They also required reports on lack of movement. For example, September 24, 1941, 
It ordered an agent to subdivide the waters of Pearl Harbor into five sub-areas, as well as to report on ship movements there. Prior to and after this date, Japanese agents were, up to the Japanese attack, reporting on ship movements, installations, and other matters of military and naval significance to the Japanese government. Witnesses before the committee, it may be noted, in extenuation of their lack of emphasis on the probability of an attack on Pearl Harbor, called attention to the fact that Japanese agents were also reporting on the military and naval installations of the United States at Panama, the Philippines, the West Coast, and other points. But to men, competent, careful, and watchful, men alert on their all-around and indivisible responsibility. This fact provided no excuse whatever for minimizing the probability of an attack on Pearl Harbor any more than at any other American outpost. Nor does it excuse the failure of Washington authorities to note that far greater detail was being asked for by the Japanese about Hawaii at a time when Japanese movements in the southeastern Pacific had to contend with a strategic position of Hawaii, where the real American striking force, the fleet, rested. Basically, Brewster and Ferguson held Roosevelt to blame. The President of the United States was responsible for the failure to enforce continuous, efficient, and appropriate cooperation among the Secretary of War, the Secretary of the Navy, the Army Chief of Staff, and the Chief of Naval Operations, in evaluating information and dispatching clear and positive orders to the Hawaiian commanders. In the final instance of crucial significance for alerting American outpost commanders, on Saturday night, December 6, and Sunday morning, December 7, the President of the United States failed to take that quick and instant executive action, which was required by the occasion and by the responsibility for watchfulness and guardianship, rightly associated in law and practice with his high office from the establishment of the Republic to our own times. Evidence set forth in this report in details is ample to show that in the period approximately from May 1940 to December 7, 1941, the high authorities at Washington assumed so much of the direction of affairs at Hawaii as to remove many of the basic responsibilities from the commanders in the field. The result was to reduce the discretion of the commanders in the field by those things which they were ordered to do by directions from Washington and not to do certain things unless they were so ordered from Washington. Another result of this practice was to lull the commanders in the field into awaiting instructions from Washington. Admittedly, Marshall and Stark were carrying heavy burdens in preparing the armed forces of the United States for war, in making war plans, in building up an army and navy, which they knew were not yet ready for war, and in struggling for a postponement of the war until the army and navy were better prepared to cope with a foe. With regard to the President, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, and the Secretary of the Navy, it may be said justly that they were carrying heavy burdens also. But all these officials, as Secretary Stimson's diary demonstrates, spent many days before December 7 in general discussions, which led to no decisions. This they did at a time when they possessed special knowledge of Japanese designs and were acquainted with their own intentions and resolves and certainly had the leisure to do the one obvious duty dictated by common sense. That is, draw up a brief plan for telling the outpost commanders just what to do in a certain contingency, a Japanese attack on American possessions somewhere, on receipt of orders from Washington. They had plans for action or actions by the armed forces of the United States if Congress declared war or if, by some process, the United States got into or entered the war. War plans, for example, Rainbow Number no. 5, which was WPL 46, 
were to go into operation only after war had begun and were not intended for preparation in meeting a surprise attack. They prepared no plan giving the outpost commanders instructions about the measures they were to take in preparing for and meeting a Japanese attack on American possessions when and if it came. This plan could have been drawn up in a few hours at most and set down in two or three typewritten pages at most. As to Kimmel and Short, Brewster and Ferguson said, Whatever errors of judgment the commanders at Hawaii committed, and whatever mismanagement they displayed in preparing for a Japanese attack, attention to chain of responsibility in the civil and military administration requires taking note of the fact that they were designated for their posts by high authorities in Washington. The defense of Hawaii rested upon two sets of interdependent responsibilities. Number one, the responsibility in Washington in respect of its intimate knowledge of diplomatic negotiations, widespread intelligence information, direction of affairs, and constitutional duty to plan the defense of the United States. Number two, the responsibility cast upon the commanders in the field in charge of a major naval base and the fleet essential to the defense of the territory of the United States to do those things appropriate to the defense of the fleet and outpost. Washington authorities failed in number one, and the commanding officers at Hawaii failed in number two. The minority report acknowledged that the question of the wisdom of the foreign policy pursued by the government of the United States was excluded by the terms of the committee's instructions. However, the two senators did approach the matter as it related to military tactics. They asked why Japan's request for a modus vivendi had been rejected. Only apart from the merits or demerits of the Japanese proposal of November 20, here was an opportunity at least to prolong the breathing spell for which General Marshall and Admiral Stark were pleading in their efforts to strengthen the armed forces of the United States for war. Although Roosevelt had at first approved of a three-month modus vivendi, as opposed to the six-month version previously proposed, Hull had rejected it after talking with FDR. In doing this, he, Hull, gave no advance notice to General Marshall and Admiral Stark, who were then preparing their second careful memorandum to the president, begging for a postponement of war with Japan until the Army and Navy could make better preparation for waging it. As they closed their minority report, Brewster and Ferguson said, how to avoid war and how to turn war if it finally comes, to serve the cause of human progress is the challenge to diplomacy today as yesterday. Here, too, much cannot be known regarding all the petty episodes that finally add up to war. No war comes in a moment. War is the sum of many minor decisions and some that are major. In this diplomatic aspect, the Pearl Harbor investigation has sadly failed to live up to the lofty prospectus with which it was launched. In our opinion, the evidence before this committee indicates that the tragedy at Pearl Harbor was primarily a failure of men and not of laws or powers to do the necessary things and carry out the vested responsibilities. No legislation could have cured such defects of official judgment, management, cooperation, and action as were displayed by authorities and agents of the United States in connection with the events that culminated in the catastrophe at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. This demonstrates the weakness of depending on the political head of the government to bring about the necessary coordination of the activities of the military branches, particularly in the area of intelligence and unification of command. The major lesson to be learned is that this coordination should be accomplished in advance of a crisis. The failure to perform the responsibilities indispensably essential to the defense of Pearl Harbor rests upon the following civil and military authorities. Franklin D. Roosevelt President of the United States and Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy. Henry L. Stimson, Secretary of War. 
Frank Knox, Secretary of the Navy. George C. Marshall, General, Chief of Staff of the Army. Harold R. Stark, Admiral, Chief of Naval Operations. Leonard T. Garrow, Major General, Assistant Chief of Staff of Warplanes Division. The failure to perform the responsibilities in Hawaii rests upon the military commanders, Walter C. Short, Major General, Commanding General, Hawaiian Department, Husband E. Kimmel, Rear Admiral, Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Fleet. Both in Washington and in Hawaii, there were numerous and serious failures of men in the lower civil and military echelons to perform their duties and discharge their responsibilities. These are too numerous to be treated in detail and individually named. Secretary of State Cordell Hull, who was at the center of Japanese-American negotiations, bears a grave responsibility for the diplomatic conditions leading up to the eventuality of Pearl Harbor. But he had no duties as a relevant link in the military chain of responsibility, stemming from the commander-in-chief to the commanders at Hawaii or the defense at Pearl Harbor. For this reason, and because the diplomatic phase was not completely explored, we offer no conclusions in this case. Signed, Homer Ferguson. Signed, Owen Brewster. Chapter 31 Epilogue World War II is now history. The generally accepted view is that the United States was brought into that war as a result of Japan's sudden, unexpected, and dastardly December 7, 1941 attack on the U.S. fleet in Hawaii. As President Roosevelt pointed out the following day in his message to Congress, this attack had been planned and undertaken, even as U.S. and Japanese diplomats were still engaged in negotiations, seeking to settle their differences in peace. In response, Congress declared war on Japan almost immediately, although it is obvious that the Japanese forces must bear the direct responsibility for the attack. The responsibility for the full extent of the disaster is much broader. The preamble of the U.S. Constitution provided for a government to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Except as those goals relied on the countries being at peace, they did not specifically with international relations. However, inherent in the preamble was the idea that defending this nation and safeguarding the liberty of its citizens calls for protecting them from domestic and foreign aggression. The new United States should mind its own business, base its policies and practices on peaceful social cooperation, and permit its citizens to trade and to travel as they wished. George Washington, the first president of the United States, expressed this idea in his farewell address, September 1789. Observe good faith and justice toward all nations, cultivate peace and harmony with all. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is, in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. And Thomas Jefferson, in his first inaugural address, March 4, 1801, again recommended peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. By the time of the Japanese attack, the Roosevelt administration in Washington had been violating these principles for months at least. As we all know, the direct responsibility for the U.S. entry into World War was Japan's catastrophic attack by her bombers and planes on the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor. However, when considered in the light of the times, it seems that the attack might have been anticipated as the logical act of a beleaguered nation, hoping to prevent the disruption of its military plans. However, to determine responsibility for the full extent of the disaster, one must ask why the fleet was caught so completely by surprise, unprepared and unwarned. Franklin D. Roosevelt took office as president in 1933. From then on, in view of his powers and duties under the Constitution, 
His position as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy and the trust vested in him by the people as Chief Executive of the United States. He must bear responsibility for U.S. foreign policy. A review of the historical record from the Washington point of view, as revealed in the investigations, now shows that the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor should not have been a complete surprise to the administration officials. As a matter of fact, it is now apparent also that the president himself, even before the attack, had intended to order the U.S. armed forces to make a preemptive strike against the Japanese in the Southwest Pacific in order to assist the British in Southeast Asia. But the Japanese jumped the gun on him by bombing Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. Thus, the attack was President Roosevelt's excuse, not his reason, for having the United States go to war with the Japanese. Historical Review By the mid-1930s, the world was in turmoil. In 1933, shortly after FDR became president, the United States recognized and established diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union. Hitler had come to power in Germany and was becoming more and more militaristic, laying claim to territory beyond his country's borders. On October 3, 1935, Italy invaded Ethiopia. A civil war opened in Spain in July 1936. In July 1937, Japan was drawn into war with China. However, the people in this country did not want to become involved in any of these conflicts. In 1935, Congress enacted, and on August 31st, the President signed the First Neutrality Act which prohibited the export of arms, ammunition, and implements of war to belligerent countries and their transportation in U.S. vessels. Roosevelt had long sympathized with Britain personally and step-by-step step he abandoned U.S. neutrality. Two years before the war actually began, he started to explore with the British what we could do if we both found ourselves involved in a war in the Far East with Japan. He personally instructed U.S. Admiral Royal E. Ingersoll when he left in December 1937 for a conference in London to discuss arrangements in case of a U.S., British, Dutch, Russian, Chinese war against Japan. Then after the war had started in Europe, Roosevelt gave instructions on August 6, 1940, to three top U.S. military officers who were going on another secret mission to London. Early in the morning on September 1, 1939, Hitler's forces invaded Poland. England and France decided to honor their commitments to go to the defense of Poland if she were attacked. On September 3, both countries issued ultimatums to Germany which were rejected. Europe was at war. On September 3, 1939, FDR reconfirmed U.S. neutrality, and during the months that followed, he continued to stress his determination to maintain U.S. neutrality. Nevertheless, FDR began almost immediately to help the British in their fight against Germany. President Roosevelt instituted a neutrality patrol in the Atlantic and instructed the U.S. Navy to watch for enemy vessels to report sightings in plain English so as to allow British ships to investigate and destroy. When later Churchill asked for 40 or 50 of this country's destroyers, FDR arranged for their transfer to the British. And as Britain's war expenditures mounted and she was running out of gold to pay for military supplies, Roosevelt gave the green light for her to order 12,000 aircraft. When Hitler charged that such U.S. aid to the U.K. was moral aggression, FDR replied that it was a defensive measure. On the other side of the world, Japan, an ally of Germany through the 1939 Tripartite Pact, was taking actions in Southeast Asia that the U.S. held could threaten U.S. and British interests in that part of the world. In January 1940, the U.S. began blocking exports to Japan of certain commodities that were essential to Japan's economic and military ventures. Various chemicals, munitions, iron and steel scrap, and especially petroleum products. Upon the defeat of France in June 1940, Japanese troops were admitted into the formerly French Indochina, and in September, Japan established air bases and stationed troops there. 
FDR announced that Pearl Harbor would be made the permanent base of the U.S. fleet. This was against the advice of his naval advisors, who pointed out that the harbor's narrow entrance, inadequate anchorages and airfields, and its limited fuel supplies would make the fleet vulnerable to attack. It is quite possible that FDR's decision was in response to British Prime Minister Churchill's suggestion, made earlier that very same day, May 15, 1940, that the U.S. keep that Japanese dog quiet in the Pacific. By midsummer 1940, U.S. cryptographers had succeeded in deciphering the very complex Japanese government's diplomatic code and duplicating the extremely intricate typewriter codenamed Purple, on which it was encoded. A tremendous accomplishment. From then on, the U.S. had access to most of the secret diplomatic messages the Japanese government sent on this machine to its emissaries throughout the world. As FDR campaigned in 1940 for a third term as president, he continued to assure the public of the United States' neutrality. He was doing all that he could to keep war away from these shores. He assured the voters that your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. 1941 Yet Roosevelt continued to ask Congress to help the British who were at war. At FDR's urging, in early 1941, Congress passed Lend-Lease, which provided many millions of dollars worth of war supplies, ships, planes, munitions, food, etc., to the nations who were fighting Germany. The U.S. war plans, as Roosevelt outlined them at this time, called on the United States to remain on the defensive in the Pacific, with the fleet based in Hawaii, but supportive of Britain in the Atlantic. At the time, the possibility of Japan's attacking in the Southwest Pacific was discussed in Washington although it was felt that public opinion would support U.S. action in the Far East if the Japanese go into Singapore or the Netherlands East Indies, Germany was considered the greatest threat. In February and March 1941, U.S. military officials met secretly in Washington with British officials and drew up a joint U.S.-British war plan embodying a Beat Hitler First principle. The Navy Basic War Plan Rainbow No. 5, based on this worldwide war plan, was sent out to the U.S. military field commanders. Under this Army-Navy plan, Admiral Kimmel in Pearl Harbor was ordered to prepare the Pacific Fleet to undertake offensive operations against the Japanese and to support the British forces in the far east south of the equator. However, at a White House conference, it was decided that the most urgent matter still was to go all out in the Atlantic. As a result, approximately one-fourth of the fighting ships of the U.S. fleet, practically all the trained and equipped Marines on the West Coast, several small transports, and some other small craft were transferred from the Pacific to the Atlantic. This, of course, reduced substantially the strength of the fleet in the Pacific. In the spring of 1941, the United States placed in protective custody the ships in U.S. ports of Germany, Italy, and Nazi-occupied Denmark. In June, FDR authorized the acquisition of all idle foreign merchant ships in our ports and ordered Axis funds in the United States frozen. The United States also requested withdrawal of German and Italian consular staffs by July 10. Germany and Japan had hoped their 1939 tripartite pact alliance would keep the United States from interfering in the war in Europe. However, the U.S. started interfering with the war in Europe indirectly by trying to keep the Japanese fully occupied in the ongoing Japan-China war so they would not go to the aid of Germany. The United States assisted Chiang Kai-shek in China financially and she helped to build the Burma Road and organized Chinot's American Volunteer Flying Tiger Group, which flew supplies over the hump into China. Representatives of the Americans, Dutch, and British met in Singapore in the spring of 1941. They drew a line beyond which the Japanese armed forces could not attack without evoking responses from the governments of the United States, the British, and the Dutch. This line was drawn west of longitude 100 degrees east and south of latitude 10 degrees north 
that is south and west of French Indochina, currently Vietnam. Hitler attacked Russia on June 22, 1941, and two days later FDR released Russian credits and promised American aid, in line with his policy of giving material assistance to any country fighting Germany. As the war in the Atlantic heated up, German U-boats were sinking British ships in large numbers. FDR extended the area of the U.S. Neutrality Patrol to cover most of the Atlantic. In July, we occupied Iceland, and we soon began convoying British ships in the North Atlantic. It wasn't long before U.S. ships were shooting, being shot at, and even sunk, with the loss of American lives. In August 1941, Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Churchill met personally for the first time in secrecy off the coast of Newfoundland. Churchill pleaded with President Roosevelt to enter the war. FDR reminded Churchill that, in the United States, only Congress could declare war. I may never declare war. I may make war. If I were to ask Congress to declare war, they might argue about it for three months. The two men discussed the Japanese situation also. Although FDR said that, to strengthen America's force, he must seek to delay a break with Japan, he agreed to warn Japan that if she encroached further in the Southwest Pacific, the U.S., would be compelled to take countermeasures, even though these might lead to war. Moreover, he assured Churchill that the United States, even if not herself attacked, would come into a war in the Far East, and that if Japan ran amok in the Pacific, we, the British, should not fight alone. In the spring of 1941, the U.S. and Japan had embarked upon diplomatic negotiations in Washington in the attempt to settle the China-Japan conflict and establish peace in the Pacific area. These discussions concerned Japan's war in China, her role on the Asian mainland, the tripartite pact binding Japan to the Axis, and the U.S. trade embargo of Japan. These negotiations continued off and on through November. During all this time, we were reading Japan's secret diplomatic messages to our emissaries throughout the world. In September, FDR issued a shoot-on-sight order to U.S. Navy ships in the Atlantic. When you see a rattlesnake poised to strike, you do not wait until he has struck before you crush him. These Nazi submarines and raiders are the rattlesnakes of the Atlantic. Our patrolling vessels and planes will protect all merchant ships, not only American ships but ships of any flag, engaged in commerce in our defensive waters. From now on, if German or Italian vessels of war enter the waters the protection of which is necessary for American defense, they do so at their own peril. The Japanese moved forces into Indochina. The U.S. officials remonstrated. By mid-1941, it became apparent that as a result of Japan's war in China and her military ventures in Southeast Asia, her most serious shortage was of oil. Roosevelt told the Japanese ambassador, if Japan attempted to seize oil supplies by force in the Netherlands East Indies, the Dutch would, without the shadow of a doubt, resist. The British would immediately come to their assistance. War would then result between Japan, the British, and the Dutch, and in view of our own policy of assisting Great Britain, an exceedingly serious situation would immediately result. FDR said that Japan would do much better if she tried to obtain the supplies she needed peacefully, rather than by occupying Indochina. But the United States continued to embargo oil to Japan, and she persuaded the British and Dutch to do the same. In July, Japan was advised that the United States considered it self-defense to protect the British against aggression in the Atlantic, also in Singapore. The Japanese ambassador spoke of Japan's deteriorating economic status, her objections to U.S. support of China, improving the Burma Road, and supplying planes and pilots to Chongqing, also of her, Japan's, plans to occupy French Indochina, and her need to station troops in Inner Mongolia to suppress Chinese communist elements, and hinted that were the United States to accept these conditions, Japan would not be particularly concerned about any action the United States might take in the Atlantic. 
In response, the U.S. director of the Navy's war plans equated protecting the British from the Nazis with defending the U.S. It is decidedly against the military interests of the United States to permit the United Kingdom to be overcome by Germany. Furthermore, the occupation of Indochina by Japan is particularly important for the defense of the United States, since it might threaten the British position in Singapore and the Dutch position in the Netherlands East Indies. The Joint Board of the Army and Navy was not eager for the United States to become involved in a war with Japan. A major war effort in the Pacific would require an enormous amount of shipping from the Atlantic and other essential areas, which would materially affect United States aid to England. C.N.O. Stark warned his admirals, since the U.S. and Britain are held responsible by Japan for her present desperate situation, there is also a possibility that Japan may attack these two powers. Kimmel in Pearl Harbor had to rely on Washington for intelligence. C.N.O. Stark assured Kimmel that the Office of Naval Intelligence recognized its responsibility on that score. In mid-October, Stark wrote Kimmel, Personally, I do not believe the Japs are going to sail into us. Perhaps I am wrong, but I hope not. In any case, after long powwows in the White House, it was felt we should be on guard, at least until something indicates the trend. In early November 1941, Army Chief of Staff General Marshall and Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Stark advised FDR that United States policy in the Far East should be based first on the defeat of Germany. War between the United States and Japan should be avoided while the U.S. built up her defensive forces in the Far East. They told FDR that it was all right to continue to send U.S. armed forces and other aid to China for intervention against Japan. However, Marshall and Stark won a time before the eruption of any conflict, and they recommended that no ultimatum be delivered to Japan. U.S. Ambassador to Japan Joseph Grew warned FDR, November 3, 1941, that war between Japan and the United States may come with dangerous and dramatic suddenness. At the Cabinet's weekly Friday meeting at the White House, November 7, 1941, FDR took the first general poll of his cabinet on the question of the Far East, whether the people would back us up in case we struck at Japan down there. It was unanimous in feeling the country would support us. Secretary of War Stimson believed the vote would have been much stronger if the cabinet members had known what the army was doing to reinforce the Philippines and how ready the army was to pitch in in case of an attack on the British or Dutch in southeastern Asia. To facilitate the U.S.-Japanese diplomatic negotiations in Washington, Japan sent a second ambassador, Caruso, to Washington in November. When Hull presented him to the president, Hull reminded Caruso of Japan's alliance with Germany. When Hitler starts on a march of invasion across the earth with 10 million soldiers and 30,000 airplanes, this country from that time was in danger. This country, with no other motive except self-defense, has recognized that danger and has proceeded thus far to defend itself before it is too late. The President and Hull made it clear that we were not the aggressors in the Pacific, but that Japan was the aggressor. The U.S. cryptographers intercepted a message from Tokyo, setting a deadline for the U.S.-Japanese diplomats to reach agreement in their negotiations. Because of various circumstances, it is absolutely necessary that all arrangements for the signing of this agreement, being negotiated with the United States, be completed by the 25th of this month, later extended to the 29th. On November 20, the two Japanese ambassadors suggested a modus vivendi, a temporary arrangement to continue the status quo while negotiations continued. Both Japan and the United States would make some concessions. The United States would supply Japan a required quantity of oil. China's Chiang Kai-shek bombarded Washington with demands that no further concessions be made to Tokyo. Japanese ship movements in the Far East grabbed the attention of Washington's top officials. At a November 25, 1941 meeting, FDR said, we were likely to be attacked by Japan 
perhaps as soon as next Monday, for the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. Stimson remarked, the question was how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves. Paul was asked to prepare an ultimatum to Japan like that of August, notifying her that if she crossed the border into Thailand, she was violating our safety. Stark sent a warning to Kimmel. Neither FDR nor Hull would be surprised over a Japanese surprise attack. An attack on the Philippines would be the most embarrassing thing that could happen to us. Stark didn't believe the Japanese would proceed against Russia. He considered an advance into Thailand, Indochina, Burma Road area as the most likely. November 26, 1941 Stimson told FDR that a Japanese expedition of five divisions had gone south from Shantung and Shanxi to Shanghai, whence they had embarked on 30, 40, or 50 southbound ships. November 26, 1941 The modus vivendi was jettisoned and a 10-point ultimatum was issued to Japan. After this November 26 ultimatum had gone out, Washington officials discussed what to tell MacArthur in the Philippines. It was agreed we should send the final alert, namely that he should be on the Kiev for any attack. FDR was particularly concerned by current southward troop movements from Shanghai and Japan to the Formosa area, preparing for an early aggressive movement of some character, directed against the Burma Road, Thailand, Malay Peninsula, Netherlands East Indies, or the Philippines. This next Japanese aggression might cause an outbreak of hostilities between the U.S. and Japan. November 27, 1941 Washington warned No. 1 Manila, No. 2 Hawaii, No. 3 Atlantic Fleet that Japanese southbound convoys were heading for the Philippines, Thai or Kra Peninsula, or possibly Borneo. November 27, 1941 Marshall and Stark asked for time to prepare U.S. defenses. They were especially concerned about the Philippines. The most essential thing now from the United States' viewpoint is to gain time. It is recommended that Military counteraction be considered only if Japan attacks or directly threatens United States, British, or Dutch territory. And Japan should be warned that advances beyond the lines indicated may lead to war. November 28, 1941 The members of FDR's War Cabinet all agreed that if the Japanese expedition were permitted to land in the Gulf of Siam, it would place a strong Japanese force in such a strategic position as to be a severe blow at all three of the powers in Southeast Asia the British at Singapore, the Netherlands in the Indies, and ourselves in the Philippines. We all agreed that it must not be allowed that if the Japanese got into the Isthmus of Kra, the British would fight, and if the British fought, we would have to fight. According to Stimson, the possibility of an attack on Pearl Harbor was not then discussed since our thoughts were all focused on this movement towards Southeast Asia. November 28, 1941 we intercepted Japan's instructions to her ambassadors in Washington concerning our November 26 ultimatum. The imperial government can by no means use it as a basis for negotiations. Therefore, the negotiations will be de facto ruptured. However, don't give the impression that the negotiations are broken off. Merely say that you are awaiting instructions. How should the United States respond if the Japanese attacked British territory in Southeast Asia? Secretary of State Hull proposed that FDR present a message to Congress concerning the Japanese aggression. All, Stimson and Knox, drafted such a message. The supreme question presented to this country along with many other countries by the Hitler-dominated movement of world conquest is that of self-defense. We do not want war with Japan, and Japan does not want war with this country. If, however, war should come, the fault and the responsibility will be those of Japan. 
the primary cause, will have been pursued by Japan of a policy of aggression. At a meeting on December 1, 1941, the Japanese ambassadors told Hull that the U.S. ultimatum's 10 points had been communicated to their government, which was studying the case. Hull responded, the heavy Japanese troop movements into Indochina create an increasing menace to America and her friends. We will not allow ourselves to be kicked out of the Pacific. Hull accused the Japanese of using Hitlerian methods in China. We cannot lose sight of the movement by Hitler to seize one half of the world. The Japanese militarists, Hull said, were moving in a similar direction to seize the other half of the earth. This government cannot yield to anything of that kind. On December 1, Roosevelt directed Admiral Hart in Manila to dispatch three small ships, minimally armed and equipped to be classified as men of war, to take up positions in the path of the southbound Japanese convoys, to observe and report by radio Japanese movements. On December 1, Japan ordered her embassies worldwide to destroy their codes and code machines. On December 3, 1941, Japan ordered its embassy in Washington to destroy all secret files, documents, and codes, but those now being used with their code machine. A December 1 Tokyo to Berlin purple intercept decoded and translated in Washington read in part, War may suddenly break out between the Anglo-Saxon nations and Japan through some clash of arms quicker than anyone dreams. A second Tokyo-Berlin message intercepted, decoded, and translated read, Before rejecting Japan's modus vivendi, the United States conferred with England, Australia, the Netherlands, and China. It is clear that the United States is now in collusion with those nations and has decided to regard Japan along with Germany and Italy as an enemy. The United States continued to assure British and Dutch of American support. FDR to British Ambassador Lord Halifax in the case of a direct attack on the British or the Dutch, we should obviously all be together. According to Halifax, the president said the British could count on American support if we, the British, carried out our move to defend the Kra Isthmus on Thai territory in the event of a Japanese attack. On December 2, Roosevelt told the Japanese ambassadors that the continuing troop movements to southern Indochina portend Japanese aggression against the Philippines, NEI, Burma, Malaya, Thailand. Such new aggression would, of course, be additional to the acts of aggression already undertaken against China, our attitude towards which is well known. The next day, FDR reconfirmed his pledge of armed support to the British, and he told Halifax that, when talking of support, he meant armed support, and that he agreed with the British plan for operations in the Kra Isthmus if the Japanese attacked Thailand. The U.S. and British talked about joint war plans as to when and where the U.S. and Great Britain should strike. On December 4, Lord Halifax expressed his government's very deep appreciation for FDR's promises of armed support. He thought the warning they had talked about should apply to an attack by Japan on Thailand, Malaya, the Dutch East Indies, or the Burma Road through Indochina. Mr. Roosevelt was doubtful about including the Burma Road, but otherwise agreed to the warning. The United States warned its U.S. outposts in Asia of the imminence of war with Japan. Navy Captain McCollum, in charge of the far eastern section of Naval Intelligence's foreign branch, drafted a warning message, December 3, 1941, to Admiral Hart, Manila, Admiral Kimmel, Pearl Harbor, and to commandants of the naval districts in Hawaii and the Philippines. Instructions were sent yesterday to Japanese diplomatic and consular posts at Hong Kong, Singapore, Batavia, Manila, Washington, and London to destroy most of their codes and ciphers at once and to burn all other important confidential and secret documents. During the first week of December 1941, several warnings of impending Japanese aggression were received in Washington from Purple Code Magic Intercepts. The Japanese consul was asked to report to Tokyo at irregular intervals 
but at a rate of twice a week on a system of grids, the location of ships in Pearl Harbor. A special Japanese code based on false weather reports, the WINDS code, had also been set up so Tokyo could communicate secretly with its embassies and consulates around the world if, as, and when it was no longer possible to reach them with coded messages after their code machines had been destroyed. This code was implemented December 4 by a WINDS code execute, indicating troubled relations with Great Britain, the Dutch East Indies, and the U.S., but not with Russia. These crucial intercepts indicating that U.S. territory, quite possibly the U.S. fleet in Pearl Harbor, was likely to be a target of Japan's aggression, were sent to all the top brass in Washington, but not to our commanders in Hawaii, not to General Short, who was responsible for the safety of the fleet while in port, nor to Admiral Kimmel, commander-in-chief of the Pacific Fleet based in Pearl Harbor. Upon receipt of the Winds Execute, Safford, Chief of Security of Naval Communications, alerted U.S. outposts in the Pacific to destroy classified documents, but his alerts were delayed and didn't reach their addressees until after the attack. Captain McCollum, Naval Intelligence, Far Eastern Branch, drafted a message based on the Winds Execute to warn Pearl Harbor, but he learned later that it had not been sent out. On December 3, U.S. Army Military Intelligence cabled the U.S. Military Attaché in Tokyo to destroy its codes. On December 4, the State Department suggested that the U.S. and British coordinate their withdrawal or exchange of Americans from Japan, Manchuria, and Japanese-occupied China in the event of British-Japanese hostilities. More indications of the imminence of war were intercepted December 6, 1941. Messages from Italy, the Japanese Embassy in Washington, and Tokyo indicated that war was imminent. Japanese offices worldwide acknowledged Tokyo's code-destruct order. The British and Dutch were on the Kiviv in Southeast Pacific. Admiral Hart in Manila reported U.S. overflights had sighted Japanese convoys in South China Sea, heading toward Malaya and the Isthmus of Kra. On Saturday, December 6, U.S. cryptographers started to pick up Japan's several-part response to the United States, November 26 ultimatum. A pilot message announced that Japan's 14-part reply was en route to her ambassadors in Washington. The first 13 parts were received, deciphered, and delivered to top Washington officials and to FDR about 9.30 p.m. After reading it, FDR said to his aide, Mr. Hopkins, this means war. The two men speculated as to where and when the strike would come. Pearl Harbor was not mentioned, nor was there any indication that tomorrow was the day. No mention was made of sending a further warning or alert. On December 6, 1941, FDR announced to the press and to the world that he had sent Japanese Emperor Hirohito a plea for peace. The State Department had completed on December 5 its draft of a message for the President to present to Congress, possibly on December 8 through 9, depending on Hirohito's response to FDR's plea for peace. December 6 through 7, 1941 A late-night meeting of FDR's inner circle was held in the White House. They were waiting for what they expected was coming a Japanese strike against British Malaya or Thailand's Isthmus of Kra, and possibly the Dutch East Indies. They had been agonizing over this for weeks, and FDR's cabinet secretaries had been asked to draft statements presenting the rationale for our going to war against Japan to defend the British and Dutch. In the Philippines, on the other side of the dateline, December 7, 1941, Admiral Hart, after talking with the top British admiral who had been visiting Manila from Singapore, cabled Washington for instructions concerning U.S. commitments to the British in Southeast Pacific, thousands of miles west of Pearl Harbor. In the morning of December 7, 1941, Paul N. Knox, at the request of Secretary of War Stimson, each drafted a statement as to what the United States should do in the event of Japanese action in Southeast Asia. Paul states, 
The Japanese government is dominated by military fire eaters who are aiming to acquire military control over one half of the world, with nearly one half its population. All of the conquered peoples would be governed, militarily, politically, economically, socially, and morally by the worst possible military despotism, such as that used by Japan in China and Hitler in Europe. Control of the South Sea area by Japan is the key to control of the entire Pacific area, and therefore defense of life and commerce and other invaluable rights and interests must be commenced within the South Sea area. Self-defense, therefore, is the key point for the preservation of each and all of our civilized institutions. Knox states, We are tied up inextricably with the British in the present world situation. The fall of Singapore and the loss to England of Malaya will automatically not only wreck her far eastern position, but jeopardize her entire effort. If the British lose their position, the Dutch are almost certain to lose theirs. If the above be accepted, then any serious threat to the British or the Dutch is a serious threat to the United States. The Japanese should be told that any movement in a direction that threatens the United States will be met by force. The 14th part of Japan's reply to the U.S. ultimatum was picked up and delivered to top U.S. Army and Navy officials on the morning of December 7. Also, the Japanese government's message directing its ambassadors in Washington to deliver Tokyo's 14-part reply to the United States at precisely 1 p.m. Washington time. December 7, 1941, just before noon. Marshall, with Stark's approval, messaged Manila, Panama, Pearl Harbor. Japanese are presenting at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time today what amounts to an ultimatum. Also, they are under orders to destroy their code machines immediately. Just what significance the hour set may have, we do not know, but be on alert accordingly. Inform naval authorities of this communication. This message went right through to Manila and Panama, but due to atmospheric conditions, it did not reach Hawaii until late that afternoon. December 7, 1941, 8 a.m., Hawaii time, 1.30 p.m., Washington time. Japanese planes launched from aircraft carriers a few hundred miles north, bombed and torpedoed the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor. Himmel in Hawaii radioed all U.S. stations that an air raid attack was on and that it was no drill. Post-attack So the United States had been attacked. More than 2,500 soldiers, sailors, and Marines had been killed at Pearl Harbor on that December 7, 1941. In his address to Congress the following day, President Roosevelt called immediately for a declaration of war against Japan, and Congress complied. The people were mad at the Japanese and eager to revenge the dastardly attack. Apparently, Japan's brilliantly planned and brilliantly executed attack had caught the U.S. forces at Pearl Harbor completely unawares. The people wanted to know who was responsible. They wanted to know why the U.S. forces at Pearl Harbor had been caught off guard, unwarned, ill-equipped, and poorly prepared. It was obvious that Japan was directly responsible for the attack. However, it is not so easy to determine responsibility for the extent of the Pearl Harbor disaster. The element of surprise, the tragic loss of life, and the catastrophic devastation of ships, planes, etc. The Pearl Harbor commanders, Admiral Kimmel and General Short, were held responsible and publicly blamed for the disaster. However, it is now apparent that in the final analysis, it was President Roosevelt himself who was truly responsible for Pearl Harbor's lack of preparedness. It was he who determined U.S. policy and who directed the Secretaries of State, War, and Navy how to implement that policy. The top Washington officials who were privy to magic also contributed to the extent of the disaster by not adequately warning Pearl Harbor in a timely manner. Their contributions, however, were sins of omission rather than sins of commission. An administration cover-up under the guidance of FDR and with the support of his loyal lieutenants 
was apparently aimed at keeping the public from learning of the administration's role in failing to keep the Pearl Harbor commanders adequately equipped and informed of the imminence of war with Japan and of the likelihood that Pearl Harbor could be a target. Moreover, it had never been explained how the secret Japanese intercepts which had been received, decoded, translated, and distributed before the attack, which had revealed a great deal, not all, of Japan's thinking to those in Washington, who were privy to magic, disappeared from both Army and Navy files where they had been held under tight security. Upon a review of the events that took place over the months preceding the attack, as revealed in the several investigations, the top Washington officials had ample reason to expect that a Japanese attack on U.S. territory was imminent. Yet they did not relay that sense of urgency to Kimmel and Short. Moreover, their warnings directed the attention of the Pearl Harbor commanders to the Southeast Pacific. It seems in retrospect that the U.S. diplomatic negotiations, which were officially still ongoing at the time of the attack, were not always conducted in completely good faith. Time and again, U.S. officials rejected compromises offered by the Japanese. The U.S. embargoed the sale to Japan of oil and other commodities she needed, and persuaded the British and Dutch to follow suit. U.S. officials in Washington apparently failed to realize that Japan might consider the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor a threat to Japan's plans for military expansion in the Southwest Pacific, and thus might try to put it out of commission before embarking on a war against the U.S. They not only failed to furnish the Pearl Harbor commanders with the men, planes, and munitions, and other material they requested, but a substantial number of the fleet's ships had been transferred to the Atlantic, thus reducing substantially the U.S. defensive strength in the Pacific. Moreover, Washington officials had reminded Kimmel and Short again and again that the United States' principal enemy was Hitler and that the war was in the Atlantic. Top Washington officials failed repeatedly to relay important intelligence to the commanders in the field. They failed to advise Kimmel and Short that Japan was reporting regularly to Tokyo on a grid plot the locations of ships in Pearl Harbor. They failed to recognize the importance of the East Winds rain message intercepted on December 4, 1941, indicating that an attack on U.S. territory, as well as the British and Dutch, was a likely first target. As a matter of fact, no record has ever been found of what happened to the East Winds rain message after it was delivered to naval communications on the morning of December 4, 1941. The top Washington officials warned Kimmel and Short of Japan's advances being made thousands of miles west of Pearl Harbor toward the Philippines and Southeast Asia, Thailand, Borneo, the Dutch East Indies, and the Isthmus of Kra. U.S. intelligence officials had lost track of the Japanese aircraft carriers. Apparently, they did not dream that they could be steaming across the Pacific toward Hawaii with bombers and torpedo planes on board, and that November 29 was the Japanese ambassador's deadline for completing their diplomatic negotiations because it might be the deadline for recalling Japanese forces from an intended mission several days away. Roosevelt and his top Washington advisors were undoubtedly concerned lest blame be attached to them for failure to fulfill their responsibilities for the country's defense. According to Roosevelt confidant and speechwriter Robert Sherwood, the president may even have had qualms that his pre-attack dealings with the British might be considered impeachable offenses. Secretary of Navy Knox apparently felt guilty for not having more adequately warned the Pearl Harbor commanders. And General Marshall, too, must have had qualms about his dilatory tactics in warning the area commanders, for he began his own investigation almost immediately into the delay in delivering his last-minute message to Pearl Harbor. Thus, the leading principals in Washington were hesitant to have investigations that might reveal some of their own actions as derelictions of duties and or errors in judgment. Moreover, FDR was especially anxious to keep the world from learning that, all the time he had been assuring voters that he had no intention of sending their sons to fight in a foreign war, 
unless we were attacked. He had been planning a preemptive strike to send U.S. armed forces to defend the British and Dutch from the Japanese thousands of miles from our shore, and that Admiral Kimmel in Pearl Harbor had been under orders to prepare the fleet to take offensive action against the Japanese in the Southeast Pacific. After the war's end, Congress commissioned the year-long Joint Congressional Committee on the investigation of the Pearl Harbor attack. Many of the facts presented in this book were revealed in its hearings, November 15, 1945 through May 31, 1946. Conclusion It must be said also that the evidence revealed in the course of the several investigations leads to the conclusion that the ultimate responsibility for the catastrophe inflicted on the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 must rest on the shoulders of President Roosevelt to whom the Constitution assigns authority as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy and the responsibility to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. It is now evident that the stage was set for a Japanese attack on U.S. territory by President Roosevelt's decisions and actions. He was responsible for squeezing the Japanese economically until they were forced to try to use force to seize the resources they needed and to prevent the U.S. fleet from trying to stop them. It was thanks to Roosevelt's decisions and actions that an unwarned, Ill-equipped and poorly prepared fleet remained stationed far from the shores of continental United States at a base recognized by his military advisors as indefensible and vulnerable to attack. Given that situation, it is not strange that the fleet was surprised by the attack of Japanese torpedo planes and bombers that fateful Sunday morning, December 7, 1941. And then, when the extent of the damage was known, it was Roosevelt who orchestrated a cover-up to make Admiral Kimmel and General Short scapegoats and to conceal any negligence on the part of the administration. The revelation herewith of the address Roosevelt would have made to Congress on December 8 or 9, if the December 7 attack had not intervened, indicates that Roosevelt would have ordered the U.S. Armed Forces to take the offensive against the Japanese without waiting for an attack on U.S. territory. Thus, the attack on Pearl Harbor became FDR's excuse, not his reason, for calling for the United States' entry into World War II. The Mises Institute hopes you have enjoyed this audio. Pearl Harbor, The Seeds and Fruits of Infamy For a world of free market literature, media, and discussion, visit Mises.org.